Good morning. It's February 2nd, uh, 2023. This is the Montgomery County Planning Board in beautiful downtown Wheaton. It's a beautiful day here. It's the first meeting during uh, Black History Month. We have a number of events that will occur in the parks this month at the Agricultural History Farm Park, at Woodlawn Manor, at Johia Sensen Mu Museum. Um, uh, Woodlawn Manor, Oakley Cabin. Uh, you can look up those events on our website and I hope you'd uh, participate. Uh, this is also a Groundhog Day and I hear Ponsatani Phil has seen his shadow in Pennsylvania. I don't think he'd see it here. So we're still waiting on Potomac, uh, what is it, Potomac Phil? Something like that. We don't, but he's stuffed anyhow. Um, uh, we have an exciting uh, history notice uh, uh, today. Uh, on this date, the uh, Maryland General Assembly voted in 1781 to authorize Maryland's delegation to Congress. It included Montgomery County resident Daniel Carroll to ratify the Articles of Confederation. Maryland was the last state to ratify the Articles, a precursor to the United States Constitution. Carroll was one of five individuals to sign both the Articles of Confederation and the United States Constitution. The other thing I would note with this historic event is that it's the first historic event that I'm mentioning that is older than my birthday. So uh, I'm excited about that. Okay, we have preliminary matters here. Uh, item one is uh, adoption of resolution to adopt the sketch plan for uh, 8001 Wisconsin Avenue, uh, sketch plan 3-2021-0050. Can I have a motion, please? Mr. Chair, I move we approve uh, resolution 23-008. Do I have a second? I second. Yes, thank you. All those in favor say aye. 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 Aye, aye. thank you. Uh, I'll, we have an, another uh, resolution for the same project, uh, but a different uh, plan. Uh, it's uh, 8001 Wisconsin Avenue preliminary plan, uh, number 1-2021-0140. Do I hear a motion to approve? So move, Mr. Chair. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Thank you. All right. We have one other, uh, uh, another preliminary matter here for, to nominate, uh, not to nominate, to ratify the nomination of a uh, Park Foundation trustee, uh, Kathleen Matthews, who, who I have worked with um, uh, for decades, I think, <laughs> uh, a terrific nominee. The board's obligation here is to ratify this choice. Uh, approval isn't quite the word in the, uh, in the context of the Parks Foundation's bylaws, so we'll ratify. Can I hear a motion? So moved. And I second. Did, would you like to say anything more? Yes. Um, I, I want to just echo your um, praise of, of Kathy Matthews. She served as the um, 
director in one of our, uh, one of the county centers in, um, I want to say Germantown, Germantown right? Correct. Okay, it was um, Germantown for mm -hmm. for many years. Um, she has always been a consummate professional um, and uh, truly a uh, trusted advisor to so many people in this county. And I I can think of no better person um, to serve in this role. Um, so I, I am really just encouraged and pleased by her uh, with, with her being on this on this board on the foundation's board okay seeing no other this oh I do see more discuss, uh, uh, Commissioner Presley yes I just wanted to thank uh, Chair Branson for those comments I have worked with Kathy over many years and she really is a uh, a dear and great woman, and uh, I just want to shout, hey, Kathy, th congratulations. <laughs> She's going to be great. Thank you. Thank you. Seeing no further <laughs> discussion, all those in favor of ratification, say aye. 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 The uh, ayes are unanimous. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for a terrific nomination to that board. We're on item two, yes? We're doing great here. Uh, these are record plots. We have subdivision plot number 2202-2054-0. Uh, the Kefauver Tract uh, in Bradley Hills. Staff recommends approval. Any discussion? No. No? no. I'll no. entertain a motion. So moved. And a second. Uh, I he heard a motion to approve in a second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Ayes are unanimous again. We have another subdivision approval, plat number 22023-3120, Grand Park. Uh, again, staff recommends approval of the record plat. So moved, Mr. Chair. Second. No, seeing no discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 The ayes are unanimous again. We're on item three, regulatory extension requests, Clarksburg Ch Chase pre-preliminary plan. This is the first of our ever having a pre-preliminary plan for this board. Number 720 uh, this is a, a second extension request. Uh, Commissioner Hill, would you like to say something? No, just an observation oh. that I really appreciated the applicant's explanation of the, the purpose of the extension here. Anybody else? Uh, I'll entertain a motion to approve. I'll move to approve. Second. Mr. Okay. Uh, no, seeing no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Thank you. Okay, now we'll turn it over to uh, uh, the Parks Director, Mike Riley. Good morning, uh, Planning Board. Um, this morning for my Park Director's Report, I am going to show you a few slides that we presented uh, last Friday to the um, Montgomery uh, House delegation of the General Assembly. Uh, this has apparently been an annual event where we get uh, sometime on their agenda to tell them about what's going on at park and planning in prior years. Uh, the chair did this uh, presentation this year. Chair Zients uh, brought along uh, Tanya Stern and myself to participate. So the three of us 
uh, tag team it, and I'm just going to walk you through the park slides that we showed. Um, starting out with uh, thanking them uh, for the money that they brought us. This is simple. This is just last year. This is just fiscal year 22. Uh, between the state and federal grants we achieved. You can see it's a pretty lengthy list of projects scattered around the county. Uh, the little asterisks after a project name to show that the project is in an equity focus area, which demonstrates how we have been prioritizing investment in those parks and communities. And uh, I was a little cute here uh, showing two photos of projects that the state funded in uh, District 15 to match the $15 million that came out of uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the grants last year without, uh, of course, showing any favoritism to any particular district. On the right, you see uh, Congressman Trone and some of our state uh, legislators uh, giving us a check for $500,000 for uh, South Germantown Park. That was federal community project funding. And then on the left, you see a project we completed in Little Bennett uh, several years ago called the uh, Western Piedmont Bridge uh, that extended the trail network there. And you can't really tell, but on that bridge, we have uh, Senator Feldman and, uh, and Delegate uh, David Frazier Hidalgo with us. And then I also thank them for Program Open Space, which is a pretty revolutionary program in Maryland. It's funded by the real estate transfer tax. I believe it was begun in the 60s or the 70s, and it, uh, our park system would not be what it is without this program. Um, there have been uh, the, the transfer taxes divvied up among the counties in the state of Maryland based on a population-based formula, so we're one of the largest recipients. And there was a time uh, years ago uh, where the state was having financial difficulties that program open space was diverted to fund other state priorities. There were a few years where our allocation was zero or less than a million dollars. So there's been a lot of effort on our behalf over the years and then the other park and recreation districts across the state to lobby the General Assembly about the importance of this program. Of course, a lot of environmental advocates uh, also support this program. It goes towards both developing uh, parks and land acquisition. And I'm really pleased to say that uh, in the last uh, few years, the allocation has been going up. And you can see that FY23, is that's the number that is in the governor's budget. I imagine that will hold through the session. And we're going to get a very significant amount of uh, POS this year to apply to our parks. The picture is uh, a park refresher we did with park bonds and program open space at Dewey Local Park in the Randolph Hills area of the county. We did a uh, deal with the Washington Capitals to put in uh, an inline skating rink that they paid for, dog park on the left, public art. And one unique uh, um, aspect of this particular park is it's a public facility co-location because it sits on top of a WSSC a sewage store facility along Rock Creek. That entire, all those improvements you see are sitting on top of millions and millions of gal gallons of stored sewage. <laughs> of course, we don't advertise that to our <laughs> patrons. <laughs> um, just, you're very familiar with the park recreation and open space plan. That's our long range plan that was recently approved. I just uh, like to announce that if people ask if we have a long range plan for our parks, that the answer is yes. And you can see some of the priorities that are espoused in that plan over on the right. 
Uh, I, and I uh, had mentioned in the front slide, I just wanted to make sure I educate them about our partnership with the planning department in doing the mapping of equity focus areas and how as we determine where we're going to uh, improve or acquire or invest in parks or build new parks that we're heavily weighting our decisions towards uh, parks and equity focus areas. Now, now I go through a whole bunch of projects. I'll go through these quickly. I start out with a few projects that were completed. Uh, Josiah Henson Museum uh, used over a million dollars of program open space. Of course, also a lot of private fundraising and other tax-supported money. One of the uh, most important and meaningful projects we've built in the park system throughout our history. Uh, a very recent opening in a unique park, uh, the Pitt at Farallon Bike Park. Uh, Chair Zients did uh, come out, I think, in his first few weeks to the ribbon cutting. And uh, it's, it's a unique facility that doesn't, you know, attract everybody's needs. But the map in the middle shows it's kind of like a ski resort. You have easy, medium, and hard trails. So even though you might think of this just for the bikers that are getting air like the guy on the lower left, it really is someone, it is a, a type of facility that someone at any skill level who wants to get exercise and get outdoors and ride a bike can uh, benefit from. This was a uh, what's called a uh, bond bill or a legislative bond initiative uh, was the state money behind this. And then I moved to some projects that they've uh, provided money for that are either in a design a planning design or construction phase. They're not on the ground yet, but they've supported. This is in the Wheaton Master Plan. We expect to build a regional destination adventure sports park uh, at Wheaton, and that was uh, last year $2.5 million in what's called a local parks and playgrounds infrastructure grant from the state. Uh, the Long Branch Parks Initiative is a very unique approach for us where, where we're looking at a system of parks within all within uh, equity focus areas. There's eight parks and we're doing extensive community outreach and some of these parks are in advanced stages of design and fully funded and ready to go to construction. Others are just in a planning phase, but we're, when we talk to the community about what they'd like to see, we're making sure that we address this system uh, as a whole. Another very unique project, uh, not in an equity focus area, but as you can see from those top two pictures, um, this is not a great example of how mankind has treated our ecology and environment where we have uh, undergrounded uh, streams to uh, develop uh, back in the 50s and 60s. It's hard to believe that's Montgomery County in those top two pictures, but that's the Willet Branch Creek as it is today in Westbard, and we have a very ambitious project to naturalize that stream and build a linear park. Uh, the picture on the bottom is an aspirational picture uh, from a real park in uh, Mecklenburg County, uh, North Carolina. I think it's called Sugar Creek uh, Stream Valley Park. And it, in its prior iteration, looks something like those two pictures above. Right now, we're in a land acquisition stage, and we have got state funding the last two years to acquire needed parcels of land uh, to develop that greenway. Another very big project, uh, Ovid Hazen Wells Recreational Park, a long time in the making uh, up in the north part of the county. 
um, that is, we, is going to be a destination park ultimately, much like Wheaton Regional Park or Cabin John is in the down county where a family can go spend a half a day or a day doing a variety of different things. Uh, one of the unique historical aspects of this project that's been talked about for decades is the uh, carousel down at Wheaton Regional Park ultimately will make its way up to Clarksburg because uh, when that uh, land was deeded to us up in Clarksburg, it was a condition of the deed that at that historic carousel, which had one time been down on the mall in DC, uh, would be a component of the park in Clarksburg. And that picture on the right is a rendering of what the uh, roundhouse would look like that would uh, house the carousel. This is a park in Burtonsville, uh, we call a park refresher. There's a, uh, in the back of the park, there's some underused and uh, 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 tennis courts at the end of their life cycle. We're going to repurpose a lot of that space for some trending uh, amenities like uh, uh, futsal, pickleball, dog parks. Those are the facilities you hear about quite often that communities want. So that is funded with a state grant that is about to, uh, is in the latter stage of design and will go to construction fairly soon. Uh, and then we have the seed classroom up at Black Hill Regional Park, which will be completed this fall. SEED stands for Sustainable Education Every Day. This will be a place where we can uh, conduct nature classes and programs for the growing community uh, of uh, of uh, Clarksburg and uh, it will be a net zero building in the parks funded by uh, state bond bill and private fundraising. And uh, I'm just, I really tried to show the uniqueness of the different amenities that are coming into our parks. This is Carol Knowles Park, which is right on Georgia Avenue, halfway between here and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, halfway between Silver Spring and um, uh, um, Wheaton. It's it's down that way. You can see where I just pointed. Uh, and uh, this community is embracing as a primary facility some bike, in bike facilities, a pump track and a bike skills track, and they're really excited about it. And uh, we've been pushing this project towards the latter stage of design, and I, I'm really excited about this one because it's not, you know, sometimes communities are not accepting of unique facilities that will bring in people from a little bit of a regional draw, but this community is really rallied behind this. And then wrapping up, just a couple uh, slides that don't really deal with state funding, but just to talk about some of the priorities uh, over the years in the Parks Department. Uh, we've really, for decades now, worked hard to improve the quality of the athletic fields in the county. This is uh, White Oak Recreation Center. It's not our field. It's uh, a county government field that is a component of the new, uh, relatively new White Oak Recreation Center that was built. Uh, the field failed shortly after the county uh, built it, so they asked us to come in because of our expertise, and uh, we converted it to Bermuda grass, and we actually did it over the winter months. If you see the photo on the upper right, those are called growth blankets. They harness the energy of the sun to heat the soil. You can actually grow grass in the colder months, and then, uh, of course, when the fields have less demand and open them up in the spring and summer when the demand is high, and we had a really a great uh, ribbon cutting and success story and that field is holding up uh, very nicely and getting tons and tons of use. And then on the school side, uh, we uh, have been in this business for uh, the better part of two decades. We are almost through renovating all the school fields at elementary and middle schools and taking them under our 
uh, our, our maintenance program, and as you can see from this quote here from one of the principals that, uh, that is uh, of value not only to the uh, students uh, who benefit from those fields, but from the community users who then get to permit them on the weekends and evenings for uh, leagues and sports. Uh, always have to brag about our volunteer program uh, that uh, we have these different groups of people that are passionate about our, par our parks and give their time to us to help us keep the system up. We always uh, put a little monetary value to their work each year to kind of give a little exclamation point to uh, the value. But of course, there's a, there's a lot more value to it than the monetary value. These folks quite often are our strongest advocates when we need people to advocate on behalf of our budget or advocate on behalf of certain legislation. So I just need to give a big thank you to them every year. And then another program I felt it would be good to highlight because just a lot of people don't even know this, that Montgomery Parks is the lead agency for Whitetail Deer Management in the county. It's a very important job, but a little bit of a thankless job uh, because it is such a challenging and daunting task. We, of course, can only really do the management on 11% of the county's land, uh, the parkland. We can't do it uh, on private land, but we've stepped up our efforts each year most recently with adding archery managed hunting to the program. And as you can see, uh, the problem that we have would be much, much worse if we were not conducting this program. And that was it. And uh, I think it was well received. Uh, most of the questions were uh, on the planning side, not on the park side, but at least we got to uh, represent to the delegation a lot of the good work that we do. And I, that's it. And I'd be happy to take any questions. Any questions? Uh, Mr. O'Reilly, um, thank you for your presentation. This is amazing what you guys do in terms of the parks throughout the county. I'm always very impressed. Um, I wanted to ask you just about the three equity areas that you've selected uh, based on, I guess, income, demographics, uh, different socioeconomic characteristics. Um, you mentioned that you do some outreach to let people know what you're planning to do, and um, which is which I think is fantastic. If you can just be a little bit more, I mean, give us a little bit of uh, information in terms of how you do the outreach. Are there any communities or, uh, let's say, um, uh, you know, associations like resident associations that participate? Um, how? I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, people being aware that uh, some of these parks that you're creating, you know, they're defensible space. Uh, there's no issue about, you know, especially small parks that there's uh, any security issues or any, um, you know, if they're right next to a residence. If you can tell us a little bit about the outreach. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to, in a future report, bring uh, our public affairs and community partnership staff to talk a little bit in depth because I probably won't be able to do justice to it. But the short answer is it's really multifaceted and evolving, and I think the most important evolution in our outreach is our staff trying to go to where community members are comfortable. Nice, Dan. Come here. We're, we're, we're trying to go to the community. We're always at events. We have set up tables mm -hmm. at other organizations' events. We have our own events, and we try to have tables there. Um, one, of, one of my favorite things I personally went to uh, years ago was we were doing outreach when the Glenmont Sector Plan was underway, 
and we set up a table at the uh, Shoppers Food Warehouse uh, at the intersection of Randolph and mm -hmm. Georgia, and we brought out a table. We brought out two police horses, and we had a popcorn machine and balloons. And I watched as the families came out from shopping that the children dragged the parents over to the table. That's a good idea. Because yeah. they saw the, the balloons <laughs> and maybe smelled the popcorn. And of course, once the kids dragged the parents over, we kind of got them. And of course, we had people who spoke Spanish yeah. at the table. So uh, I'd love to uh, come back in a future meeting and, and elaborate. There is a lot of uh, technology we use. We use open town halls. Uh, our meetings since the pandemic largely are still virtual because we think that's best. Mm -hmm. There's one tonight on the Long Branch Initiative. Um, and uh, there's multiple uh, public meetings each week. So that, that's the short answer. But I, okay. I, I'm going to come back with Christy Williams and some of her team uh, uh, in a few weeks to be a little bit more specific. Um, well, thank you very much. I think, you know, it's, it's always a good idea. I mean, I see a lot of these parks. Some of these parks are very local. Other parks are more regional. Like you mentioned, some parks attract people from all over the county because of the facilities they have. So it would be good for... Not only, um, you know, everyone have access to the type of information that we're getting here. Like, I, I wish I, I knew where all those parks are to go and, you know, uh, uh, go there and, and enjoy them. But um, I'm just wondering, because we, we spend so much time on both planning and park issues, I wonder whether people know where these parks are. And, and I think technology is a good way of doing it. But thank you very much. And I'm delighted to hear that the kids smelled the popcorn and not the horse. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. Um, so I noticed, uh, thank you for, for your report. Um, I noticed that um, the Long Branch Park that had several different areas of, uh, that uh, noted that, that you're working on. Um, I used to live over there. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, is, were the areas designated separately because this is a phased thing or, you know, you, how, how, is, how would that work out? Because Long Branch, as I recall, there's a swimming pool, there's a rec center, there's uh, some basketball courts, there's a, and, um, you know, and I don't think people use the park very much because, um, you know, there were some safety concerns, yeah. you know, and, and so, um, you know, my, my, so my question is, you know, there's a whole lot going on. I think it's the back of the library and, you know, so, so it, it has the basic setup to be just a wonderful um, uh, area to, to do a lot of different things, you know, to move between the recreation and the libraries. And, and and it just um, at least when I was living there, it just it 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 did not meet its potential in in part because um, I think of the safety concerns. So so I'm I'm wondering, you know, what what's in store for Long Branch? Because you have you have like what three? I think I saw three different areas uh, that mention Long Branch. There there are eight parks in our study area, and I have to give a lot of credit to our former division chief, Jay Cole, who was the chief of uh, park planning and stewardship, who had the light bulb go off for 
for a variety of reasons, we were looking at several of those parks through our CIP, and uh, the equity focus areas were driving that. And uh, Jay, at one point, um, understanding, as you said, there's a comprehensive bunch of issues there, lack of investment in infrastructure. Jay used the term when she came to me about this, that this area is park-rich and amenity-poor. And uh, uh, safety issues, uh, homelessness issues, trash. Uh, the library was a homeless center for a while, and the community was very concerned about uh, uh, that. Uh, there's an initiative at the library to try to use some space there for uh, outdoor recreation. So that's when we stepped back and said we have to look at these as a whole. And at that point, we already had funding to, to work on two or three of these parks. And now the goal is that over the next six years, uh, we really have improved each and every one of these parks, and particularly, as you said, looked at the broader issues of safety, um, interconnectivity, how you get for how they complement each other, how we market them as a system for that community. And, and we as a board approved the acquisition uh, into Long Branch and to that, that one. Uh, yes building so yes for for improving the f that was to uh there's a park that's hidden and it was to open it up and improve access which of course relates to safety thank you very much that was a, a great report and we appreciate all your effort and everybody efforts in the system thank you i think we're Good morning. This is uh, the February 2nd, uh, 2023 
session of the Planning Board. We are on item five, uh, spring semi-annual report presentation. Uh, I think uh, Tanya is leading this one. This will uh, be a joint uh, presentation with myself, Tanya Starr, an acting planning director, and uh, Mike Riley, the director of the Parks Department. Um, I will start first. Uh, so the planning board received the outline for um, for our two departments' semi-annual presentations. We give these to the county council twice a year, um, in the spring and the fall, and we present um, the outline of what we would like to discuss and present to the council, uh, to the board, uh, to get your you know ideas, feedback um, as we prepare for the uh, the semi-annual, which is on March seventh. So starting with the planning department. Um, what I, what I really wanted to do, particularly because we have uh, several new council members, is to start out, uh, you know, with a reminder that our new general plan, Thrive Montgomery 2050, is now adopted, and that is really the, the, the roadmap, so to speak, for all of our plans uh, over the, the coming years, and really emphasizing two important uh, components of Thrive, which is equity and complete communities, which has its own chapter, and is a very important concept um, that informs both our master planning and our regulatory reviews of de development projects with the goal of ensuring that the county will have uh, what we call complete communities, this notion of having uh, a variety of uses, housing, retail services, jobs in close proximity to residents, uh, preferably uh, within walking distance or biking distance, but even if you have to drive, it's, it will be no more than a short drive uh, so that residents can have all of these amenities close to where they live. And so I wanted to start out with that framing uh, about equitable and complete communities uh, to inform the rest of my presentation. And related to that, I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, the planning department's equity agenda for planning. Um, I presented um, and talked about this to the board, uh, I think a few weeks ago. Uh, interestingly enough, I have given presentations on our equity initiative uh, to multiple audiences, but not to the county council. And so I wanted to use the semi-annual um, to talk about that with them, to let them know about how deeply committed our department is to advancing equity in this county, to ensuring that the planning board can um, uh, successfully meet its requirements within the county's racial equity law to consider equity as part of your review of master plans. Um, but really talk about how we do this through um, a lot of different ways. We have different tools that we have developed and are still developing um, equity focus areas is one that Director Riley mentioned earlier. We're also wrapping up our community equity index with the board, which the board will be hearing about um, shortly. Uh, also talking about how we've addressed equity in our master plans. We have internal resources like our equity peer review group, um, and also very much a uh, very critical component is equitable engagement. So talking a bit about uh, how we engage with residents throughout the county um, and make sure that we are um, uh, reaching residents who represent the wide diversity of the county. So I was listening very closely, Commissioner Pinero, to the questions that you asked. Uh, Director Riley about, um, and I believe I've you know shared some of what we've done, but I want to make sure that the council is aware um, of that as well. And then I will uh, go into an update on our projects and plans that we have underway. We have six master plans uh, underway right now. Uh, we also have uh, the amendments to the Historic Preservation Master Plan, which the board will be seeing shortly. 
um, as well as other projects such as our Incentive Destiny Guidelines update and Friendship Heights Urban Design Study that are just uh, kicking off. We have two new master plans that we are launching this year, Clarksburg and uh, Silver Spring Communities Plan. And then I also wanted to talk about um, our development review to give an update to the council. Um, also just provide some background information about how the development review process works in a county um, and also uh, efforts that our department along with our partner agencies and the development review uh, committee and the development community have already undertaken to uh, uh, make that process faster and more efficient. And then um, we we'll also wanted to touch on some special studies and projects such as the no net loss of uh, forest amendments to the forest conservation law. Um, this legislation uh, was uh, introduced by the prior council, but because there's a new council, it was just recently reintroduced and there was a public hearing next week um, on that. Um, our uh, intake and regulatory um, coordination division, they are the the uh, forest conservation law sort of managers for the county, and so they're very involved in that effort, um, as well as for Reforest Montgomery, so I wanted to talk a bit about that to the council, and then wrap up with um, a discussion about our placemaking initiative. Um, we are, as I believe we've mentioned to the board, we're creating a strategic plan um, to guide how our department undertakes placemaking. We've already done quite a number of initiatives already, or uh, projects. Uh, including the uh, Fairland and Briggs Cheney Placemaking Festival that we did last fall, um, as well as some other efforts. But we, this is really the time to create a strategic plan so that we can be uh, very uh, intentional about how we uh, continue to do this work. Um, and then also give them a heads up about our Design Excellence Awards that will be this uh, October and make sure that uh, it's on their radar. Um, I recall when we had the previous Design Excellence Awards two years ago, we did have several council members attend, so we want to make sure that they uh, come as well. And then um, just give an update on our schedule for our uh, approved work program. So um, that is it for me. I'm happy to answer any questions, unless you would like uh, Director Riley to go. Any, any other commissioners? Oh, wait till the oh uh, well, I uh, just a, just a couple of things I, I would note. Uh, n number one, uh, tell them what we're doing with historic preservation once, not in two separate sections, so that we don't repeat ourselves uh, with with what we're doing. Okay. Um, number two, I would emphasize. Uh, our successes in development review, since I think that will be the more ongoing topic than, yes. than, than all of the other things. Um, the no net loss is in their legislative handbook. They're, they're not going to need a briefing or that, mm -hmm. you know, and we're going to be telling them stuff in, in the public hearing and work sessions. I would not do too much on that at all. And, and those are the things that, that uh, I would emphasize or de-emphasize. <laughs> uh, I, I just think we got to go for development review. That, that will be, that's in our heads. It should mm -hmm. be in their heads. Uh, uh, and, uh, and we have a great success story to tell. And by the way, I'll, I'll let the board know, this board, uh, till the end of January, has reviewed uh, almost 2 million square, square feet of non-residential space and 3,800 dwelling units uh, in 96 separate plans. 
So if anybody thinks we're not doing anything, um, they haven't looked at what we're doing. And uh, it, 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 that's your staff who's doing that. We don't, we don't get anything uh, that, that you don't approve stuff, but we, we have to uh, emphasize that in what we're doing in development reviewing on, on keeping the, the process going. I absolutely agree and very much intend to use the semi-annual to share, to share the story about our successes in um, development review and making sure that the county is getting new development uh, you know, reviewed by our department and other departments and the board very um, expeditiously so that the county can benefit uh, from this new development and new housing. So I, that's, so I definitely appreciate uh, the, the feedback and uh, we will very much you know, use this to, to tell that story. Commissioner Sheree. Sheree. Commissioner Sheree, that's good. I like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's easy to remember. Um, the okay, so um, I want to once again put in a plug for um, having what I keep calling Planning 101 mm -hmm. um, on, you know, the website at, and as a part of this agenda because really, you know, my concern is that outreach, um, unless people really understand what, what the uh, legal and, and uh, organizational fundamentals are, uh, outreach becomes sort of just going through the motions. You know, people don't know what they're supposed to be looking for because they don't know what the rules are. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that particularly plays into the equity agenda um, because those, um, because the communities that are traditionally been excluded or have felt excluded and definitely not included in this process are usually the communities that do not have the um, uh, wherewithal um, or, or the, you know, just the, uh, uh, the basic understanding of what the, what the rules of the game are. You know, that's how people get overlooked and um, taken advantage of. They don't know what the rules are. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I really don't think there can be meaningful engagement, because engagement is not just, you know, uh, the department talking to people, it's also people talking back. Mm -hmm. And so if people don't know where they can, in fact, um, insert themselves and, in, and inject their concerns, then you won't have engagement. You'll just have, you know, you'll just have marketing. Um, and, and, and that's the true, you know, that, that's my concern, that the engagement, um, in fact, it can only, to me, be equitable if, if there is some sort of basic um, synopsis of, of what the rules of this game are. And, and that has to be public avail publicly available. And, you know, to me, it should be, you know, it should be on, on the website. And, and if you know, the, the, the council understood that that's the kind of um, public engagement you were, you know, beginning to undertake, um, I think these other things might have a bit more meaning for them. 
I definitely appreciate the feedback. Um, and I know we've had a conversation about sort of a planning 101. I would like to point out that the planning department website does uh, right now include information that explains what master plans are. There's information about the development review process. We're actually looking at um, look, taking another look at that, of, of all that information to make sure that is easy to understand. Uh, one thing that's very, very important to me that even before stepping into this role, when I've reviewed a lot of documents, I always say, can we, you know, let's avoid uh, using planner jargon, especially for public documents. You know, can you explain this in an easy to understand way? Uh, because, you know, we have to be able to make sure that residents understand how important these issues are and uh, in order for them to give us the feedback that can be meaningful for us to do our work. Um, but again, we, we actually do have information on our website about that. Another thing that we also do uh, for community meetings is we actually explain what a master plan is, what the process will be for projects, you know, where the opportunities will be for the community uh, to give feedback, not just at that meeting, uh, but in subsequent stages as well, so that residents understand that. Um, and we also, whenever we do uh, press releases related to, um, you know, newer engagement activities for projects as they're moving along, you know, we always like to emphasize what's coming up next, not just we're having this one conversation. Um, but I definitely, you know, take that feedback uh, to heart, and we can definitely look for additional ways that we can we can emphasize that. Um, because again, I agree with you. You know, there are residents who are very familiar with how things are done and know how to insert themselves and make their voices known, and there are other residents who are just as strongly interested and, and strongly passionate about their communities who may not know. Um, and our job is to make sure that they do know. So we can definitely continue to work on that. Commissioner Pinero. Yeah. Um I really like your presentation. I think uh, you talk very to well. your mic. Oh, oh my! <laughs> it's on. It's in it. <laughs> oh, bring it down. Okay, sorry about that. No, I I just wanted to um, uh, congratulate you. I think you're more than well prepared to uh, to give that briefing. Uh, something I like to echo both what uh, Commissioner Branson and Co and Chair Sion said. I think. Um, the planning 101 uh, is a good idea. We used to do that when I was on the housing board. We would do one-on-one -on -one meetings with the council member, and we called that housing 101, affordable housing 101. So to the extent that not only you involve yourself with the community and explain to them what planning in, in basic terms means, uh, a lot of the particular new council members maybe I mean, they, I know they're involved on land use decisions. That's a lot of what they do. But they need to understand beyond specific um, development, you know, what, what you guys are doing. And sometimes a one-on-one -on -one meeting is a good idea with them. Uh, to, and they get to know you. They get, of course, they, know, they already know uh, the chair. But, um, you know, you, you kind of expose themselves to it. In terms of what Chair Sion is saying, I totally agree that the development review is, is really, really important. I mean, that's the crux of the matter. That's what they're looking for. And to the extent that you can include, prioritize certain projects that they may have more interest in the particular area that they represent or projects that are more noteworthy with photographs or slides, okay, this is what you know, we're proposing in, with, for this in this particular development, I think that always helps, you know, for them to understand 
what you guys are doing, which, like Chair Science says, it's, it's your work. I mean, we're mm -hmm. here approving it, but you're really doing all the work. So thank you. Sure, and, and just um, in response to that, I already asked the team as we prepare for this presentation to give some examples of specific projects mm -hmm. um, and, as well as the timelines. Uh, yeah. One example is the Randolph Road affordable housing project uh, for which there was a groundbreaking very recently, but to bring some, some very specific examples uh, so that we can help to illustrate that. So thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Hill. Um, I will jump in because it kind of feeds off of two of the other subjects. Um, there are a couple of points I wanted to raise, and these aren't so much about how it gets presented to the county, but it seems like an opportunity to just give you some feedback on some issues. You mentioned equitable communities and sort of, I consider that to be what you described to be the maturity of mixed-use implementation in the county, right? Having communities that have all their services, employment, and residences in tight spaces, and we can deorient car development. But it strikes me, and this is um, notwithstanding what Chair Zions just said about the current approvals, which are, which are broad and service all of those. But I've been very concerned in the last decade that with the strength of the housing market and the weaknesses of the commercial and the, and the employment markets, that an awful lot of our development is being converted to housing. And that's undermining the idea that we do have these, these nodes with you know, local things that are there. Um, particularly when we have planned communities where we convert, you know, the, the, the office component to housing, um, which I seem to have seen a, uh, a fair bit of. But I think we need to keep our eye on the ball that there's a longer range thing than just capitalizing on what the hot market is. And I think you guys are, are doing that, but I, I think that's worth emphasizing to the, the council too because they're going to feel the political pressure from developers who, you know, think it's a hot market and that's what they want to do. But we need that longer range vision and discipline to get what the citizens have been sold as the purpose of mixed use. It's not just about density busting, it's about making a new landscape and a new usage pattern that will be better for the environment and better for services and we think a better living circumstance. Um, so I, I, I'm concerned about that. And, um, uh, the other thing I'll mention is, I happened to be at an event this weekend where there was a county uh, health and human services table, and I just stepped over and engaged the person about it, and it was an interesting discussion, and they described quite extensively to me how they're doing outreach, uh, particularly to um, communities that don't, don't come forward often, and their particular concern has, has, is the distribution of medical services and making sure that, but it struck me that there's probably a synthesis there in the outreach, and I don't know if you have any contact with that department, and you know, can, can the lessons learned by each department be better served for the whole county government, because we're all in the county government, and we might as well be capitalizing on the best opportunities, and had to do with translation services, and just how they go about reaching out to uh, particularly minority and economic, socioeconomic communities that, that kind of in the same vein just don't know what's there, so how do you get to them and get their input? Um, and while I'm talking, the last point I just wanted to bring up has to do with afforestation. And I am just wondering how we are doing on places that we can put all these off-site trees that we approve um, so that, yes, we want canopy, yes, we want trees, but I loop back to the environmental presentation we had, I don't know, November, December, that really made the point that the important, an important part of our environmental landscape is that we have all types of ecosystems, not just all of our open fields planted with trees. And um, I know in a different jurisdiction I was involved, that got to be a problem. We had this, you know, afforestation goal, but we were running out of places to plant trees. Um, so, oh, let, you. let me just say one thing about the last issue. 
and and that is at the uh, staff and the prior board's uh, uh, initiative. They introduced uh, or got introduced to council a no net loss provision in the forest conservation changes. Uh, that uh, is coming back to council. There's a public hearing on that next week. Yes, I think. And and uh, we that hasn't gone to this board because the board the prior board already had a decision on it. Uh, it would be too confused if we changed the world a little bit uh, on that aspect. But we're going forward with 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 recommendations on reforestation and and looking at that issue. And uh, mm. it's on the council's agenda okay. already. I guess, I guess my point is that policy and implementation have to line up. Certainly, right. certainly. And uh, we actually have uh, Kristen Taddy and Christina Sorrento from our uh, Intake and Regulatory Coordination Division that can also help to address your question. They are on teams. But I don't, you don't want them addressed now, do you? Or? If, if someone wants to speak to it, sure. Um. Um, sure, I'm happy to. Hi, uh, it's Kristen Chatty with the Intake and Regulatory <laughs> Coordination Division. Um, Commissioner Hill, I, I'm happy to address your, your last question there. Um, so when it comes to finding space for offsite afforestation, um, I'd say we're doing quite well. I think I would attribute that to how we are distributing the um, fee and lieu contributions that we receive and how popular our programs are. So um, all of the fee and lieu payments that we receive go towards the department's five different reforest Montgomery programs, which uh, Tanya mentioned, including in the presentation as well. Um, those programs include reforestation of parkland, um, private properties, and also offering free and discounted trees to property owners. So the free tree and free reforestation programs um, specifically are our most popular programs and there's a, a really good amount of demand there to allow us to continually find space to plant. Um, so I would, I would certainly agree with you. I think it's very important to have a diverse natural landscape and um, a range of native habitats. And we're very careful and considerate of that as we're planning our offsite programming, especially when we're planning reforestation projects on parkland. Um, but we also defer to our colleagues and the experts at parks um, to make those decisions and let us know, you know, when and where reforestation on parkland makes sense. Thank and, you. and of course, the big the big challenge in this whole part is how do we get <laughs> tree structures into urbanizing landscapes, right? So we we need to find every opportunity to do that. Absolutely. There's actually a proposal in the um, no net loss bill that's before the council now that would encourage um, planting of street trees and um, landscaping, including urban tree plantings, um, as a, a mitigation measure. So I think, you know, we're, we're certainly moving in that direction. Thank you. Okay. Um, I guess we're ready to go on to... Uh Parks, although we, we heard a lot of your presentation already, I think. That, that was going to be my opening remark. I got a li long list here, but I can be quick because you just saw most of it. Um, a couple a couple things that weren't there. I'll start at the top. Um, operating budget overview. Uh, we will not have had the county executive's recommended budget yet, but typically in the spring semiannual, we do talk a little bit about uh, what if our budget was fully funded, what would be some of the things that the council would be interested in? So we'll highlight those things as a precursor 
to the executive's budget. So they're starting to think about whether they really want to support some of those things that we call program enhancements, which were uh, things where we're asking for funding. Do we actual, actually increase service delivery in certain areas? And this is in the budget that's already been approved. Uh, the park recreation open space plan, uh, you did see a slide on that. Uh, we're going to uh, highlight the recommendations of the recently approved Wheaton Regional Park Master Plan, uh, which you saw the sports park, but another big, uh, lots of recommendations in that plan, but one of the big ones is improving access, pedestrian and bicycle access through that park. Uh, we will um, highlight the actual events that we will have in our park activation program this spring with dates. Encourage the council members and their staff to attend and market those uh, programs a little bit. Uh, we always include a graphic that we call major CIP delivery timeline. This goes back six months to a year and shows projects we've put on the ground and goes ahead six months to a year and shows projects that we will put on the ground in the next year. And it just gives an impressive display of the amount of uh, projects that we're pushing out. Uh, that will include park refreshers where we go into older parks and communities and upgrade and add trending amenities. We'll have a slide on the Long Branch Initiative, which we just talked about, state and federal grants, which we just talked about. And then uh, park visitation data and trends is a pretty neat slide where we show how we're using te uh, technology that is uh, about cell phone uh, utilization to try to track visitation in areas that... Uh, you know, don't have um, uh, turnstiles or fee-based uh, structure where we can count visitors. This would be, for example, how many people visited Brookside Gardens last year. And it's not perfect, but this technology is really evolving. There's a new company called CityStat, company that's been around that called Streetlight, and they basically sell data that in short form says based on how many cell phones pinged this certain tower, we can give you a good idea about how many people were in a particular place. And they're augmenting their, their data with uh, being able to even tell you uh, zip codes uh, that those phones originated from. So you're starting to get ideas, not only how many, but where the people might have come from that come to your park. And that data is important for so many different reasons, and we have our data analytics team kind of on the cutting edge of seeing how much it can be used. I'll segue to athletic fields, both the projects we're doing in the parks and at the schools. Talk about a couple uh, things on the trails. You heard about the Fairland uh, Bike Park called The Pit. We're also going to highlight a program that we're continuing thanks to the Parks Foundation called the Trail Ambassador Program where we get kids out uh, working on the trail system, uh, learning about uh, riding uh, bikes on the trails, and then at the graduation program, uh, they actually end up with a bike. Uh, we'll highlight some uh, program access issues. The, uh, we had a great uh, mural project at Wheaton Regional Park Playground that we dedicated uh, last year, and then the Montgomery Explorer Program, which is a growing walking program for citizens age 50 and better. I always say it's age 50 and better. Uh, we will highlight some efforts in sustainability, our progress in electrifying our equipment, and our progress on uh, our stormwater infrastructure. We do have our own uh, MDE, uh, Maryland Department of Environment permit that requires us to uh, treat stormwater in our park system where it has not previously been treated and we're making major progress there. Uh, you saw a slide on our volunteer programs. We will highlight that. 
we will uh, brag a little bit about how our enterprise program and funds survived the pandemic. As you can imagine, there were significant revenue losses uh, at ice rinks and tennis bubbles, but I'm so impressed with the management of that program on how they um, maximized revenue and really cut expenses so the fund came out healthy. Still has an incredibly healthy fund balance that's actually going to be able to uh, contribute to building some major new enterprise facilities uh, going forward. And then lastly, two awards you participated in, our Public Affairs Community Partnership Awards in Marketing. And then I'm going to close with the picture of the plane in the high tension wires. And, uh, <laughs> which they'll probably look at and say, why is that your closing slide? And of course, I'll tell them the story behind that. Uh, I thought you were going to tell them it's like balancing the budget. <laughs> it's keeping all of the planes in the air at the same time or something. <laughs> Never mind. That's a, uh, what you didn't mention is that we, we got a grant just yesterday from the federal government on, on park safety and trails for $7.5 million. Uh, I really, uh, uh, yeah, it's brand new news as of yesterday. Uh, our team, uh, it, it, when I saw the good news, uh, I, I had to dust off the cobweb and remember our team submitted that grant. Uh, it is, it is a federal grant for uh, basically Vision Zero type efforts along our down county trail network in Sligo and Long Branch and Matthew Henson uh, to do an array of not only physical work but educational work and analysis to figure out how we're going to really tackle Vision Zero seriously in, uh, in Montgomery County. So stay tuned though, we'll be doing um, some uh, media release on that, and I'll be able to describe it a little more eloquently uh, next week. I'm still digesting it, but uh, some of our um, <clears throat> advocates out there in the community actually beat us to it. I got home last <laughs> night and saw <laughs> some social media posts congratulating us on this, this recent grant. So no, I'll come back great. next time with a little more details. It, it's a great story. Um, Commissioner Hill? Just, just real quick. Um, first of all, um, I admire the technology innovation with the phone usage. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, I, as long as privacy is observed in that, which I'm sure is going on, um, that's, a, that's a nice usage. I also just wanted to admire that getting young people involved in trail maintenance. Uh, I work, have done work with trail maintenance and I always try to get young people involved is developing a new generation of stewards and that stewardship thing may become more important as the population grows and the urbanization happens. Um, so that's a, a great initiative. And I also, uh, I don't know if it's worth mentioning the, the work you're doing with the school system on playing fields. Seems to me to be something that the council might be interested that the two agencies are collaborating together in their specializations and the parks are contributing significantly to the quality of the school facilities. Um, I think that's a good story. I, I absolutely will highlight our work with MCPS, and uh, thank you for the comment on the trail ambassadors. That's why we picked that word ambassador to market the program. And uh, I attended the graduation ceremony, and each of the kids spoke, and it was very uh, clear that it was meaningful to them when they spoke, and whether some of them may have just been motivated to sign up because of a free bike, maybe, but it was clear that at the end of the program, it was more than a free bike to most of these kids. Anybody else? Yeah. Commissioner uh, Brown. I just want to, um, in, in your presentation to us, you talked about the equity focus areas, but I don't see it in your presentation to the council, um, unless it's going to be part of the big, the, 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 the overarching uh, 
the overarching agenda item at the beginning, but I don't see you specifically mentioning how the equity focus areas dovetails with the park, but you definitely, you, I mean, you said that to us. <laughs> and so I'm just saying draw them a line too, you know, those dots sometimes don't get connected all the time. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, because I'm a little confused about um, community gardens. Um, do we do um, this? You, you, you have community gardens here as a major CIP project. And, and I'm wondering if um, there is a, uh, a little more about community gardens that um, you could um, talk about. I, I, guess, I guess what I'm ultimately trying to get to, maybe I should just get to it, is that um, it's Groundhog Day, Jeff? Leave me alone. Um, is that um, a, everything you have here is really lovely, um, but I don't see um, a way that it feeds into the other part of our concern in Montgomery County, which is the ability of people to age in place. And, and so I'm kind of wondering, you said 50 and better, you know, um, it, early in your presentation. And so I'm wondering if there's something here, other than roller disco, of course, because I remember when we did that, um, is, there, is, there, is there a way to sort of bring out um, an activity or an um, initiative, uh, and that's why I was thinking community gardens, that may particularly appeal to people who are, you know, over 60, who, you know, the, the, whole, the, the whole age in place um, uh, initiative? Uh, absolutely. I think I can tie the age in place to uh, some of the projects and facilities, pickleball, trail Trails. expansion, and hot maybe weave that in instead of a unique slide, but just kind of hit that idea that we are focused on serving all demographics, including uh, our aging community. And on the community gardens, what I'll do, the, the one that's under the projects is, is new, and when I highlight that, I'll talk about the program in general and that it is growing and that we, are, we have waiting lists at most of these gardens. And so we're always looking for spots to expand, and we do have additional uh, community gardens uh, in the works. And then at the end, I talk about a component of the program where we're actually donating food to food banks. So I'll, I'll make sure I cover the program comprehensively. Thank you. Commissioner Panero, did you? Yeah, um, let me, I, I, I enjoy your, your presentation and the slides, and I wish you luck in the uh, presentation to the council. Something that Commissioner Branson and also Commissioner Hill mentioned before when he talked about coordinating with HHS and Commissioner Branson now mentioning about the equity areas. Um, let me tell you something that I see all the time, and it also requires maybe coordination with the Department of Recreation. Uh, I live in the Aspen Hill, and I, you know, I see a lot of interest in soccer, football, particularly among Latinos. Um, and whenever I see an open field, I go by and I see people turn it into a soccer field. 
Um, to the ex I don't know who owns those fields, whether they're parks. I don't think so. They're open areas. But this is something that, um, you know, I see that there's, it's, it's a way of outreaching to the community. I mean, they, they, they turn fields into areas that they can enjoy, that they can, the recreation. And to the extent that you can keep your eyes open, because I've seen them on Day Hill, I've seen them on different streets, and I wonder who manages, who owns and who manages, are those just empty, empty, vacant areas that people all of a sudden say, let's take our coolers, we'll have a family gathering there, and we'll play soccer or football, whatever. I just keep an eye open, and uh, there might be an interesting from the council in terms of how you can work with the rec department to uh, kind of identify those athletic, not, I'm not saying that they're athletic fields, but if you see that the community is doing that, to what extent you can piggyback on it and kind of turn it into a kind of an urban park or whatever, I, I'm sure that people are going to love that if that happens. That's it. Thank you. Okay. Any other? Uh, seeing no comments, thank you. Uh, I, I think we'll proceed. Are we? Uh, do we have to stop? Yes. We'll take a pause here again. Thank you, uh, Director. Good morning. It's February 2nd, 2023. It's Groundhog Day, so I'd like to say we're on item one, but we're not. We're on item six, uh, Wheaton Downtown Briefing. 
Um, we have before us Carrie, Carrie Sanders, uh, who will lead this off, yes? Wow, I got a staff name right. Unbelievable. Thank you. If you go ahead. Thank you. Um, appreciate the opportunity to present to you all. One, one other thing I'll say. This is a, a, a briefing. We're not taking any testimony on this. We did get one piece of correspondence that the staff will uh, respond to. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, Carrie Sanders, for the record, Chief of Mid-County Planning. Really um, appreciate the opportunity to present to you today on the Wheaton um, downtown uh, briefing. We, um, the purpose of our briefing today is to provide a foundation of knowledge and information leading up to the presentation of the Wheaton downtown study that we will present to you later this winter. Um, and uh, we don't ask for you to take any action today, but we welcome your questions as we go through our presentation. Um, and really the intent here is to give you a, a lot of information um, so that you uh, have that foundation as we lead into the more detailed presentation of the study later this winter. Um, I did want to, before I turn it over to Jessica McVeary, I wanted to recognize our project manager, Luis Estrada, who has done an excellent job working on this study, um, and, and I'm excited that we'll be able to present it to you later this winter as a result of his good work. So with that, I will turn it over to Jessica. Well, thank you, and good morning. Um, my name is Jessica McVeary, Planning Supervisor for the Mid-County Master Plan Team. So as Ms. Sanders mentioned, we are here this morning to provide a briefing on the Wheaton downtown in advance of our presentation of the Wheaton downtown study later this month. Um, as we'll be talking about both the 2012 Wheaton Central Business District and Vicinity Sector Plan, as well as contextual information for the Wheaton downtown study, we really wanted to take a minute to talk about the relationship among our planning initiatives, including plans and studies. So this graphic should be familiar. You saw it a, a couple of weeks ago with the Great Seneca Plan um, Existing Conditions Report. So we're just showing it again this morning um, because we think it's a very effective graphic. Um, so as you know, we focus on several different types of planning initiatives. Um, and they're all connected, as shown in the graphic on this slide. So the county's general plan, Thrive Montgomery 2050, is the overall foundation for our work, and it informs all successive plans and projects. Um, functional plans and countywide initiatives provide guidance and recommendations across the county on systems and topics such as transportation and historic preservation. Master plans define land use policy for a specific geographic area and set a vision for the future with specific recommendations intended to help implement that vision. And then sector plans include even more detailed um, guidelines for a particular geographic area that covers a smaller portion um, of the master plan area. Um, so the vision of those master and sector plans is then implemented through development review. Studies offer recommendations to answer specific questions or offer potential strategies to advance achievement of a master or sector plan vision. And while studies can identify strategies to further the vision of a master plan or a sector plan, a study cannot amend the vision, the goals, or the specific recommendations of a master plan. Um, it can't, for example, change zoning or right-of-way recommendations. 
So the Wheaton downtown study that we'll talk about um, later this month, uh, it fits into that sort of study guidelines and, and uh, standards category. And as we'll discuss, it, the purpose of the study is really to advance the implementation of the 2012 Wheaton CBD and vicinity sector plan. Luis is going to, um, in the next few slides, give you an overview of Wheaton, including an overview of the Wheaton downtown study um, to provide really that foundation for the study when we come back later this month. So with that, I'll turn it over to Luis. Um, thank you. And um, uh, for the record, Luis Estrada with the Mid-County Division. Um, I'm happy to be here um, sharing this information with you guys. Um, and um, what we're going to do today, as, as Jessica and Carrie mentioned, is, is to provide an overview of, of, of our um, of general planning efforts throughout um, the decades in, in, in the Wheaton sector area um, um, as a preamble um, to the study that we'll be presenting later uh, this month. Um, and we thought it would be necessary and important to get, you know, this is overview um, um, to get everybody to understand um, um, where we are today. Um, um, and, and, and how does that impact the decisions and the strategies that we will be presenting to you um, um, in a couple of weeks um, from now. Um, 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 without further, um, um, Wheaton, um, uh, we just wanted to do a general um, um, introduction to the Wheaton area um, um, by saying that, that it is a specialized urban center. It is a little different from, from the other CBDs um, in, in, in the county. It serves local and, and, and regional retail demand, and, and, and that's one of the primary reasons why it's attractive um, to the communities that surround um, um, the business core. Um, um, it's, uh, it's surrounded by, um, by post-World uh, War II um, housing that is very attractive um, um, to um, a lot of people, particularly newcomers. There's a lot of, um, um, from what we understand, there's younger people coming into the area, and that's reflected in the demographic information that we, that we uh, pulled out at the beginning of, of this process. Um, um, it, is, it is also, um, most importantly, a transit hub and a crossroads. I mean, it is, is transportation is an important part of what Wheaton is today, uh, uh, and um, and and it, it also it also has been um, home to a very diverse group of small businesses uh, over a long period of time, and and those those that those retail options are widely supported um, by the adjacent communities, which are which are socioeconomically diverse and and growing most more so in recent times. Um, Together with, with the wide availability in the area of, of arts and entertainment opportunities, um, Wheaton's character actually has a lot of appeal to the surrounding communities in the area. Next. Um, uh, there has been um, a long and sustained interest um, um, by, um, by the county and by this agency in promoting growth um, 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 in Wheaton. Um, and, and those interests have always pursued combining um, the, the promotion of, of, of growth and at the same time the retention of, of the small business base that, that exists within the area. And, and those are two, the two sides of the conversation that have always played out um, in, in the planning discussions around Wheaton. Um, um, the, uh, there have been a number of planning efforts associated with this area. Uh, over the years. Um, uh, originally, uh, there, there was, a, uh, in 1978, there was a sector plan 
um, done for this area, which was the plan that originally applied the CBD zoning that, that originally existed here. Um, and and before, before going into that, I just wanted to mention that capacity for development has existed in, in the CBD for a long time now, starting with the 78 sector plan. Um, um, uh, the county has, has, over the many years that they have been involved in the area, attempted a number of things to attract development to the area and the reason why we're we're engaged in, in the production of the study that we'll be presenting in a couple of weeks is to figure out ways to further that because the area hasn't developed as much as as we would have expected after all the effort and and, and interest that the, that the county has put into it over the many years um, so um, next slide um, these, these, uh, the, the two following slides are, are the demographics information that we pulled out at the beginning um, um, of our effort over a year ago. Um, uh, and and I, should, I should clarify that, that the data that we're sharing that, that inform this, this pie charts, it's, it's, it's specifically associated to the five census tracts that overlap the boundary of the Wheaton sector plan. I mean, that's, that's the extent of the data that informs this graphics and 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 what what he told us um, when we did this in the beginning is that um, what we mentioned before is that the area is is, is socioeconomically diverse and and is growing more so. Um, um, the um, the Hispanic population is is the is the group that has grown the most um, um, in close proximity to the CBD. Um, um, the um, the Asian and African American populations have remained reasonably stable. And, and, and non-Hispanic whites is the only group that actually has uh, reduced. But um, it, is, it was interesting to get um, 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 the breakdowns on, on, on the, the particular traits of, of, of the demographic um, population in the area. Uh, for example, 15% uh, uh, of the population speaks English less than very well, which is, which is quite telling. 39% uh, of them are foreign-born. 22% um, um, of them are under 18 years old, um, um, and 48% and of the people 25 years or younger have at least a bachelor's degree. So, so, so the newcomers into the area are skewing younger, and they're more educated um, um, as a base. Now, the other thing that I wanted to mention about the information that we're sharing is that we're also working with with um, a, a consultant, an economics analysis consultant that is that is also doing uh, demographic analysis for their portion of their effort. And what they have done is is that they have defined a trade area that that is associated with the Wheaton downtown. Their numbers are a little different than the ones we're showing here, but the the trends are still the same. The, the trends that are coming out of those numbers are still the same. Um, and um, now we're uh, talking about businesses. Um, what we thought was um, the most interesting part of the information that we pulled out is that um, most of the businesses in Wheaton are smaller businesses. Most of them employ uh, nine or fewer employees, and, and the, the vast majority of them uh, has been established within the last decade, these 12, uh, 12 years or so. Um, um, and, and, and the two largest sectors that of employment that we have within um, um, the CBD are, are retail at 17% and, and healthcare and social assistance problem, um, um, services, which, which was something that was surprising to us. But, but that's, that's, um, um, that's, that's where we are. Um, can we go to the next one? 
Then, and as far as pl the planning history, we wanted to do a, a little snapshot of how the area became what it was. And, and um, the area had um, um, subdivisions in the area started mapping out uh, uh, and turning the area into a small retail concentration area as far back as the 1940s. I mean, the, the only large property that was set aside for significant retail um, um, regional retail was the Wheaton Mall property, which was zoned as that back in the 1950s. But, but there was a, a deliberate effort to turn this area into a small retail enclave. And the county over the years that has been, it has been involved in planning for the area has sought to support and, and maintain, you know, that, that small retail base. Um, as and and as uh, uh, as part of the uh, subdivisions, uh, the, those the small uh, business subdivisions basically were the ones that turned the area into an autocentric auto area. As those properties started to develop, they all needed um, parking fronts, and and eventually the area became um, an area that is specifically autocentric. Um, that started to change. The vision of that could be started to change a little bit when when uh, the metro uh, uh, station came into the area and, and the properties around the metro station were able to develop in a different format after the metro station was completed. Um, um, that started to, to help people visualize that there is potential within the downtown core to actually achieve um, um, the, the types of environments that we have in other CBDs in the county. And, and that uh, eventually was followed by the approval of uh, next slide for but but the approval of the 2012 uh wheaton um cbd and sector plan um which was a plan that um actually rezoned um uh, most of the downtown core all the commercial properties within the downtown core to to the newly minted um commercial or residential zones i mean that's uh, uh, and, and the notion for that, even though capacity for development already existed in the area through the CBD zones that were applied within the boundaries of, of the, the central business district, um, the, the commercial residential zones make a more deliberate effort to deliver public benefits as a result of redevelopment. And, and part of the goal of the sector plan was to improve on the conditions in the area, for example, particularly about um, um, environmental features. I mean, there's very little to non-environmental resources within the CBD, and the notion was that improvements on things like like uh, urban tree canopy or, or public open space would be delivered through redevelopment efforts. Um, um, part of the reason why we are here looking at, at the study that where we are is trying to figure out how to further that, um, because you know not enough has happened, as I mentioned before. And one of the, the one of the biggest strategies that the, the sector plan in 2012 used to get there was was zoning recommendations. Um, um, some of the some of the the general recommendations are, are listed on the slide. Um, um, I'm capitalizing on the area's diversity by zoning for mixed use to promote redevelopment to attract customers supportive of the existing retail base. As I mentioned, that's that's the balancing act that we have always been trying to pursue between promoting growth and supporting the existing small businesses in the area. Um, improving connectivity within and beyond the sector plan has always been an important goal. We've always been talking about promoting, uh, promoting great design, particularly since the, the, the commercial residential zones were created, um, um, along with um, the commercial, commercial residential zones, a sector plan started to include 
a design component via the design guidelines um, um, document that became a companion to most of our sector plans. So, so that became an important part of our conversation um, once those were created. And, and as I mentioned, improving the natural and, and built environment um, by promoting uh, reduced energy consumption and the restoration and protection of existing natural resources, particularly through redevelopment. Uh, as, as redevelopment projects came along, then, then improvements came in, and we have had um, a handful of development projects that have happened, uh, have been completed after the sector plan was approved, and most of the improvements that we have seen um, uh, to the public domain have been in connection to those developments. Next. Um, and the zoning recommendations um, that were included in this sector plan were significant. I mean, we added uh, a, a fair amount of density and height um, to the commercial properties within the core. Um, uh, and as a difference from um, the way the CBD zones were applied um, by the 78 sector plan, we expanded the application of the CR zones a bit beyond the boundary of, of the actual CBD, which is a contained area within the sector planning area, because we wanted to be able to expand the implementation of, 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 of public benefits to other areas, particularly along the highways that surround the Wheaton core, uh, fronting on University Boulevard, or, or the, the partial rezoning of, of the Wheaton Mall properties so that we can encourage development along, along their frontage on, on Rears Mill Road. Um, next slide. We have, well, we included height, what we believe was sufficient height um, to promote um, significant development within the area, and the notion was that the combination of those two elements would eventually promote assembly of, of a lot of the smaller properties uh, were feasible so that we could bring in um, um, improvements to the area. Next. Um, and these, uh, this just shows uh, a few of the projects that have been completed after the sector plan was approved. It's important to mention that that some of those projects um, actually were approved before the sector plan um, was completed. The two, the two images on, on the left of the string, um, the Solaire building and, and the arrived Wheaton building, which is um, fronting us in Georgia, um, those were approved and, 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 and began construction before the sector plan was um, completed, and, and they were constructed under the provisions of the zoning that was already in place. Um, the Solaire was a zoning case that, that rezoned the property from R60 to, I believe it was TSR, um, to allow the construction of multifamily, and, and the Arrive uh, building was built under CBD zoning. Um, the two next images, you know, the, the George and, and the Ava building, were buildings that were actually built after the sector plan was approved, and they were built under uh, CR regime um, kind of zones. And, of course, uh, our headquarters um, uh, was completed in 2020. And, and, and it's an example of the types of investment that the county has been making within the Wheaton sector plan area to promote and attract more development to the area. Next. Now, one of the, the bigger challenges that we've had um, in, in trying to understand where development potential sits within, within the CBD, it's, it's ownership. Um, um, the clusters where, where smaller businesses are concentrated today are, for the most part, uh, consisting of a number of smaller properties that are many individually owned. Um, um, within those, those, those groups of properties, there are um, um, clusters of properties that are on, 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 um, owned by, by various entities. And what we see in this image is 
the, the colors that we have highlighted are, are the various groups that own um, sections of those blocks within, uh, within the, the, the small uh, business area. And what we have done um, as part of the study is to, to engage with those property owners to try to understand whether there is actual any kind of development potential within areas that may be small, but at least don't face the, the, hurdles, or the hurdles of assembling property together. Um, um, the paths are small. And, 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 and to, um, to that effect, what we have done is that we engaged um, um, two consultants um, um, that are helping us with, uh, with economic analysis and with architectural um, 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 studies to understand what would be the limitations of developing something in such a small group of properties and, and whether incentives can be provided so that, so that development of a scale other than a significantly large building could happen in certain part in certain parts of Wheaton. That's part of the information that we will be sharing with you when we come back later this month. And then uh, what we wanted to do now was to basically share, um, um, show you so you can see where development has happened to date and, and, and highlight properties where we think development potential exists. Um, this first slide, the properties that are highlighted in blue are, are the properties where development has happened um, um, within, the, like, within the last probably 20 years. Um, um, and, and these are, in, in many ways, you know, part of uh, the, the image that we shared before, Solaire is down at the bottom here. Um, this large block in here, for the most part, is the block of buildings east of Georgia Avenue that, that, that occurred after the, 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 met, the Wheaton Metro Station was constructed. The, the George, which is a building that happened after the sector plan was approved, is within that block. That's an office conversion that added floors to an old office building and converted it into a rental um, um, residential building. The arrived building where the Safeway um, grocery store is located is here. Um, there's a group of townhomes that occurred in Grandview that that was approved um, in the early 2000s. Um, it's already constructed. Um, and, and that's the, this is the Ava building, a rental property that it's uh, on Blue Ridge Avenue on the northern end of, of the CBD. Uh, and of course, our own building, which is um, right in the middle of Wheaton, and that was completed in 2020. Uh, next. And, and these are properties that have, um, as we see it, near-term potential um, um, for some kind of significant, uh, we call it transformative, um, development. I mean, the property that is in the corner of, of, of uh, Beers Mill and University has already uh, scheduled an approval for uh, 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 multifamily housing, um, and that, that scheduling was approved in, in May of 2022. Um, the property on, on the north side, um, that's, that's a combined ownership between um, the Parks Department and um, um, the uh, Montgomery Housing Partnership, MHP. Um, um, there, uh, originally, the property that is owned by the Parks Department was originally owned by WMATA. It was acquired by the Parks Department with the interest of developing a park facility on the northern part of the Wheaton CBD. Um, in 2019, um, after they acquired this, they engaged uh, Montgomery House in partnership to, to, and to entertain a land swap that would allow them to develop the park in one of the MHP holdings that is more central to the residential community. And, 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 and then what they, what they did is consult, suggested that development by, the new development by MHP would be consolidated on the larger parcel that would include a portion of MHP-owned property plus the parks 
um, um, facility owned apartment. And then, and then the triangle piece that you have in here, which is currently occupied by apartments that are owned and managed by the Montgomery Housing Partnership, will become the public park facility. That, that development is it's being studied right now. Um, uh, and then, and then we have also been in conversations with uh, with Womara about about potential for development on their properties on the southern part of the Wheaton Triangle. They they own the property that, that where the bus depot is located today, plus the parking garage that is within um, 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 the Westfield property. And and they're doing their due diligence to understand whether you know development potential, what's feasible, what is not. In their property right now, they don't have any concrete plans yet. But you know, they're, they're, they've talked to us about about potential um, a number of times. Next, um, the county also owns property within um, um, the the Wheaton CBD, um, and, and the properties in purple are the properties that are all owned by the county. Out of all of those, there are four um, surface parking lots that that were uh, the subject of of a letters of interest request um, by the county earlier uh, last year um, um, to potentially develop them as as affordable housing um, uh, we understand that that each one of those four properties uh, received interest and 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 they're they're um, the agency that controls the property the department of transportation the county department of transportation now is managing the follow-up to that process so hopefully some small-scale development will come out, out of this that will be inserted into the areas where we want improvements to happen. Uh, next. And then um, um, the properties in yellow that we are highlighting are properties that we, that we see as having potential. The smaller ones, um, North University, we feel that they have potential because they're, they're clusters of smaller properties, but as we mentioned before, they're all under single ownership. So they don't have to deal with the hurdles of assembling um, the property by acquisition, so we think there's potential there. We have been actually in conversations with the owner for at least one of those groups uh, of properties. And then, and then there is um, the section of, um, of the Westfield Mall that was rezoned to CR zoning uh, as part of the 2012 sector plan. Um, um, we think it has a lot of potential. Um, 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 for development, and we understand that they are actually exploring alternatives. Um, um, they don't have any definitive plans yet um, um, to, um, to share publicly, but they have been um, looking at that. Next. And, and lastly is, is the, the cluster of smaller properties that I was talking about at the beginning of the process. I mean, this, this, is, this is the core of the Wheaton downtown. I mean, this is in many ways uh, uh, the reason why a lot of people like coming here, they like the offerings out of all those small businesses. And, 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 and it is, as I mentioned, a balancing act. Um, um, how do you promote improvements and, and to the public domain and still retain the character um, um, that people come, come to Wheaton looking for? Um, so that's, that's part of the challenge um, in dealing with that sector. Um, next. But then, um, and there's also been, um, um, this is all, this whole discussion has been about private investment and, and, and redevelopment, but the county has also spent um, um, a lot of effort in, in, in building facilities within um, um, the vicinity of the Wheaton downtown area, uh, again, in the effort of, of making the area more attractive to attract um, development interest. I mean, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Wheaton Library and Recreation Center is a great example of, of county investment directly across the street from that. Um, it's is the, um, the new building for the Volunteer Rescue Squad 
which was also county investment, um, our own facility here together with uh, Mayor and Friar Tom Plaza at right directly across the street delivered a significant public open space um, um, which, which is badly needed um, um, in the area. And there's also um, transportation improvements that are happening in the area. The county is, is, is um, there is a, a separated bikeway that is, that is fairly far along in design and will be constructed on Amherst Avenue. Uh, and there's another one that is being um, um, already in the process of being designed on Grandview Avenue. There's two parallel ways to Georgia Avenue to move um, cyclists in a, in a safer way um, through the CVD. Um, there's also some, there's also the discussion about BRT related to uh, Viewers Mill Rail, uh, um, and that is also on the way. And then there's a pilot program um, to actually uh, uh, install um, um, dedicated uh, bus lanes leading from University Boulevard to uh, the, the bus depot um, downtown Wheaton that will be coming shortly. So those are examples of the types of investment that the county is making to improve uh, the area. Again, you know, hopefully to make it more attractive to, um, to development interests. Next. Um, um, and, and just to summarize, I mean, uh, there are, um, the area has um, a lot of strengths um, and, and it also has a lot of challenges. Um, 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 so we, we list here um, a number of, of, of uh, uh, items that we think are strengths for the area that, that, do, that could actually attract development. Um, um, it, has, it has great regional accessibility. Um, 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 it, high quality transfer, transit and vehicular connections are, uh, are, are really good and, and connect very quickly to other important centers within the county. It has a very unique character. Um, which we have mentioned before and that a lot of people love and, and would like to see maintained. Um, uh, it supports a diverse retail and restaurant offerings that are very supported by surrounding communities. Um, it has a lot of development potential. It always did. Um, um, it continues to have it um, um, via um, the, uh, the planning efforts and all the rezonings that have been implemented over the years um, as part of our sector planning efforts. Um, there is county interest in, in, in getting the area um, to grow and move forward, um, and the county has actually demonstrated that by investing um, um, in, in facilities within the area. And, and there are, um, as I mentioned, um, anticipated infrastructure improvements that are coming um, in the form of, of, of BRT connections and, and, and bikeway facilities. And, and, and there's also discussion about improving some of the crossing points um, um, between districts along some of the major highways that cross the core of, of, of Wheaton. Next. But there are challenges. There are. Um, um, the, ma the major roadways, for example, that, that become a source of a quick connection to other areas are, are a real hurdle to pedestrians. I mean, there are actually sort of kind of rivers or cars that actually are very difficult to cross and, and that separate all the districts that were identified um, by uh, the 2012 sector plan. Um, um, comfortable pedestrian connections between the surrounding communities and the core is also another source of concern. We've heard a lot about that from the community um, uh, in, in, in talking about how hard it's sometimes to get from one of the surrounding communities to the center of Wheaton if you just want to walk to it. Um, public open space is, is something that always comes up in, in, in the conversations we have with the community. Um, um, they want more open space. I mean, they're happy with the, um, with the plaza that, that this project that our, our headquarters delivered, but they feel that the area needs a lot more. And, and they wondered where is it going to come from and where is it going to land. 
And, and, and overall maintenance is something that, that is a subject that has come up. There's, in general, sort of a lack of, 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 of private investment in, in improving and maintaining smaller structures. Um, and and um, that's, that's another concern that has been raised um, as part of the outreach that we conducted. Next. And this is a graphic that, that was produced by one of our colleagues that are working on, on the pedestrian master plan, and we wanted to use that to highlight um, um, the, the pedestrian connectivity issues that we're having. And if you look at, at, at this graphic, all the lines in red are areas that are considered um, undesirable areas for pedestrians. And, and within the core of Wheaton, there are many. There are many. And, and, and improving those is, is a priority um, um, for uh, the residents that have actually come out to participate in, in, in the events that we put together to hear from them. Um, and and uh, next, and then uh, this is this is just to summarize what what we have done, what our process have been. Um, um, uh, the overview that that we have shared of of Wheaton today is is information that we have collected um, um, as part of of of, of the um, uh, the preamble work that led um, to the study, and and it's, it's a number of different sources. I mean, first there's staff. Um, work that happened before we actually engage the public. Then, then there is um, community input. We had a number of events and, and and ways of actually collecting information from both residents and and, and property owners. And and we also had um, consultants that supported our effort um, to help us sort of steer um, um, the, the strategies in a sort of realistic way. And 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 that's that's sort of the combination of sources that led to the presentation that we're going to be sharing with you uh, in a couple of weeks. Now, as part of our outreach, um, we, um, uh, um, the, uh, we engaged a number of organizations from, from the beginning um, just to get some feedback. We started, um, of course, with uh, entities that are um, um, involved with the discussions about development in Wheaton, like the Wheaton Urban District Advisory Committee. We presented to them um, in a couple of occasions, and, and they have been really good in, in steering us um, in, in various directions and people that we should be talking to. We also have spoken with property owners and, and, and with organizations that are involved in, in supporting small businesses um, in the area. Um, we have also spent time talking to um, our public agency partners uh, um, um, to, to um, understand um, um, better where our strategies should be going um, um, so that we can be uh, in sync with efforts that they may be conducting at the time. And, 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 we, and we have a list here of the things, um, the events that we organized, but I wanted to mention that, that our point of departure um, um, for um, the discussions that we had with the community was based largely on, on a forum that was held on 2018 by the Wheaton Urban District Advisory Committee in, in which they um, um, gathered the community to sort of prioritize and, and focus their recommendations on the sector plan to prioritize implementation. And, and, and that was a forum that was organized in three parts. I mean, they, they actually put out a questionnaire to the community. Then they had um, um, a community input session. And, and then they had a, a, what they call a decision makers forum where they actually presented um, um, the, the priorities that were identified by the community to those who were in charge of making decisions uh, about the area. And, and that effort produced a number of priorities that served as, as largely the base 
of, of our point of departure for organizing um, our uh, outreach efforts. And then um, we have been um, out in, in, in community events, um, um, I'm putting tables and, and gathering information. We had two um, open houses, one, one in person, one virtual. And, and the information that was um, uh, shared in those open houses was also shared um, um, online, and, and we um, um, asked for comment, additional comment from um, um, from, from from residents. And 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 what we have heard um, is largely in the lines of of the priorities that that came out of the 2018. Um, um, uh, forum and and that forum actually at focus in, in three specific areas um, um, of action they they uh, they summarize their priorities as as being administration connectivity and public open space administration um, to, basic, to basically develop a system of accountability and and provide resources needed so that so that the vision of the sector plan could be uh, uh, implemented um, about connectivity the main goal was to improve pedestrian mobility and develop a sort of multimodal transportation plan that will reduce congestion and improve mobility throughout um, the downtown area. And, and, and public open space is a big priority. I mean, they wanted to, they suggested developing a plan that identified, you know, how open space could be improved and spread out throughout the downtown area. So, so, um, so those, uh, those priorities um, came out, again, loud and clear when we did our own um, outreach process, and that's largely been the base um, for the strategies that you will be um, hearing in a couple of weeks next. Um, and that's, um, that's sort of all we have. Um, um, the next, our next steps is, is to come back um, to you um, in a couple of weeks with the, uh, the strategies that will be included in the study, and, 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 and later this year transmitting and briefing um, county council on, on those strategies. So um, with that, um, I open to questions. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, a lot of good work in there. Um, do I? Yeah, let me ask uh, uh, oh. Luis a, a couple of questions. Um, I agree with you that what we need is private development. I mean, we have to preserve what we have but not increase. I've always been, when I was on the housing board, I was against developing more affordable housing in this area. Because we have, when we look, this is an equity area, just like Gaithersburg and Long Branch. What we need is more diversity. And uh, when I talk about diversity, you also have to think about the schools. The schools are becoming majority, minority. Uh, and that people think about it. And I've talked to many families that have said, I'm not moving to Wheaton because of the schools. Uh, so we have to think, of, that's why I always think that we have to look at the issue of equity as an overall county issue. Areas that are, um, areas that don't have enough diversity should have diversities. Areas that have too much diversity we should be looking at private development. How do you accomplish that? It's, it's difficult. I mean, you know, you, you've brought up a number of issues like, you know, where do you do the development? When I was at HOC, uh, we turned down uh, the ambassador apartment, which was an SRO. 
single room occupancy. It was a, it used to be a Holiday Inn hotel, and we intentionally brought it down because we wanted to do a mixed income development, just like we did at um, at uh, Metropoint right here. I mean, you look at that was a major headache dealing with Wamara. I mean, the cost just went through the roof. We had to go back to the county to get bond financing for that project. And it, it, it was very difficult. I know we're thinking about other airspace here on uh, dealing with Wamara, so good luck on that. Um, but, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I think we need more private development more market type of housing, uh, more commercial, more office, more, you know, assisting some of the small businesses. But the equity areas have to be treated not as an areas that, okay, we need more affordable housing. We need more affordable housing in areas that don't have affordable housing in the county. Uh, that's my opinion. Okay. And, and we'll hear more about this from the study. Right now, they're presenting us the definitely, existing conditions. Definitely. So. I just wanted to, I, I enjoy your presentation. I really like the fact that you're um, in favor of more development for, for Whedon. Um, I think, um, you know, we need to, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know much about the HOC properties or the MHP, but I'm glad that they're moving forward. I know when I was at the board, we decided, you know, on that project on Verse Mill and University to tear it down and to negotiate with the uh, car dealer next to it um, mm -hmm. to try to do something bigger. So I'm glad that that's happening, um, and uh, I look forward for your plan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Commissioner Branson. Hi. Yeah, my question is kind of short. I'm trying to figure out. Uh, I'm looking at your your map here on um, the capital improvements program, uh, where you have the planned transit, bikeways, mm -hmm. art center, yada yada. Okay, um, so um, as I look at that, you know, when it comes to these bike lanes, um, one thing I really I understand, you know, the policy, you know. Um, I'm wondering, since, since we are in the you are in the study phase, whether or not there is some kind of bike census that happens. I mean, do, do do you all study like how many people are riding bikes and what hours and you know what's the you know because um, I know that a lot of people think these bike lanes are just a big old pain. Okay, and so so I'm trying to understand you know as we are you know thinking about it looks like from this expanding them or making you know making more of them i'm wondering if if the the um studies you undertake can also involve i guess I, what i can only call a bike census you know to to figure out the um the necessity the what what's where the bikes are being used. I really can't tell from this map because I'm just not good at maps, where the metro is on all this because it doesn't seem like we got bike lanes rolling through the metro. Jeff is going to help me. Okay, so <laughs> so, so it's, there, there's, a, there's one huge bike lane that uh, 
that doesn't seem to go near the metro. So so I'm just trying to figure out this bike lane thing, okay? And, and I guess what I'm asking you to do is to please gather a bit more information on the usage of the bike lanes um, because I, I'm just not, um, it, it's not, it's not adding up to me as far as what's um, necessary and, and what is actually good for most people. Um, that's, that's my two cents worth. Thank you. If I may, we're, we're going to get uh, the pedestrian bikeway plan before us uh, in a little bit. Well, if, uh, I can, if I can clarify, there's two different plans. There is a bicycle master plan that was already approved and adopted in 2018 that already identifies locations in a county where new bike facilities should be, um, should be installed. Uh, so this effort is informed by that, which is, has already been adopted. Um, the pedestrian master plan is what the board will be getting very shortly. That's focusing specifically on pedestrian facilities. Thank you. Uh, and that's and Tanya Stern for the record, acting <laughs> planning director. I mean, to some de degree, our, our bike uh, aspirations are aspirational right. to create an entire environment where biking is, in fact, welcome. And you can't do that uh, a little bit out of the time and say, well, there's nobody on it. We shouldn't do a bike. So we're, we're planning for all modes in the future in conformance with the Thrive uh, uh, general plan. Exactly. Um, right. No, I understand that. I understand that, you know, okay. on some level it is if you build it, they will come. But guess what? Maybe not. That's right. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, I, I just think facts are important to inform aspirations. That's and, and that that's sort of what I'm requesting. Got it. On, on a bike system, I would just observe that it's a chicken and egg problem, and in a way, the system is only as strong as its weakest link. Because to get from one place to another, you experience that as something unsafe, so you don't do it, um, and that's that's the dilemma. A couple of things. Um, first of all, I just wanted to make the observation. You you mentioned this, but it seems to be the road connections for Wheaton are unusually good to all the nodes around it, and that's the car centric background undoubtedly influencing what's here but I really like the synthesis of that road network meeting metro here and I think that's a real strength in this particular area um, I originally read the emphasis about natural resources and I happened to be on the 14th floor of this building and I was standing at the window thinking what natural resources it looks like seas of concrete but I think you address that as the desire to establish more and I would think verdancy is a particular issue for, for residents in the area, right? Mm -hmm. Green spaces and the freshness that brings is, is something that this area particularly cries out for in my eye. Um, I'm concerned about the viability of the mall, right? We've, we've lost White Flint, Lake Forest just closed. There's grumblings about whether Montgomery Mall may close, which is also Westfield site. And I think that's a critical element economically to this area and, and also a very large physical piece of it. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's being looked at a little bit about do we expect that has long-term viability or has retail just changed to the extent that people don't want to come to an indoor mall anymore um, is, a, is a critical question going forward here. But let me stop for a minute and see if you have any comment about those things I'm throwing out quickly. <laughs> now, we've, we've had conversations with, uh, with the Westfield folks and, and, and our understanding is that they're exploring the potential on, on the areas that were rezoned by the 2012 sector plan. That's, that's, that's where um, um, the mixed uses are possible and that's where um, um, 
their potential sets. I mean, they haven't indicated that there will be any changes to the rest of the property, and 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 I don't know that we can speak to um, to the the health of of the rest of the retail offerings in the property. But we can certainly try to have that conversation yeah. with them. I, I can I can also note in those conversations with Westfield, they have noted. Um, some of the other projects they've done in Montgomery County as well as across the U.S. where they have redeveloped their mall sites to incorporate a mix of uses um, to add housing. And so uh, you may be familiar with the Montgomery Mall site, which came before the previous planning board for an approval, and um, that involved that very business strategy that they're applying across the U.S., which involved adding more housing to the mall site. So we don't have a submission for for the Wheaton Mall, but we do understand um, when they do redevelop, it will be that area that you see on the screen uh, that says midterm potential. That will be where their focus will be, mm -hmm. uh, because that is the area that has the the zoning potential for them. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful for Wheaton Mall a little bit more because because it is cent more centrally located. The road networks come for regional activity, not just local, and the density of the population here is greater. And I think those are properties that White Flint and, and Lake Forest and even Montgomery Malt don't enjoy to the same extent. So, um, but I think that's a critical question. Um, are we overparked in Wheaton? Um, you know, it's, uh, I see a lot of parking lots. I see a lot of empty parking lots when I look at, again, looking out the window. Is, is that a, a matter that we should be looking at here? That's that's a very good question, and 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 it all depends on on, on who you ask. <laughs> um, um, we have, <laughs> if you if you speak to um, small business owners, they'll tell you that they don't have enough parking, that they need um, uh, facilities that are in close proximity to their businesses, so that they can actually have parking for their staff, so they can receive deliveries and all that. And and um, but if you speak to um, 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 Entities like like Huamara, who is like doing their due diligence to try to understand whether the development is feasible, they'll tell you that the delivery of, of parking facilities um, per code is is one of the things that makes it hard for them to um, um, get things to pencil out. So um, so we part uh, one. I mean, we'll come back with you uh, uh, um, with this when we come back with the study. But the, one of the strategies that we're listing in there is that we're recommending that. That 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 district-wide uh, parking um, um, analysis is done, um, so that we can entertain alternatives that can help everybody um, um, meet their needs. Um, we don't know what the results of a study like that would would be, but um, but at least we're recommending that that it be done. Yeah. Um, another observation I just like to make is, um, you know, Wheaton strikes me as as a distinct place that I think is good. Um, I'm not sure I agree with Commissioner Pinero that too much diversity is bad. Um, I think we're trying to gain diversity around the county in general, but I do really support his point about equity of facilities, and that's something that we really need to focus on. Um, I think a, a large component of this is market affordability, and not just in the housing, but also in the businesses. Right? I'll, I'll note that our, our correspondence very, very briefly summarized sort of says, why isn't Wheaton like Bethesda? And you know the history is obviously very different, and I'm not sure it should become like Bethesda. I think you know I I 
you know, yes, maintenance issues about the upkeep of some of the, sto the small storefronts and all. But I think that is excellent that we have local businesses owned by individuals and a lot of diversity in those. Um, I think one of the things that comes with the upscaling of certain places is the fran enfranchisement of it, the franchised <laughs> nature of those businesses that are big and they're expensive because mm -hmm. only deep pockets can afford them. And I'm glad that we have the, the diversity of small businesses. You know, I think that's a real uh, strength of this particular location that really identifies Wheaton. So I just wanted to make that as a statement. And, um, and, and in fact, I'm also interested that we have sort of the mall, the regional retail here, and then all the small retail coexisting. Um, I think that's also a good, a good texture for Wheaton. Okay. Uh, Commissioner Presley, uh, we see your hand. Yes. Um, I, I think, first of all, kudos for having come this far with Wheaton. I was part of the original, um, you know, planning back then. It's always been a struggle to, tr you know, to get the mix and the balance right. And one of the things that was very clear from the residents uh, and the small business owners was trying to preserve that. And so I agree with Commissioner Hill. That's, um, you know, preserving that type of diversity. Everything doesn't need to be a Bethesda. This has its own unique character that should be preserved. The one concern that I have, you know, based on <clears throat> based on the research that's been done about, you know, needing more housing and, and less commercial and less retail, well, in some ways, I wonder if we need to have a, uh, I guess I would call it a, just like an ag reserve, I wonder if we need to have some sense of commercial reserve because once things are all housing, like how do you go back and add commercial when you need it? Um, I think that's a struggle and I don't know, like nobody's got a crystal ball, but ha what kind of thought is being given to preserving certain areas for future commercial? Oh, that's a very big question. <laughs> uh, uh, does staff want to say anything about that or? I think that's a really all the points that the commissioners have made have given us some some good thoughts to think about, um, particularly as we embark on some of our larger countywide efforts. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, I don't have a an answer as it relates to Wheaton for you today, but it's something we can reflect on as we come back and and report to you in a few weeks. And I, I think countywide, it is something that we need to think about. One of the benefits of our CR zones is that we allow commercial and residential. Some areas in the region actually don't have zones like that and are having to do a lot of rework in terms of their zoning to allow um, conversion to residential where they had commercial. So at least we have mm -hmm. that asset in the county and that we have these zones that are flexible in our central business districts and by metro typically. Um, so, but I do think that's a really interesting point and something we can dig into a bit more. And then going back to what Commissioner Branson was asking about the bikes, I think it's really important because I know, you know, we've had such a big thrust, um, you know, when Casey was chair and all of these, uh, you know, even before then. Um, but what kind of follow up are we doing to see how those bike paths that have been implemented, how, you know, what is the usage we're getting out of those? And uh, as Commissioner Hill stated, that some of it has to do with whether or not there are safe crossings all the way through, because if it's only partial, people aren't going to use it. But in areas where we already have, uh, you know, connected bike, bike paths, are we following up to see what the usage is? And can we, can we even get a report on that? Uh, I think that's something that we can certainly take a look at. Uh, we'll need to bring in our countywide planning and policy staff um, and also MCDOT and others 
to see if that type mm -hmm. of data has already been collected. Um, uh, but it's, it's a good question. Let us look into it and we can, we can come back to you. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, commissioners. I, I think that, thank you for the presentation. We appreciate it and we appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you very much. We're pausing now to go to our next. We're pausing now.
good, good afternoon, actually. Uh, this is the February 2nd, 2023 session of the Planning Board. We are on item 7, Administrative Subdivision Number 6, 2023-0010, Donner Property. Uh, this is a public hearing and we have speakers for this. Uh, two, two people signed up in advance. I'll allow the, the additional person who wishes to speak. Uh, when you get to it, you'll have about three minutes uh, and I'll let you know. Uh, first, we'll hear from staff, then we'll hear from the speakers, then we'll hear from the applicant. If that's okay with everybody, let's proceed. Good afternoon, for the record, my name is Amy Lindsay with Mid-County Planning, and I'm here to present Administrative Subdivision Number 62023-0010, Donner Property at Gray's Lane. Staff recommendation for this application is approval with conditions as enumerated in the staff report and modified herein. Now this is an administrative subdivision plan which can generally be approved uh, by the director uh, and the administrative subdivision plan is only applicable under uh, certain circumstances. In this case, it is for up to three lots for detached houses in any residential zone. And the planning board must determine that the layout of the subdivision is appropriate given the location type of development contemplated and that the master plan is conformed to, public facilities are adequate, and that forest conservation law and stormwater management is met as you would with any subdivision plan. It's just that this plan meets the uh, requirements for being an administrative subdivision plan. It is being heard by the planning board at a public hearing because we did hear from the community and felt it was important that this have a public hearing. The site is located in the Kent Mill community. The Kent Mill community, um, the subject property is shown here with the red star, is, is very centrally located. You see the Georgia Avenue corridor to the west with Wheaton and Glenmont, and then the New Hampshire corridor to the east with White Oak and Colesville. Kent Mill is, um, you know, midway in between, and it's uh, a primarily residential community. You can see the big green spot in the center right next to the red star is Wheaton Regional Park. Zooming in on the site vicinity, you can see that Kent Mill Road is here and that Gray's Lane intersects Kent Mill Road at the corner of Kent Mill and Gray's Lane is the Kent Mill Synagogue with the Wallerstein Mikvah and that this area is within the 2001 Kent Mill Master Plan. Even though you see a variety of lot sizes, Everything you see on the screen is in within the R90 zone, and it is directly adjacent to Wheaton Regional Park. And you can also see Odessa Shannon Middle School, which has been recently uh, rebuilt just at the um, south of the um, slide. 
So the, the property is 2.2 acres in size, and it is served by public water, but it is on septic, which we will explain a lot more shortly. It's within the Northwest Branch watershed, which has a number of properties that are all uh, larger lot and on septic as you run east towards the Northwest Branch. The property is predominantly forested with uh, the much larger forest continuing from Wheaton Regional Park, 2.24 acres. So there's only 0 0.04 acres of the property that is not forested, and that's directly um, near the Grays Lane. There is a people's choice path that um, runs from Wheaton Regional Park uh, to Gray's Lane. Um, it is not improved. It is a dirt path. And you can see that um, camps that use the park have actually constructed um, some interesting shelters on, on this private property because it, there's no demarcation right now to, to show you that this is not part of the park, park property. Access to this property is along Gray's Lane, which part of Gray's Lane is publicly owned and has been improved to county standards. And to the west from that red line, Gray's Lane is privately owned. And it is not in, um, normally when we have a, a private road, it is within its own parcel. It's got, um, it was set up through the development process. That's not how uh, this occurred. So there is a 15-foot right-of-way um, owned by WSSC within the private um, right-of-way of Gray's Lane. And that's what provides public water to the pro properties. Now, that's not wide enough. Uh, to also um, include a, a sewer line um, so that it, it is not possible to upgrade these properties to public sewer. So I'm just going to walk you down um, Gray's Lane so you get a, a sense because, because I think this will really help you um, understand this application. So here we are at the corner of Gray's Lane and Kent Mill Road. And as we walk forward, that was the public portion. So here's the transition. This is the, the entrance to the mikvah. And uh, there are a couple of signs right there letting you know that it's not publicly maintained further on and that there is not a public entrance to the park, which we'll also get to. So you can see here's the beginning of the private portion of the road. And as we move further on, at this point, it is asphalt, but you can see how um, the road gets significantly more narrow. And at this point, it is gravel, um, still well-defined, but um, definitely more narrow. And finally, this is uh, essentially how the road ends is at the subject property. 
So there's no access to the school from that road right now? Right now there is not, okay. and there, there won't be at the end of this application either. Uh, maybe in the future, but so Gray's Lane was um, set up through a 1933 will that was recorded uh, in the land in the the um, will records book HGC five and page 431. And Mr. Gray, um, at that point in time. Land could be subdivided by deed. So he set up uh, these parcels with a private road for the use of, of the property owners. And you can see the case track. This was not park property at the time. There was the case track. And so it also extended straight through to provide access to the case track. Now this is... Um, part of Wheaton Regional Park, and so that's not really an issue. So this is how access um, to this area was set up. And you can see the property lines here. So the, the private right-of-way um, is not on its own tract. It's not on its own lot. It just runs across the properties and there is no um, maintenance agreement or anything. Um, there was a court case that decided that um, codified the access to the properties and recorded an easement uh, within book 48504, page 437. You can see the subject property down here. Now, I'll, I'll caution you that when you see aerial photos, everything doesn't line up right, but there are surveyors involved to make certain that um, you can see this is a surveyed line, that um, things are being done in a, a legal manner respectful of people's pro private properties. The proposal is to subdivide this one parcel into two lots for two houses and two parcels. The first parcel, parcel A, is to allow for future dedication for right-of-way, public right-of-way, so that in the future we can create a public road here. If we were to dedicate it now, we would have an island of right-of-way that the public would be responsible for maintaining without, it wouldn't be connected to anything without true public access. Also, we have parcel B. Remember how I showed you the people's choice path? This is to, to allow for the future um, access to Wheaton Regional Park. Since right now, this drive does not have public access. It is privately owned. This will allow us at, at a future time, if possible, to dedicate this for public access. And that's why we have these two parcels here. 
as I mentioned earlier, this is development on septic. So we have the septic fields with reserve septic fields. The reserve septic fields are there in case the septic field um, fails. And these are located based on where the soil perks and how the land uh, flows. Um, so we have a forest conservation easement that I'll talk more about. But this area cannot be put in forest conservation easement because that's for preserving forest in perpetuity. Whereas we recognize that at some point in the future, it may be necessary um, if, this, if these septic fields fail for these reserve septic fields to be activated. And we don't want to be standing in the way of that. Um, fire access has been incorporated by having um, a T turnaround. And the applicant has used the um, two driveways to do a shared driveway that, that will have an easement over it so to maintain fire access so that a, a fire truck can pull in here and then can use that driveway which is built to, to fire uh, department standards and then we have two side loaded garages so disturbance has been minimized and really the pave, amount of pavement has been minimized. Gray's Lane has a 20-foot wide easement right now. And there are some areas of Gray's Lane that will be improved. And that's in front of the subject property. We'll have um, asphalt laid down. And that will be 20 feet wide. The, the parts of it that are gravel now will be converted to asphalt, but they will not be widened. Fire Department has approved this plan, and this is really the minimum amount of improvements and will make the entire street much safer. You can see that our public road right-of-way, future right-of-way, has this curve, which the the previous right-of-way did not have. It just continued on straight. That has to do with a master plan recommendation, which we'll be showing you in just a moment. So this shows you the access improvements, the existing access, improve, existing access with the proposed improvements. This application meets all standards of the R90 zone. This is the master plan recommendation that called for uh, linking Gray's Lane to Monticello Avenue. You can see that curve right there. So while we cannot achieve that goal through this application, we can do the minimum that we need to now for this to meet all um, requirements, but set the, set the property up for future improvements so we can meet this goal. There is a forest conservation plan associated with this application. 
it calls for the retention of 0.61 acres of forest. You can see once again the reserve septic fields. Now this other forest will not be cleared now. It will be cleared when the reserve septic fields are needed. You can see the two houses here with the fire access and the limits of disturbance that are required to uh, construct this development. There is also a forest conservation variance for uh, specimen tree removals and impacts to specimen trees. You can see in orange are the trees proposed for impact and in red are the trees proposed for removal. Uh, Commissioner Hill had a question about a specific uh, tree and that tree was not 30 inches in greater, which we try to minimize the impacts to every tree. And, and really I think the applicant has done a very good job of minimizing what needs to be done in order to meet um, the requirements for development. This plan is consistent with um, all provisions of Chapter 50, the subdivision regulations, the zoning ordinance, and the master plan. Adequate public facilities exist for the proposed development and the findings as detailed in the staff report. For community outreach, the applicant has met all of the proper signage noticing and submittal requirements. We have heard from the community, and this is um, just a brief summary of the issues, but one of them, and they're all sort of wrapped up together, so there's the increased density on Gray's Lane, and you know, the expansion of, of the existing private street. I'll let them speak for themselves, but I think they would like to see as little change as necessary on their road. The potential damage to Gray's Lane due to construction vehicles. Um, you know, that's a, that's a definite concern. And the impacts on neighbors' trees, which they have uh, restrained their, uh, their limits of disturbance through the development process. For example, the initial um, application showed two driveways and we worked with them to get it down to, you know, one driveway. And then, you know, having that serve the dual purpose of the fire access turnaround instead of there being a fire access turnaround and two driveways. So I think the applicant has um, definitely worked to um, minimize their impacts on the community. We do have one correction. In the school section, uh, we state that this is a de minimis impact. However, it is more proper to state that, it is more correct to state that this development does not generate any children through the school's test and that there is no utilization premium payment required. And that will be corrected and updated in the resolution. And with that, staff recommends approval with conditions of administrative subdivision plan number 62023-0010, Donner property at Gray's Lane, 
as enumerated in the staff report and is modified herein. Commissioner Hill has a question. Yeah, I just have a clarification on the fire turnaround part. Um, doesn't that doesn't that dedication as fire space really make that a fire lane? And does that become a parking issue for the private property owners? So the, they have the ability, fire has the ability to require signage. And we will certainly reach out to her. I will point out that the properties have a garage and driveway that is not fire access. So there's parking for at least two cars here. But we will check with her um, to see if she would like signage there. Yeah, um, what, she I'm, has what, I'm really, what I'm really after is, is notice, right? Because normally you park your driveway however you want. And we're setting up a condition that says that's kind of not appropriate here if we need fire trucks at some point, right? Understood. We will reach out to her. And if, if she would like signage there, then then she will require that. Okay, if we can now uh, have the public can speakers. I, let me oh. ask you a question about who, who's raising the community concerns? We're, we're going to hear from them. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay, good. I Could I ask that. one more question about the fire lane, please? Who, oh, of oh course, Commissioner. Commissioner Presley. I'm sorry, I didn't see yeah, your hand. I, um, I have concern not just about whether it's marked, but people who live in homes and have these nice backyards and everything like that, you know, I myself do. Parking is a problem when you have company. If someone's going to mark that stuff as, uh, you know, no parking at any time, that means I don't know where someone's going to park and come visit. You know, you can't tell your visitors to all ride bikes. How how can that be solved so that there's an appropriate amount of parking for visitors as well as this turnway for the fire department? Thank you for the question. Uh, this is Matt Folden for the record, regulatory supervisor of the Mid-County Division. Um, so what we have here is a special circumstance where we don't have a fire department uh, compliant turnaround on the road today. And so the approved fire access plan shows this wider, um, I think it's a 20 foot wide apron that flares out to a wider width. Um, there's an additional driveway and Miss um, Lindsay, if you could just uh, circle the, the garage of each one of the houses and then the driveway that breaks off of the fire lane. And so uh, what needs to happen as far as the fire access plan, it, it does need to be signed and clear, uh, which is common on private properties. And there will be additional driveway space on both properties and the, the associated garage um, just to be able to accommodate those guests. Does that answer your question? It, it does, except I'm not sure how many. I'm, I'm living in a, in a condition in Clarksburg where initially they didn't make the roads wide enough, so they came in later and put no parking signs on the one side to accommodate for, uh, obviously, for fire and rescue. But almost every day, people park right along that sign because there's nowhere else for them to park. And my concern would be really making sure there is enough whether those other driveways you know go back further so that they're wider and deeper um you know you think about things like just uh, family gatherings thanksgiving something like that you could have as many as six extra cars if not more and i, I just wouldn't want it to be that they're parking in the fire lane i understand the concern and if there's nowhere else to park they will <laughs> Thank you. And what one thing that may not be clear here, and maybe I didn't do a good job of explaining it, 
basically between the garage and the uh, the stippled area, the gray area in the middle uh, of the shared driveway, there will be additional driveway that is very much consistent with this type of uh, single family residential development. One of the concerns that we heard from the community was a desire not to uh, expand Gray's Lane beyond what is uh, minimally required for uh, fire access. And so uh, what needs to happen, it needs to be a minimum of 12 feet wide for fire access in this case. And the Clarksburg situation is just a little bit different because, because of the parking, uh, those streets need to be 28 feet wide for two-way traffic and on-street parking. And in this case, uh, the road varies in width, but in many places it's between 14 and 15 feet, which is in excess of what's required for the fire department standard. And what we're talking about in front of the property here is that it'll be widened to 20 feet for fire access with the provision of this uh, T turnaround and then uh, the driveway for each of the respective homes on beyond the, the T turnaround. Okay, if we can- Thank uh, you. If, we, if the people who wish to testify come up to the table, please, uh, 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 Don Schwartz, Marilyn Schwartz, and, and the gentleman whose name I don't know, but will introduce himself in a second. Um, uh, if you could uh, take about uh, three minutes apiece, I will uh, sort of time you, uh, just in case I have to. Uh, it's one of those things I do as chair. Um, uh, who would like to go first, uh, uh, Marilyn or Don or? Maybe I would begin first. Uh, okay. Thank uh, the board and the board. Oh, yeah, oh, please, please press your. You have to press the button. Press the button. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, th I think that's a very good point uh, <laughs> that you just made using this microphone in the proper way. Because I noticed that, um, that, um, uh, you don't have to hold it. Okay. But I, I noticed that, um, that, uh, I, I think people are speaking at a, a greater distance. Uh, to the microphone than is necessary because sometimes it's it's uh, the the uh, volume is garbled. But I do want to especially commend Sherry Branson who uh, spoke close to the microphone and so that her intelligent and cogent remarks could be heard uh, <laughs> properly. Uh, and uh, thank you so much. So um, we very very much appreciate everything that Montgomery County does to uh, make this a choice place to live. We have lived here since 1973, and we built a home on Gray's Lane about 25 years ago, and, um, and have been very uh, pleased with the neighborhood and with the greater uh, community and with Montgomery County as a whole. We appreciate your attention to, um, to our concerns. Our concerns really is that we want to maintain the area the way it is. We don't want our properties infringed on or damaged. And um, we want to also clarify that the green area is is that a conservation area or is that a potential area for further de house development? Uh, no, if that can be clarified. It's, a, it's conservation area. It's not a lot. It, it's a conservation area. Yes. Okay, good. And um, 
so we are concerned that, that with heavy equipment, there may be damage to uh, Gray's Lane. We asphalted uh, several hundred feet of Gray's Lane when we first moved in, and we don't want uh, to have to do it again at our own expense if uh, it's caused by, um, by construction vehicles. So that, that is uh, one of our chief concerns, and I'll let uh, Richard or my wife uh, speak uh, uh, subsequently. Yes. Ms. Schwartz. All right. Um, please, just, please just introduce yourself. Yes, surely. I'm Marilyn Schwartz. I did have the pleasure of speaking with um, Amy Lindsay. Um, she did um, explain things rather clearly. But um, in a sense, uh, just to give a little bit of context, we purchased the property about 30, 30, close to 35 years ago um, before we actually built but before we um, even purchased the property, we spoke to the planning board. We looked at the, our, our interest, the property that we were interested in. We did due diligence. I did all the work, the groundwork, that um, could we get sewer? Could we get water? Um, and uh, what, you know, about electricity, everything. And could we get a, a, a driveway? And then we purchased the property. What disturbed me was that the Donners didn't do anything. They purchased the property and then ex sort of expected that they can build. And then they learned that they, had, they didn't have water or they didn't have sewer. They didn't have the different necessities that they would want to have in a house. Ultimately, they moved back to New York and then decided they were going to develop the property. Um, and to a certain extent, the thing that disturbed me when you talked about parking was that this, to me, was Gray's Lane was a, like a shared driveway. They had, their area was sort of what I consider landlocked. They didn't have certain access. But that's okay. Um, but if you're going to have a situation where you're now changing the um, order of things and you are allowing people to think of Gray's Lane as not a driveway but access to the park. There's a sign that currently is up that says no access to the park. There was a previous sign that was no access to the park. This is private driveway. Now. It's sort of shifting what the what the drive what Gray's Lane where where our property is um, to where people can drive up and maybe they'll need parking in order to then get out and walk through the park. Um, there are issues of um, you know people kind of just coming and looking around. It's sort of encroaching a bit on what we thought of as a private enclave, enclave, enclave excuse me. So that's, that's my, my take on it. Um, uh, you know, um, Ms. Lindsay happened to mention that a lot was um, of what uh, was considered was based on the will of Mr. Gray. Well, <laughs> I've read that will. It was racist, anti-Semitic, 
no Jews, no blacks were permitted in this area. So I think to use a will as a, a premise for, for anything, it just um, strikes me as kind of ironic. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Those are my issues. I thank board members um, and just want a certain amount of accountability. I know that um, the Donners have purchased, you know, uh, legal help and counsel. We did not. Um, we did pave the driveway, as my husband had said, because one of our neighbors, Mr. Bean, who was a relative of Mr. Gray, was actually born in that area, had said his wife died of pulmonary disease. And he felt that the rocks that were, were used, the rocks that were on the, um, the driveway, the, the, the um, Gray's Lane, um, the pebbles and rocks, were churned up and they were asbestos laden. And ultimately, she died. We put in the, the I know, just let me finish the, the sentence. We put in, we paved the driveway out of consideration for this neighbor who ultimately did die, actually, of pulmonary fibrosis. We were, we're not in a position to redo the driveway. I would just like a certain amount of accountability to uh, any damage that is done to the drive Gray's Lane that the um, Donners or the construction company take care of. That's the only thank thing. Thank you. And thank you for your consideration. Sarah, you need to introduce yourself since I don't have your name or. Yes, um, thank you uh, very much. My name is Richard Shore, S-H-O-R-E. Um, I just found out about this um, hearing yesterday late afternoon, so I apologize. I would have uh, submitted something and certainly signed up formally. Um, to speak at this hearing, and I appreciate the um, um, the um, uh, gracious your, the, the commi commission's uh, the planning board's graciousness in allowing me to speak, even though I didn't formally sign up. And just very quickly, um, I grew up in Camp Mill. I'm 62 years of age now. I think I was probably in the range of five when my parents bought a house on Charlton Drive in Old Camp Mill. Ultimately, we moved to Camp Mill Road, and in fact, my parents stayed in that house until they became very elderly. Um, my wife and I bought uh, 917 Gray's Lane uh, through a trust, uh, I think just before the COVID era, um, and um, loved the, the house, uh, loved the little country lane um, in the midst of suburbia, um, and have been very happy there. Um, our, I, I, I went, I, I should say in terms of my history, Kent Mill Elementary School, what was then Eberkley Junior High School, which I didn't enjoy, um, and, uh, and then Kennedy High School. Um, so very strong and very long-standing ties to the neighborhood and to the community. We love um, Silver Spring, uh, love Kemp Mill, and certainly have loved being um, in this property on uh, Gray's Lane. So I, I was not able to kind of thoroughly research everything, certainly could not um, consult with uh, legal counsel on this. Um, and, and my concerns um, about um, anything that might happen in connection with this subdivision really are focused on what happens um, to Gray's Lane itself, um, we would not want to see the lane uh, widened. And our understanding is that the current plan is not to widen Gray's Lane except for the portion directly in front of uh, the Donner property. And part of the reason is that would have a dramatic widening it to the full 20 uh, foot width of the easement would have a dramatic aesthetic and financial impact on our property. Um, I have pictures which I can submit if that's useful, but they're right in front of our 
our house. Um, one of the nicest features of it, um, five very large, very nicely trimmed uh, holly trees, and we certainly would not want to lose those just personally. And also we think that that would have an impact on the aesthetics of the neighborhood itself. Um, that we would wind up with potentially our driveway being parallel to Gray's Lane, but very close to it. Um, and the road, we think, would potentially, and I don't know exactly where the lines are drawn and where the easement is. So to some extent, I'm speculating, again, based on the fact that I didn't have a, a, a huge amount of time to uh, look into this. But we would not want to see sort of the road move closer to the front of our house, which is already relatively close to the, um, to the roadway. But our understanding is um, that that is not changing. And I will say, I, I spoke with... Um, uh, I called the the, um, uh, the staff um, very late yesterday, received a call back from Amy Lindsay, who has been extraordinarily gracious and helpful in trying to provide me with information and kind of explain uh, what's going on. And so we do understand that the roadway, um, except for the portion right in front of the Donner property, is not being widened. We understand that the gravel portion um, is going to be asphalted. Um, which we which we have no issue with. Um, I do want to say that we would have a concern about um, this um, uh, plan allowing for um, public parking along the roadway. Um, part of it is um, if people are are accessing the park, um, we we would not want to become a parking lot for that. And part of it is the synagogue, which we are happy members of. Um, obviously have events, and um, we have tried to very gently and politely <laughs> discourage um, parking on, you know, right in front of our uh, house, um, because that would be sort of a significant um, imposition, I guess I, I will say. And we think there's plenty of parking at the synagogue parking lot, the synagogue and the, the mikvah parking lot, okay. and certainly enormous availability of parking on Kent Mill Road. So those are the concerns that um, that we have. And I, I thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Thank you very much for your testimony. If we can hear from the applicant, if you could move, go back into the audience. Thank you. And Ms. Cho and uh, is it Mr. McKee who's with you? I mean, we've heard from staff with a recommendation to uh, approve a few, whatever you wish to say. <laughs> Thank you. For the record, Sue Lee Cho with the law firm of Bregman, Berbert, Schwartz, and Gilday on behalf of the property owner. Um, just very briefly, um, we're here mostly to answer any questions that uh, the planning board may have for us. Just um, wanted to just make a couple comments in response to what you heard, some of the concerns from the adjacent neighbors. Um, certainly, we understand that uh, one's understanding of what this um, private road was intended to be may have, you know, for many years felt like a private driveway. Um, but it was originally always intended as a private road. Um, and uh, this, this property, uh, the Donner property, was certainly never uh, it, landlocked in any way. It always had that private road right on the plat um, from, from the moment that it was created, along with all the other properties along Gray's Lane. 
um, on that plat was very clearly indicated um, private road for purpose of use uh, for all the lots. So that, that, that is what was uh, taken to court to just confirm and um, validate uh, by declaratory judgment. Um, there was early on in, in our efforts to um, subdivide the property, there was a question like without a court validation of that. Um, there was concern from the staff level that you know, take a, taking a position one way or another. But so we went through the effort of, of obtaining that legal confirmation um, that is in fact a private road. And under your subdivision regulations, this property has frontage on private road. It is um, uh, eligible for subdivision um, based on all of the requirements as uh, detailed in the staff report and is summarized by staff. Um, and um, I just wanted to say to the one question posed by um, Commissioner Presley in terms of additional parking, um, there is area where there is um, outside of the fire turn uh, turnaround for parking uh, for guests, but uh, we note the comment, and there is some room we, in consultation with Mr. McKee, I think, uh, we'll take that comment to the um, property owner, our client, and maybe suggest expanding some more additional driveway. You see um, there are dry wells, um, and the stormwater concept would need to be, uh, it's just a concept right now. So there, there is room there to create more parking. Um, this is a, a, a administrative subdivision. It's not a a site plan approval. So the the location of the driveway and the house um, proposed house locations are fairly um, uh, detailed design, but um, there is still uh, potential for adjustment to create more more driveway um, if need be. And I don't. We confirm that there's not an impervious cap or limit um, on this property, so that that would be possible. Thank you very much. Um, to my uh, Commissioner Hill. Um, I'm not quite clear. The asphalting of the road will be the entire uh, gravel section, not just the section in, in front of the house, parcel A. No, what I'm saying, the question that Commissioner Presley posed was on the right. lines. No, no, I'm not talking about that. Yeah, she's, uh, there's, uh, there seems, there's concern about the neighborhood about the road and the road mm -hmm. condition and whether it's going to be damaged or not. And I'm just asking about is the applicant committing to asphalt the entire no. gravel section of the road or just no. what's in parcel A? Oh, the, oh the, the fire just in front of the property, the, the gravel section will be asphalted to meet fire. All the rest down there, even if there's, okay, I'll ask Mr. Answer. McKee to answer. I'm sorry. Dave McKee, uh, Benning & Associates. Um, as required by the fire department, we are going to pave any portion that's currently gravel. Not widen, but just Right, right but, but all, all the way down to the private Correct. road, right? Where, where it's currently gravel. Okay, yeah. is there an opportunity to, uh, I, I guess you probably can't do that after the construction because you need that for the construction, but I'm, I'm just trying to address the concern about damaging the road and what commitment you have to making sure that when you leave, that suits the residents. So I think based on that clarification, I do apologize, that what, will, what the adjacent property owners will have at the end of construction will be a much improved um, asphalted driveway, or from their perspective, it's their driveway. Um, but what's, what's essentially gravel now 
um, will be utilized for construction purposes. I don't think it makes sense to asphalt it first and then have construction vehicles come and disrupt it and have to repair. So we would use what's there now for construction purposes, but when the construction is done, then you would asphalt the gravel, existing gravel area so they will be left with a much improved condition. Okay. And, and you, do you, uh, if you damage the existing paved road are are you obligated to repair that in no, the course you mean of the public public section of the well it's a private road um there's a portion of this private road that's paved mm -hmm. if that is damaged by construction vehicles uh are you are we requiring a bond to have that uh, uh put back in to its use pre-construction condition? We do not have one conditioned because this is a, a private matter between property owners and there, there is currently no maintenance agreement. Um, True. That puts us in the middle of two private property owners. So we had not. Um, we are hopeful that everyone will be good neighbors, but unfortunately, okay. we don't have any say about it. Uh, I forget these things every now and then. Uh, I'm old. Um, uh, Commissioner Presley? Um, just two things following up on the parking issue. I don't want to be arbitrary about it. That's my thought. If the property owners don't want additional parking, you know, let's certainly not shove it down their throats but um you know and not not just because commissioner presley said it was something for consideration you know maybe they don't mind because it only happens very few times you know throughout the year so it was just an idea but the question i have now is relative to the holly trees are you are you confident that you'll be able to preserve those without any damage yes because there's no widening there at all proposed we just okay put, just put down more pavement where pavement already exists okay thank you and i know um you know the, putting, the chair asked about sorry, fixing the road you're putting pavement where pavement doesn't exist i thought where it's gravel where, where it's, it's gravel, gravel. but yeah. but for right. not beyond the no the gravel width of the road that's correct okay uh, uh, go back ahead. to what the chair was asking I know that you don't that there's no sort of legal requirement for you to fix what is damaged, but would you be willing to include that as a statement that if there's damage done to the existing you know paved area that you would repair it? So I honestly, you know when you go back to asphalt the gravel section, I see it very being quite de minimis to go and and fix areas that might have gotten damaged so i do have the owner on the line um, who's joining us virtually mm -hmm. but um, i would say that it's very reasonable and it's something that he can commit to himself on on the record if he would right. like i think that would be a great thing to do now at the end of i mean the grace lane at the very end once it's paved and there's access to the to those uh, two houses will there be an access to the park no there's a fence there's no fence right now right. i mean is there any possibility that somebody may come and 
park there to go into the, or is there going to be a fence? Um, I don't know if there's a fence, but there will not be um, access to the park because this that section parcel B will is in basically for future Trees. dedication. <laughs> it's not being uh, dedicated now, so it's not going to be public. Okay. So there's not going to be going to be a public connection between the park and this property. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That's not to say we might not have someone wandering yeah. <laughs> in the area, but you have people. You have a people's choice there in the yeah. trail now. Uh, Commissioner Branson. Yeah, a couple things. Um, so, um, you said you, uh, Miss Ch Cho, is it? Yes. You said that um, that the owner is on the line. Yes, at, he is. Can can we just get clarity uh, on this uh, pavement issue now from the owner on the record? Is he there? Do we need technology? <laughs> he should be on the line. Is he not one of the participants? Okay. okay. He's muted. What? He's muted. What's He's the name? Is it uh, Mr. Ira Donner. Uh, Miss, Mr. Donner, if you if so you can hear me, okay, there, great, there, thank okay. you. Go ahead. Ira, you're muted. You're, you're muted. You're muted, Mr. Donner. My my question to you, Mr. Donner, you can't hear me. He's he's motioning like he can't hear me. Is he, I think he's being prevented from unmuting. Oh, can you can you allow him to be unmuted? Somebody. I don't, I don't know who in our technology side. We're sorry, Mr. Donner. Something on our end. Mr. Donner Potter. Well, while we work on that, let me ask my other question. Maybe we can, you know, when I read this, I was I was confused about a couple of things. First of all, we're hearing today that there will be no public access to the park, that, but there seemed to be a little uncertainty in the written materials. Maybe I just read it wrong. There's a master plan for this road. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So, so for the record, can, can we get, it's my understanding that there may well be at some point um, access to the park. In, in the future, if Gray's Lane it becomes a public road, then there will be public access to the park, pedestrian access. We are just setting this up for the future, but we are not proposing any access now. You see there's no path, nothing is proposed. And, and to be really clear, the, whether, it, it is, whether it becomes paved or not has absolutely no bearing on the potential for public dedication in the future. That is correct. Okay. So, because I, I think people get confused about stuff like that, so it's helpful to clear it up. So that's, that's, that's one of my questions. Um, my other question is, when I read it, now heaven knows I'm not any kind of engineer or anything, 
But, but when I saw these septic fields, um, I think it would be, I, I just need a little clarity um, about the drainage issue because I saw that mentioned in the, in the, in the uh, staff report, um, but, but it just wasn't, um, I wasn't totally understanding it. And, and so um, just to be totally clear, there is no potential drainage issue arising from these, these septic fields um, and, um, and the neighboring properties. Is that, is that accurate? That is correct. We have development on septic over huge swaths of the county. Okay. So, so of the, I, I'm just trying to check all the boxes for people's concerns. So is Mr. Donner, can he talk to us now? Mr. Donner, if you could try unmuting again yourself. No? So Mr. Donner did call me on the phone. Oh, thank okay. you. <laughs> and directed me on what I should say on the record since he's not able to unmute. Okay. Can um, so he is committed to uh, making sure that the construction company either posts a bond or making sure that, that it is properly bonded to repair any existing asphalt that gets damaged as a result of construction activity. Excellent. So, so it seems to me those were the issues raised by the... Um, the neighbors, um, construction, potential damage to the uh, road, um, the potentiality for the paving to, in fact, um, um, facilitate this road, uh, giving access to the park, okay, and um, the drainage. So and and I think those all three have been taken care of. Is that right, Mr. Chairman? Well, I'm looking for a motion. Is what I'm looking um, for. I just love two questions. Oh, okay. Commissioner Hill. Yeah, this is really for staff. But if you'd like to comment as well, one is, I'm just wondering. This is this is not a particularly good achievement of the zoning density that's zoned for this property. Um, I think it's limited to two lots because of frontage and septic need and forest conservation need and topography. But is the retained forest, it, I mean, parcel B is really a, a road easement um, in the end. Is that a buildable lot in the end? It is not. The retained forest is on lot two. You notice that lot two is substantially larger than lot one, and that is because the forest retained is within a category one conservation easement. And that is in perpetuity. Um, Okay, it's that's hard. enough of an answer. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, and then my, my other, just poking to this a little bit, it, can we establish a relationship for the forest conservation mitigation into regional into Wheaton Regional Park next to it? Or is that something that uh, just wouldn't be a regulatory connection? We can definitely um, speak to the Parks Department and see if they are interested. It will be you know up to them, but that is definitely something we'll look into. Right, we need utilization, but I'm just thinking the nexus of the environmental impact right next to a park is ideal um, for, you know, connecting that to where the impact occurs. Right. We will speak with them. The, the only thing uh, in the history of, in my personal history, I dealt with resubdivisions, which I suspect this is not one because it was never recorded. 
So it doesn't have the, the uh, meet the standards of the lots around it criteria. So in the most recent rewrite of the subdivision code, we removed the, the re-subdivision criteria. And I was involved with that, um, but it was a while ago. Um, okay, um, I'll entertain a motion. Nobody? Uh, do it in the microphone with your mic on. <laughs> so move that we approve the, um, the administrative subdivision number 62023010. Do I hear a second? Uh, and I heard a second. I see no further discussion, <laughs> although we had a lot of discussion for two lots. Um, uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 There's nobody to oppose. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, you know, we do try to hear you. Uh, with that, I believe we are on recess, uh, and we will come back after lunch. Thank you.
Good afternoon. It's February 2nd, 2023. It's still Groundhog Day, which I need to say again. Uh, we're on item nine, uh, pedestrian master plan, uh, progress report uh, briefing. And uh, we'll hear from staff, from uh, Mr. Sarton. Great. Thank you. Uh, for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy. Um, and I am thrilled to be here today to introduce our next item, a briefing on the pedestrian master plan. I'm really, really proud of the work that this team has done on this plan, uh, led by our project manager, Eli Glazier. And I can tell you that the, the plan incorporates state-of-the-practice ideas and recommendations that will make our county safer for all pedestrians and more accessible for people with disabilities. But we'll have plenty of opportunities to discuss the content of the plan uh, in future work sessions with the board. The purpose of today's briefing is really to bring you up to speed on what got us to where we are on the plan today. In fact, just earlier today, we posted the working draft of the plan uh, publicly on our, on our website. So uh, as impressive as the recommendations are in the plan, uh, so is the process and the effort that's been undertaken over the last three years or so, the data gathering, the engagement, the research that's been conducted to get us to this point. And so uh, with that, I'm going to hand it over to uh, Mr. Glazier and Mr. Ansbacher. Hello. Uh, good afternoon. Eli Glazier for the record. Uh, project manager for the pedestrian master plan. Um, today, uh, like Mr. Sartori said, very excited to be here with you to share uh, essentially how we've gotten to this point in the pedestrian master plan process. I'm joined uh, by David Ansbacher, um, who has been a key, uh, a key colleague in bringing this plan uh, forward today. And uh, he's going to be talking in a little bit about some of, some of the elements of the recommendations that will in the plan, and that we'll discuss a little bit more next week uh, when we talk about the working draft. Uh, the roadmap for today, we'll talk about what the pedestrian master plan is, why we're doing this, the goals that are in the plan, uh, the planning process to date, some of the key milestones that were mentioned in the staff report, um, and then we'll go over the what the working draft looks like, an outline of that, and then sort of the plan timeline moving forward, our different milestones as we move through the planning board process and then on to county council as well. Um, this plan is really the first time the county and the first time the planning department have looked at uh, pedestrians and walking as, as, a, as a transportation mode. Um, the goal of this plan is to make walking and rolling safer, more comfortable, more convenient, and more accessible for people of all ages and abilities across the county. Um, as Mr. Sartori said, a, a major focus of this plan has been accessibility and eliminating barriers to people with disabilities in the pedestrian environment. And um, the analysis that we've done and the recommendations that you'll learn more about um, really bear that out and really try and make that connection um, to create a Montgomery County that um, is accessible and really tries to, to right many of the wrongs that were created, have sort of been perpetuated in the past as the county has developed when it comes to pedestrians and specifically uh, pedestrians and other people with disabilities. Um, this also says uh, we'd like all trips within a short distance to become realistic pedestrian trips. And what that means is it's not the idea that everyone should walk for every quarter mile trip, it's, but it's the idea that um, if you need to get to the grocery store or the post office or another place, and it's within a quarter mile, you should be able to comfortably do that. So there should be sidewalks, there should be safe places to cross. Um, the circumstances around those trips should be such that 
you feel comfortable walking if you if you if you choose to. So that's part of it. Um, the plan, uh, obviously, Montgomery planning does not really in act on these plans alone. We make recommendations and other agencies uh, in county government at the state level, um, elected officials um, really work to implement those recommendations. So throughout this planning process, uh, we've had an interagency working group of agencies we've met with and shared information with, which include many of all of the agencies on the screen here, uh, the police department, the state highway administration, Montgomery County Department of Transportation, of course, our parks colleagues. Um, and the goal here um, was to bounce ideas off of these groups, to share our existing conditions findings. And then I think the key piece of this is that we don't want this great plan that we've created to sit on the shelf. We want it to be implemented. So um, as the, after this plan is adopted, we look forward to really working with and continuing to coordinate with these other agencies uh, so that the recommendations in this plan can be effectively Im implemented and we can really get to achieve that pedestrian-friendly uh, future that the plan envisions. Um, we're doing this plan uh, for many reasons, but specifically it was called out in the county's first Vision Zero action plan in 2017. Uh, if you're unaware, Vision Zero is... Um, a philosophy that says that no number of se severe injuries or fatalities are acceptable in our transportation system. And we know that pedestrians are the ones disproportionately likely to be severely injured or killed on our roads. So doing a plan that focuses on pedestrians and pedestrian safety and pedestrian access was seen as really important on the county level. Uh, in addition to the Vision Zero plan, uh, completing this plan was called out in the recent 2021 Climate Action Plan as well as something that should be imp is important because um, Anything we can do to reduce uh, vehicular trips, encourage walking, encourage biking is better for our local environment and then for sort of the macro environment as well. Um, there are also public health benefits, economic benefits, and equity benefits to making the county safer um, and increasing walking. Um, the goals of this plan, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, one is to increase walking rates and pedestrian satisfaction. Two, to create a comfortable, connected, convenient pedestrian network. Three, to enhance pedestrian safety. And four, to really do all of these things in an equitable and just way. So to make sure that the analysis we're doing, the recommendations we're making, um, are looking to address historic inequities and to make sure we're not perpetuating disparities that exist in comfortable access um, and we're improving conditions across the county where there's the most need. Um, this plan kicked off with the scope of work being approved in September of 2019. Um, since then, we've done a lot of engagement that started off with six kickoff meetings across the county, the complete engagement approach and meetings and all of, I think, the pretty unique and groundbreaking um, interactive engagement approaches we've used through the COVID period uh, to get feedback and engagement that was both useful for the plan specifically, but also um, sort of a valuable exercise for members of the public as well as in that appendix. Um, and now I think I'm going to walk through some of the other project milestones we've, we've sort of accomplished along the way to this point. Um, I think the first one, very major milestone, um, is our countywide pedestrian survey, which was carried out in November 2020 and published as a report in March 2021. Uh, this survey was really the first time the Montgomery Planning Department has done a statistically valid survey for a master plan. 
So to do that, we worked with a consultant and developed questions and mailed survey postcards to 60,000 randomly selected Montgomery County households in early November 2020. Uh, the survey team that we worked with assumed about 1,200 completed responses, but we received double that. Um, the survey results were weighted for countywide demographics, um, and the margin of error at the countywide level is about 2%. So um, a pretty good survey as far as surveys go, largely representative of the county, what you would expect the whole county to respond uh, with. Um, the survey provided our team with really great information about pedestrian perception, frequency of pedestrian trips, uh, pedestrian trip distance, the reasons pedestrians would make specific trips, and allowed for comparisons between different parts of the county. Um, and with an accessibility being a major focus of the plan, uh, the survey really allowed, also allowed planners to break out responses from people with disabilities to understand how those responses compared to responses from the population as a whole. I think, for instance, um, on the screen, figure eight here says um, overall satisfaction by reported disability status. And what we found on the far left, the total columns, um, uh, people with reported disabilities were about 10% less satisfied with their pedestrian experience countywide as people without reported disabilities. Um, that disparity is largely eliminated in our more urban areas, um, but is much more pronounced in some of the more suburban transit corridors in Montgomery County, and then especially in the exurban and rural areas as well. So I think what we're seeing is that uh, where there are more things to walk to, where there are more pedestrian uh, accommodations, amenities, infrastructure, um, the experience of people with disabilities tra traveling through this environment is, is much better, or at least on par with um, the respondents as a whole, and we see disparities in other parts of the county. So I think that's just one example of some of the data that we've been able to glean from the survey. Um, and um, I think it's it, it was really exciting for us to do this and to look at this data, and I think we look forward to um, working with survey data on other master plans in the years ahead to get that sort of higher level 30,000 foot view of things that uh, you may not be able to get with a community meeting or um, other types of engagement. Um, the next plan milestone was publishing our pedestrian audit toolkit. Um, a pedestrian audit, also called a walk audit for those who may be unaware, is a guided walk of a corridor or neighborhood to help catalog pedestrian issues and share those issues with the responsible agencies, elected officials, um, to get the issues addressed, to get things fixed. In the past, the planning department has hosted these events in Aspen Hill, in Ashton, and as parts of other plans. This toolkit is a way that we can help communities conduct their own similar events uh, by providing information, event and report templates, um, et cetera. Um, it, I think we really viewed this as a way to help educate people about the language of pedestrian issues, to empower communities to band together around pri pedestrian priorities, and then to effectively advocate for themselves to elected officials and the relevant agencies so these issues can be addressed. Um, this is available on our website, and we hosted a virtual toolkit training in September of 2021 to explain more about how to use it. Um, I think. Probably the most major milestone to date until, I guess, today when we posted the working draft of the report was our existing conditions report, which was published in March of 2022. Um, in addition to relying on state and national sources of information like the United States Census, uh, we are very fortunate to um, 
have access to and to develop very unique Montgomery County specific data sources, which include the countywide pedestrian survey, which I just mentioned, but also um, several other things. One of, I think the key components that we've created is what's called the pedestrian level of comfort analysis, um, which uh, is a tool that we use to quantify the pedestrian environments, really help understand how comfortable pathways are, how comfortable crossings are. Uh, which is similar to our bicycle level of traffic stress, which was developed for the bicycle master plan, which was adopted in 2018. So the level of comfort scores pathways like sidewalks and trails. It scores places without those things where you have to walk in the street. Um, it uses data like sidewalk width, the speed of traffic, the buffer width between the sidewalk and the street, the presence of on-street parking and other variables um, to understand uh, which places are more comfortable to walk and which are less comfortable to walk. Uh, this is a screenshot from um, our interactive map that has a network of this scoring for the entire county. Um, it's available at mcatlas.org slash pedplan, which is in the upper right corner of the slide. Uh, and you can really see the detail in this network where individual intersection crossings are each scored independently. We've created throughout this planning process a very fine-grained understanding of um, pedestrian comfort, pedestrian access, uh, which I'll get into and will really allow us as a county now and then moving forward to really understand um, changes that are coming to our built environment and model the effect of some potential improvements on um, pedestrian comfort and connectivity. Um, so the scoring... Was, was, excuse me, was sure. this map made from direct inspection or was this a mapping exercise? Sure, so this is largely a mapping exercise that uses um, street view, aerial photography, and then um, any other information we had available. So centerline data from the state, from the county, when it comes to speed limits and things like that. Um, basically, uh, our team over several years incorporated um, any data that we could find confidently at the countywide level um, to inform um, the variables that were part of this. So it was, um, it was a very intensive effort, resource-intensive effort, that now that we have the countywide sort of baseline here, we're really looking forward to, as private development happens, as public projects happen, maintaining this data set. So we know if a speed limit changes, the what's the implication for pedestrian comfort in that corridor? Will we see the score improve, that sort of thing? I, I um, admired the mental creativity in your answer, because I was first thinking that direct inspection was the bigger burden but maybe not. <laughs> uh, direct inspection would have been, it would have had its own challenges, yeah. um, but uh, we created and solved many challenges on our own, I yeah, assure sure. you. Let uh, me, let me uh, ask you, because this, this is kind of a moving target if you're looking at the speed um, uh, requirements for those, like I live very close to Connecticut Avenue and Georgia Avenue, and they've lowered the speed limit uh, very recently from 45 to 35, obviously nobody's following that. I, I mean, it, you know, on a major roadway like that, I mean, I, I can see most of the people going at 50. Uh, uh, I don't, in Connecticut, there's, a, there's various places where police stop people. Uh, in fact, I've been stopped on Connecticut Avenue. Um, so I don't know to what extent it's a moving, you know, it may change. Absolutely will change, limits. and I think... Uh, we have developed and continue to develop sort of the, the workflow about how we take uh, State Highway Administration speed limit change and incorporate it into this data so our scoring is up to date. 
Um, and then I think as an aside, on that note, um, we did in the development of this scoring have a conversation about um, what's called posted speed versus observed speed. Um, and I think we agreed that the observed speed would probably be much more valuable in this analysis, but that's just not some, that's not the data that we have at the countywide level. So that is a discussion point that we had sort of early on, um, data that would have been nice to, nice to have as part of this effort. Um, the scoring, I think pretty simply, there's four main categories uh, from very comfortable, which are the dark blue lines, up to undesirable, which is the, the red. I think we think of very comfortable, uh, the dark blue, as an ideal. Um, somewhat comfortable, which is the light blue, is, is adequate. Uncomfortable is room for improvement. And then undesirable is really just that, something that uh, we wouldn't build today or really allow today to be built um, and something that really urgently needs to be improved. And I think the general relationship between uh, some of the variables I mentioned here is that generally as sidewalks are wider and located further away from the street, comfort's higher, um, and all other things being equal as the roadway speed limit is higher, the comfort's going to be less. And then if you're on a narrow sidewalk immediately next to a high-speed road, you can imagine that would be worse than a wider sidewalk further back from a low-speed road, things like that. Um, what this has allowed us to do, this countywide network of pedestrian comfort is, I think, some pretty unique and groundbreaking analysis. Um, this is an example of um, measuring, essentially, um, the trips that people would take to the Forest Glen metro station. So uh, on the screen here, the metro station is denoted by these two pink dots at the center. And um, what we've done is we've coded all of the lines that are either very comfortable or somewhat comfortable on this map as blue, and the lines that are either uncomfortable or undesirable as red, and the thicker lines on this map are the ones that carry more trips. So the closer you get to the metro station, the lines get thicker because more people are going to that station. And what we find is that um, there's generally a lot of comfortable connectivity, low stress, high comfort walking, in the neighborhoods on either side of Georgia Avenue. And then when you have to cross Georgia Avenue or walk along Georgia Avenue, as many people do, especially those obviously who live east of Georgia Avenue when they're accessing the station, um, there are these really high stress, low comfort conflict points that exist. And what this analysis can allow us to do on a transit station by transit station basis or a school by school basis, for instance, we've done similar analysis for all the MCPS schools is identify if we could just fix this one point. If we could fix this segment or this crossing, it would have benefits for all of these people and improve their comfortable experience. Maybe it would make it so that people would feel more comfortable walking to the metro or walking, to, letting their kids walk to school, that sort of thing. Um, and I think this is a good example that's borne out by uh, the Forest Glen Capital Pro Tunnel Capital Project that's um, in the CIP at the moment, uh, this idea that uh, we know from WMATA parking data at Forest Glen that many of the people that park at the Forest Glen Metro live within this walkable distance but don't feel comfortable walking for, for, for whatever reason. So this capital project exists to hopefully lower that barrier and make people feel more comfortable doing that. Um, so this is just, I think, a pretty unique 
way of quantifying and visualizing where those weak links are when it comes to pedestrian comfort. And the level of comfort data that we collected allows us to do this um, for specific destinations, um, gives us a lot of flexibility moving forward to um, figure out different scenarios for how projects could improve comfort and change um, and make it easier for more people to walk, things like that. Um, I'll continue on. Um, in addition to the level of comfort analysis, we work closely with MCPS to develop a student travel tally to essentially understand how students arrive to and depart from school. Uh, this was completed pre-COVID by over 70,000 MCPS students. Um, and this is important for us because we want to understand baseline student walking across the county so we can understand how the policies and recommendations that are in the plan uh, will lead to more students walking. So our goal is to work with MCPS in the years ahead to regularly do this tally so we can understand at a countywide level, at a school level basis, so elementary, middle, high school, and then uh, at a school by school basis, uh, where we're seeing gains in walking as a result of policies uh, in this plan so we can track progress. Um, safety is also an important plan component. We looked at all of the pedestrian crashes countywide between 2015 and 2020 to understand the circumstances and the context surrounding those crashes and supported plan recommendations. Um, just one tip, one tidbit from that analysis, uh, figure 23 on the left, we found that um, our equity in our equity focus areas, there's about 14% of the county's roadway miles but there are 40% of the county's pedestrian crashes and 44% of those crashes that result in severe injury or fatality. So uh, I think right off the bat, we see that uh, there, this is a major equity issue, obviously pedestrian crashes and pedestrian safety, um, and the data really bears that out as well. Um, all of this data came together in the existing conditions report, which is available on the project website and I believe is linked to in uh, the staff report that you received. Um, the public engagement and existing conditions really provided a great foundation of pedestrian issues that the plan needs to address. And those are the recommendations we'll describe in the next few slides. So um, there are a few sets of recommendations in the plan. Uh, what we would call design policy and programming recommendations, uh, bicycle pedestrian priority area prioritization, complete streets design guide area type designation, and then recommendations for uh, what are called pedestrian shortcuts or people's choice paths and countryside paths. Uh, the first piece is probably the most holistic systemic element here is um, our design policy and programming recommendations. So these are recommendations that uh, when implemented, we won't necessarily, necessarily see the county change overnight, but as new construction is built, maintenance happens, private development takes place, uh, the county will become more and more pedestrian friendly. So these are things, these are systemic issues that affect the quality of the experience, including um, recommendations to provide more time for younger pedestrians, older pedestrians, people with disabilities to cross the street, um, looking at driver education, pedestrian education, um, being more proactive in how we do sidewalk maintenance and we do sidewalk construction rather than being reactive to community requests, um, looking for opportunities to change how we design and build our streets so that they're cooler, um, so that we can better react to sort of the climate of the future in our, in our urban environments and in our uh, just pedestrian environment countywide. 
And then I think a big recommendation in the plan is to begin the conversation about transferring state highways in our urban areas and along transit corridors into county control. So we have more design flexibility and additional accountability for uh, the county to achieve Vision Zero and other sort of similar goals. Um, so the board was briefed, the planning board was briefed on these recommendations in September 22, uh, of 2022. Um, and um, there's a lot in this plan, in this set of recommendations. Uh, there's about uh, 29 high level recommendations and then many of those recommendations have key actions beneath them. And there's about 102 key actions in the plan as well. Um, as well as um, each key action has a rationale that sort of describes why it's in there and some of the, the lead agencies and precedents that may exist for these sorts of recommendations. Uh, the next uh, set of recommendations is for our bicycle pedestrian priority areas and uh, Mr. Ansbacher is gonna take the lead on this one. Good afternoon, uh, David Ansbacher. I'm in the Countywide Planning and Policy Division as well. So there's a few big recommendations in the plan that are related to both walking and bicycling. So you might be asking why does a pedestrian master plan need to include bicycling recommendations? And the reason is that bicycling, uh, walking, they're sort of heavily intertwined in how we do our funding, how we prioritize things. And there's some bikeways that also double as, as walkways. Uh, and so when we started thinking about, and, and the one I'm gonna tackle here is prioritization. When we started thinking about prioritization, we felt like uh, it was, we have existing programs that target both walking and bicycling, so we wanted to build off of those existing programs and approaches. So the Bicycle and Pedestrian uh, Priority Area Funding Program, or we call it BIPA, the BIPA program uh, funds both pedestrian and bicycle improvements. It was initiated by the County Council in um, 2014 largely uh, making improvements around commercial areas and in tr transit station areas, areas where there's a, a lot more uh, walking, and so we want to prioritize those areas. So typical, um, a typical approach is that uh, MCDOT will go into an area, um, they'll make a whole mess of improvements, whether they're ADA improvements to curb ramps or to sidewalks, new crosswalks, um, new sometimes asphalt paths, along the side of the road or other things to slow down the speed of traffic. Um, and they'll go in and make wholesale improvements to, to the pedestrian and bicycling experience in those areas. Uh, so far, the program has largely focused on Silver Spring and Bethesda, uh, though very soon in the future, we'll start to see some improvements in Wheaton um, and then around many of the Purple Line stations that will come online in a couple of years. When the BIPA program was initiated, BIPA areas tended to be nodes of pedestrian activity around transit stations, but over time we've added new BIPA areas um, to address pedestrian and bicycling challenges along the county's major roadways. And we've also identified some neighborhood areas as BIPAs. And today there's over 30 BIPAs in the county. Um, the program is proving to be tremendously successful and it's expanded almost every budget cycle, but a few issues have arisen. Uh, first, BIPAs are created by master plans, and so they largely reflect the master plan schedule. So, for example, you'll see, I think, the Fairland and Briggs-Cheney plan soon. They're going to recommend some areas become new BIPAs. Uh, but there's other areas in the county that might be equally deserving that have not yet had a, a, a BIPA designation. 
Um, and therefore, a comprehensive identification of BIPA areas is needed. And then second, the approach to drawing BIPA boundaries has been inconsistent. Most, it's mostly been focused around commercial areas, but we have a few major roadways that have been designated, uh, specifically Beers Mill Road and New Hampshire Avenue. And we have some neighborhoods, residential areas, that have been designated. And then finally, with over 30 BIPAs in the county, um, only 10 that are you know, at least partially funded and only two in, under construction, we need to prioritize them. So therefore, the pedestrian master plan is going to propose changes to the BIPA program to address these issues, and you'll see that next week. Uh, the next set of recommendations deals with transitioning to Montgomery County's uh, new complete streets street classification system. So this system replaces the old road code system that was largely about, that looked at, that described roadways and largely designed them for the way that traffic moves. The new complete streets design guide street types are intended to reflect that there's multiple functions of our streets, uh, multiple functions um, as public spaces, but also uh, for movement of traffic, walking, bicycling, and transit. So the new street types are there for a combination of our land use context. So I have them listed here on the left side, downtowns and town centers being the more commercial areas, suburban, industrial, and country, and then the roadway function on the right side. And this is in order of the amount of travel. So major highways get the most amount of travel and streets get the least amount of travel. Uh, so the resulting complete streets types are shown here. They're largely but not completely combinations of the area type and the street function that I was showing on the previous slide. There's 12 of them. Um, again, they don't fully you know, follow the land use uh, context, but they, they are addressing the intent of how the streets are to function in each of these different land use types. So transitioning from the previous a street classification to the complete streets design guide cl classification is a three-step process. Uh, the second step is the pedestrian master plan. So the, phase one was the enactment of bills 2422 and bill 3422, which were approved at the end of last year and fully come into effect on Monday of next week. Um, and so these bills are, have established interim translations for the complete streets types, uh, again, based on the area type and the roadway type. The interim street designations, we estimate, are 90 to 95% accurate. Uh, they reflect that not all roads neatly, neatly fit into legislation and that we need some additional work. So in phase two, the pedestrian master plan, proposes to address some of those deficiencies by taking a wholesale look at how we classify different areas of Montgomery County. Again, downtowns, town centers, suburban, industrial, and, uh, and country. Um, and to update the area types in our master plans, replacing the interim, counts, uh, interim street classifications that were put forth in the bills that were approved and come into effect next week. Um, so, and then in phase three, uh, with an update to the county's master plan of highways and transitways, 
we'll need to reevaluate the classifications of all the roads holistically looking at their roadway function um, to make sure that they're appropriately um, master planned. So this is the second phase. And then this is, uh, I'm not gonna get into detail, this is in the uh, plan that's been posted, but this shows um, how we are proposing to designate the five uh, complete streets design guide area types in the county. I'll hand it back to Eli. Uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, Eli Glacier, for the record. Um, and the only thing I would add to that, uh, I think, great summary is that I think this is really relevant for pedestrians because uh, these design guide designations really influence what the roads in these areas should look like, which determines how wide the sidewalk should be, what really what the streetscape is and what the pedestrian experience is. So making sure we get these right, these area classifications correct and codified uh, will uh, enable us through future public capital projects and then uh, private development as well to make sure we're building the pedestrian spaces, the streetscapes that uh, that we need to, that we that are the most pedestrian friendly as they can be. So, uh, the next uh, set of recommendations: uh, pedestrian shortcuts in the master plan, um, also known as uh, people's choice paths, desire lines, goat paths. These are those I would say informal pedestrian connections that aren't along a street, but that provide people a more direct pedestrian route than the sidewalk or trail network. So uh, the goal of this set of recommendations was to identify locations where either through public investment or private development, um, we could improve the quality of the pedestrian network by shortening pedestrian trips and making those trips more accessible. So turning a dirt path into some sort of paved facility. Um, if there's a, a muddy path down a slope looking into a, a proper staircase with lighting and things like that. Um, this plan recommends 310 of those connections across the county. Um, and those connections were drawn from those provided from the community, which uh, through a process discussed in the engagement appendix, which I think was a very unique use of uh, sort of interactive mapping and survey to essentially ask people to draw in their pedestrian shortcuts. Uh, planning staff looked at all of those connections, uh, consulted with our parks colleagues and other colleagues to figure out uh, which were likely to be feasible. Um, and then we supplemented the feasible connections with uh, our own review of parcel data and plat data to look at what we would call paper streets or other public rights of way that uh, were probably originally intended to be pedestrian rights of way, but were never uh, substantially improved. So. Uh, 310 connections across the county. I think a great piece of this recommendation is that um, by master planning these connections, it makes it much easier through the private development process to have um, applicants build these connections in the same way they would have to build a sidewalk or a master plan bikeway or something like that. So really just trying to formalize the process of building out the pedestrian network through this plan. Um, and then lastly, um, Ms. Ronsbacher touched upon this a little bit, I think, but um, we have recommendations in the plan to construct, uh, to master plan additional country side paths. So these side paths, which are shared pedestrian and bicycle pathways, um, should be built along roadways in some of the more rural parts of the county in, in line with guidance from the Complete Streets Design Guide. So um, an example of an existing country side path is here along Maryland 108, um, but there are 21 side paths recommended in the working draft. 
um, to either be constructed again through private development or public capital projects to provide uh, improved uh, pedestrian and bicycle connectivity in these parts of the county. Um, and then just quickly an outline of the plan that you'll see next or that you'll see in your packet uh, for next week. Um, really, the document starts with the vision and goals, describes how the county is doing today with respect to those goals in the existing conditions section, and then uh, describes in detail the suite of recommendations that Mr. Ansbacher and I discussed to help put the county down a better path to achieving those goals and to um, working towards the targets that are in the performance measures section of the vision and goals chapter. Uh, the document concludes with information about uh, implementation of the specific recommendations, like what are the, I would say generally, what are the avenues that the different types of recommendations can be implemented? And then um, uh, there's a chapter about ongoing plan monitoring and transparency and making sure that the public is aware of how we're making progress on achieving the goals of this plan. Um, a timeline moving forward. Um, as we said, we're meeting again with you next week to request you approve the working draft as the public hearing draft and to set a public hearing date for this plan. Uh, based on the requested public hearing date, we would anticipate meeting, uh, we would anticipate planning board work sessions would begin in mid-April with the planning board draft of the plan transmitted to county council sometime this summer. Uh, county council would take up the plan in the fall and then would hopefully adopt it in winter of 2023. So. Uh, that's where we stand. Uh, appreciate your ear on this, um, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your presentation. Now, knowing that we're going to talk about this next week, what would you like to say, Commissioner Hill? <laughs> I will save my detailed comments to next week, but I do want to make an observation, which is the enthusiasm and the pride that you two have is outstanding in this job. And I don't I focus more on local and regional issues. I'm not really aware of the national landscape, but I think this is this is nationally recognizable work. Wow, very nice. Com Commissioner Branson. Yeah, I'm going to keep it short. I um, am curious as to whether what we'll see next week will include uh, information or recommendations about um, distracted driving as well as distracted walking because it seems to me that those also play into, you know, the safety um, issues and also um, signage. Um, I think signage probably can be helpful or hurtful. Um, and, and so, um, and I also want to congratulate you on your use of puns. I don't know if they were intended. <laughs> But I was they having fun writing them down. The the avenues of implementation, I thought that was a good one. And the path to move forward for the county, I thought those were great. I'm assuming they were intended and that you're just way smart. So thank you. What I didn't like was talking about pedestrians and saying moving target in the same breath. But that's just me. Uh, Commissioner Panera. Yeah, I also would like to uh, congratulate you on your presentation and wish, wish you good luck next week. Um, my question is, I'm always thinking about Thrive 2050 and thinking, okay, we've raised a number of issues about how we want people to live close to where they're going to be working and 10 minutes walk or 15 minutes walk and and all those issues, and I know that's more of a long-range, long-term 
uh, plan. But to what extent you're looking, you know, your plan is going to be more targeted to uh, short-term issues, or are you also taking into account long-term pedestrian issues? And along those lines, um, I also would like to ask whether you're taking into account. I know that a lot of things have been done. Uh, some of them you've mentioned it, like, you know, I live off Belpre Road, and there's a number of traffic, I mean, pedestrian um, lights that they put in so pedestrians can cross. To what extent, and also there's, if you go up Hewitt Avenue, they put islands so that cars kind of slow down and allow pedestrians to cross the street. Um, to what extent would you be, like, evaluating or, you know, those kind of programs as part of your pedestrian plan? Are they working? Are they not working? Is that a kind of thing that we should be thinking? I'm not really sure who the what is it uh, transportation? Is it the state who's doing those changes? Is it the county? I'm kind of confused about all those things sure. that come up. So I think uh, we can tackle the second question first. Um, yeah, I think um, I think we're fortunate in the county that we're not starting from scratch with a lot yeah. of these things. There are existing programs. And there are a few recommendations in the plan that um, we want to evaluate how these existing programs are helping to achieve the goals of the plan. Uh, yeah. So uh, one of the specific programs, which is likely related to the Hewitt uh, projects that you're talking about, um, is just the county's traffic calming program in general, looking yeah. at ways to um, make sure that uh, the way that program operates today and also in light of changes to that program and to county policy based on the complete streets design guide adoption um, that should really allow for more flexibility in where these sorts of traffic calming treatments are installed. Mm -hmm. um, we, we didn't want to make new recommendations in that area without really understanding the implications for the more recent changes from the Complete Streets Design Guide. So mm -hmm. um, there is a component, a recommendation in here that um, we should evaluate how well that program is doing and okay. achieving the goals, um, and then with the potential for future recommendations about how it could be improved further. So okay. that's the second question. On the first topic, um, is this plan more short-term or long-term? I'd say it's it's absolutely long-term. Um, okay. I think. Um, throughout this planning process um, in talking to the community, it's been clear and I've tried to communicate that um, the pedestrian environment that exists in the county today is the result of decades and decades of decisions that have made it more difficult or impossible to walk in the county. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take decades and decades of, of more proactive and more progressive decisions in the space mm -hmm. to really um, fix the challenges that exist today. So uh, we're talking about this plan um, in terms of decades of implementation, in terms of um, hopefully we adopt this plan this year, something that I'm going to be working on like the rest of my career here probably. So um, it's going to take, take a long time uh, to implement these recommendations and then to tweak, the tying it back to the other piece, to to change them and to evolve these recommendations as um, as circumstances require. So um, it's I think it is really sort of a parallel effort with Thrive to think about this is the transportation side. Um, there's also obviously a big land use component to walkability that um, 
uh, I think Thrive is really supportive of creating the, the walkable yeah. environment, the density, the destinations to mm -hmm. walk to that um, in concert with improving the actual infrastructure, we would expect to see more walking in the decades ahead. Okay. And if, if I could just supplement that question, I think uh, Mr. Glazier was right in, in some ways, but I would also expand a little bit and say, you know, when you think about the ride, that really is a long-term kind of framework for our future. Um, our master plans are kind of like that middle ground between that general plan and the CIP and development, the development pipeline and, and things that are happening now. And, uh, you know, and this is really no different. So while there, a lot of these things are long-term, there are also things that can be implemented, especially in a plan like this. Our functional master plans, in this case, one that has a focus on policies, programming, a lot of these things are things that can be implemented in the relative short term. In fact, we've already had some communication with council staff who, uh, you know, we put out our draft programming and uh, policy recommendations last summer. And so they've been out there and people, we've been getting feedback, but the council staff has even seen them and they're interested in already pursuing some of these ideas. So, uh, you know, while it is long term, there are certainly things that can, are actionable in a, in a shorter term in a plan like this. I appreciated the presentation part here about prioritization, right? Because, yeah, let's, Let's get the big, the, the biggest things first, and that will go a long way. Commissioner Presley. Thank you. Um, and, and fortunately, you just, uh, someone just answered part of it. Um, I've been a part of seeing over a long period of time where we have the plans for sidewalks, et cetera, but we wind up getting sidewalks that go to nowhere. So one developer is required to provide a section of sidewalk, but then there's no real plan to get it finished and so on. So I think that what I'd love to see when you guys come back with this is, is a direct correlation between the master plans as we're approving them now and the, and the board after us, because you can have certain precedents, you can have certain priorities that need to be considered now, even though it may take a long time to implement everything. If they're not considered now in the smaller decisions, you'll lose some of the ability to create, you know, the, the full landscape that you're trying to create. So I'm wondering if there's a way um, or, or how you would put into place a requirement for looking at this overall plan as each master plan is done because once things are developed you know it, it it constantly changes the ability to implement these other things that you're identifying um and and i think uh, as the last gentleman just said it's it's going to be long term but it's definitely short term too or the long term is going to keep pushing out Directors. so I'd, I'd love to know yeah director stern please Thank you, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, for the record. So once the pedestrian master plan is adopted, it absolutely will be used as a resource for, for area master plans. That is how we apply our mm -hmm. bicycle master plan. It will also be right. a resource for uh, regulatory reviews as well. I don't know if the staff, Dave, maybe if you may want to speak to this because this is how we've been using a bicycle master plan and we absolutely plan to use the pedestrian master plan in this way as well. Yeah, well some no, I things I know need to be weighted and I'm wondering, like, sort of how you can can put a, a weighting on certain provision of things, because when you do the area master plans, you know, many more decisions come into play. So I would love to have you, you know, bring back something that shows with what weight these things will be given when master planning uh, if local areas is done. Go ahead. Well, okay, to... Um... I think these are good points. Uh, to build off of what Director Stern was saying, absolutely, the 
the pedestrian master plan and the bike plan serve as frameworks that all subsequent master plans consider uh, and, and, and start from. We also have the complete streets design guide, which, you know, mm -hmm. as you see in this plan, we don't have detailed line-by-line -line recommendations about a sidewalk here, right. a sidewalk there, like we did in the bike plan. Here, the assumption is, you know, based on the complete streets design guide that as developers, uh, developments are submitted or as capital yeah. projects are initiated, they will follow the complete streets design guide, which is now the tool that we are using to, to build new streets and reconstruct existing streets. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Uh, Chair, yes. uh, thank you, uh, Matthew Mills, um, Senior Counsel. Just to, uh, to add on to that, the way the functional plans like this work is that they are all, they are considered amendments to all the area master plans. So they are supposed to be taken into effect or account when you're analyzing substantial conformance. So I'm I'm just strictly speaking from the legal perspective, not necessarily the the practical aspects mm -hmm. of that, but they are taken into account. And, and I might add to that, the reverse will happen. When we do a master plan, it'll, it'll be a, might be an amendment to this plan. Everything amends everything else. That's generally, <laughs> it's, it's a two-way street is, is how I, no pun intended. Um, Pardon another pun. I'll stop with that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for a good presentation, and we'll see you next week, I think.
Good afternoon. It's February 2nd, 2023. I've been handed a note for the first time that it is Groundhog Day. Uh, so those might take notice of that. Um, we're on item eight, the second briefing on the mapping segregation project. Um, and the staff requests uh, any comments prior to the transmittal to the county council. So I'll turn it over to staff. <laughs> Who goes? Good afternoon, Chair Thank Zions you. and members of the board. My name is Rebecca Ballow. For the record, Historic Preservation Supervisor. I'm joined by Ben Kraft in our Research and Strategic Projects Division and John Lieberts with the Historic Preservation Section. As you noted, we are back for our second briefing on the Mapping Segregation Project. Our goal at the end of this briefing is to receive any comments from the board that we may incorporate into our transmittal that is headed to the County Council on this project. So just to recap where we are, um, we first presented to the board on December 1st of last year, um, giving the background information and demonstrating the mapping tool that the historic preservation team and GIS built um, that mapped discriminatory housing practices in the down county region inside the Beltway. The tool maps racial restrictive covenants, mortgages refinanced by the Homeowners Loan Corporation. We included a Federal Housing Administration map and data on African American home ownership, among other items. The research illustrated the widespread use of racial restrictive covenants throughout the Down County planning area. Again, the researchers selectively sampled a little over 1,700 subdivision plats recorded between 1873 and 1952. And staff found that properties associated with at least 728 record plats, about 41% included these racial restrictive covenants. And then an additional about 3.5% of the total may have included racial restrictive covenants. Since we gave that presentation, um, there was there was a lot of really positive feedback that we received from the general public, from our colleagues within the region, and then from the press. There were a number of, there were some articles. There was an article in the Washington Business Journal, one in Bethesda Magazine, and then uh, a longer form article within the Washington Post where the reporter um, interviewed our office, but she also researched other planners regionally who are working on the mapping segregation project in Washington, D.C., folks who are doing this research at the University of Richmond, people who are doing the research in Minnesota, so really a, a nationwide perspective, which I think is important to mention because our office, in, in undertaking this research, we are part of this national conversation looking at the geography of segregation. Um, additionally, um, it's Kind of fun to note that the mapping tool had nearly 12,000 views right around um, the release of the Washington Post article, which was quite a jump in engagement. And then also our office was contacted by the City of Alexandria Planning Department, by the State Maryland Department of Planning, and then other colleagues in smaller municipalities who wish to discuss our research. We have future meetings that are scheduled with the City of Tacoma Park City Council to brief them on the project. We are collaborating with the Capitol Jewish Museum on programming related to racial restrictive covenants uh, targeting the Jewish community. And we're also speaking with our um, acting director, Tanya Stern, to the Greater Capital Area Association of Realtors in March. So now I'd like to turn the presentation over to Ben for really the, the update on more of the demographic analysis and information. Thank you. 
So, yeah, for the record, I'm Ben Kraft, uh, a research planner in the Research and Strategic Projects Division. Um, and so I'm going to talk about this question of, well, you know, we've done all, all this uh, great work uncovering these deeds, so kind of where do we go from here, and what does this mean on the, on the ground in Montgomery County? So the, the answer, really, it's a, it's a two-part answer. Um, and the, the first part is that, and I want to emphasize this, that the, race, the, the racial restrictive covenants in Montgomery County and nationwide was a widespread practice, and it absolutely does have a, a legacy that's still with us today. It's part of this, the, the larger legacy of, you know, that dates back to slavery of that, that we can see today in the gaps that uh, or the discrepancies we have with um, along racial lines uh, with, you know, kind of you name the statistic, uh, income, wealth, uh, home ownership, all of those things, differences in neighborhoods. Um, this it's very much alive and well. Uh, but w with all that, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly where the, this legacy still resides at, at the neighborhood level. Um, so the and some and with the work that we did um if you in the in the staff report we mentioned for example that there is there's to date what well, we found one um very sophisticated complex um examination of racial restricted covenants and and you know kind of really looking actually at the parcel level of what what that impact might be and they actually were able to identify you know a general statistical correlation between having a covenant and um, and higher housing values, you know, to present day higher housing values, um, uh, present day uh, lower pr proportion of black residents in, in a, a neighborhood. Um, but for us, that, well, first of all, that was a, um, you know, a very complex, sophisticated uh, analysis that we really don't have the resources or really, frankly, expertise to, to do. Um, what we did is just we did a few ways of looking at simple correlations between you know was there a covenant or not a covenant or uh, what percentage of the of a census tract had a covenant covered on it um, and what what are we seeing today and really what we found was uh, weak or non-existent correlations it's just it's very difficult to detect or identify in Montgomery County um, if we were going to, you know, to really do it, and again, no matter what we, no matter how much effort we would kind of put into a, a, an investigation like this, there's still no guarantee that we could actually identify these, you know, this, you know, historical uh, relationship to present day conditions. But you would need um, a lot. You need to overcome a lot of the. Um, really, it's about it's a, a control problem, controlling for a lot of intervening factors. So, you know, for one, we would probably need a full data set, which would include uh, Washington D.C. and even Northern Virginia, because really at that time, prior to 1948, when uh, restrictive covenants were, well, racial restrictive covenants were were outlawed. Really, especially Washington D.C. was the center of population. That's where the housing dynamics were really emanating from, and Montgomery County was less developed at the time. So we could, if we're looking at Montgomery County, we have a sample, but it may not be a representative sample of the full, the full dynamic that we're seeing. Um, and then the, some of the other barriers that we face to, to really doing this is to um, thinking about all of the things that happened since 1948. We, uh, the metro system ha you know, started in the late 60s. The, uh, the highway system started in the 50s. So just a lot of uh, infrastructure, economic changes that really transform neighborhoods. That to really give a full accounting for, we'd have to um, we'd have to really 
you know, sort those out to make sure that we're getting the straight historical line. Um, and, and then also as uh, my, well, now former colleague Archie presented a few weeks ago, the, um, the racial and ethnic just demographic changes that we've seen have just been dramatic since the, uh, definitely since the 90s. Um, and, and a lot of the, the, new, the, the new people, the new races and ethnicities that we have were not actually, for the most part, you know, were, were a very small part of the population of Montgomery County when the, uh, the practice of racial restrictive covenants were, were you know, going on. So if you can, you can move to the next. I just was going to show, um, just in a few maps, just an example of kind of why, why it's, kind of, it's difficult to, to j draw these conclusions from the covenant data. Can, can I ask a, a quick question? I'm mm -hmm. trying to understand. At the beginning, you said that the, somebody did a more complex correlation yes. and found something. Mm -hmm. But you guys have done a basic correlation mm -hmm. and you're taking into account many other things that have happened since mm -hmm. whatever the metro and all these uh, different changes in the county and you didn't you didn't find much of a correlation or yeah. or you didn't really go far. Can you tell me uh, who did that complex mm -hmm. or more sophisticated correlation and mm -hmm. what did they find? Yeah, they, it's a it's a, a few economists, I believe, at uh, I believe at the University of Minnesota. Um, okay. But I, I oh, know that because the study, they've done a number of work on that on the, that issue. No. Yes. Well, they so what they had they were um, using they they their data set was from um, they concluded the city of Minneapolis and the county surrounding it Hennepin County. So they had a very large data set, um, and they were. Uh, which was created by, I think it's called Mapping Prejudice. Um, and they, so they were not using our data? No, no, no. no. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, I should have been clear. Minnesota data. This is okay. from it's from Minneapolis, yeah. Minnesota, a totally different area using all of their data. And, yes. and you find that our sample is not big enough to do that kind of it's, analysis? It's much smaller than theirs. It would, yeah, and not, I don't think it's a sheer numbers question, I, it, although that definitely is part of it. Yeah. Um, uh, they, it's also the fact that they had the central city and the suburbs, so they were able to, whereas we, we have a small sliver of a suburb. I see. Yeah. So. Okay. If um, I can, I'm sorry, you. if I can just jump in, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director. Uh, that study is referenced on page four of the staff report, if you want to see the details. Um, yeah, no problem. So. That and so, so just kind of continuing on with just looking at what the conditions look like on the on the ground, um, you so as one example, um, the Chevy Chase Village tract. It's the tract that contains you know Chevy Chase Village, um, in according to the census. And this tract had no covenants. Uh, no, no, I shouldn't say that. It did have certain kinds of covenants. It didn't have racial covenants, um, and it. Is currently ha is the wealthiest tract in the county. It has the highest per capita income. It has, you know, it's one of the whitest tracts in the county with very few um, people of color that live there. Um, and, you know, very little poverty. And so again, this had, it, it, it shows up as having no covenant. So if, even if we were to find a relationship and you kind of look block to block and think about, well, what do we do about this? Well, the, you, it gets really complicated very, very quickly. Um, and, you know, again, not, this doesn't mean that there weren't other things. I mean, it may have been that this tract was already so exclusive, but even by the time this practice of racial covenants was in place, that they didn't necessarily need a racial covenant because, you know, um, people of color who tended to be poor may not have um, been able to afford it. Now, a covenant could um, be 
something on the HOA that There's says other we don't allow blacks, let's say, yeah. in our neighborhood? Is that well, that's a racial restrictive covenant? covenant. Yeah. Okay. Um, the HO, there are different HOA covenants, which I don't, I'd probably have to let them speak about. Um, but there also could be covenants about just architectural covenants and, you know, similar, right, to like what we do with zoning? Sure. Um, I can speak a little about uh, the history of Chevy Chase for a moment. So when we're looking at this, you know, mathematical equation of correlation, we're really looking at whether there's a racial covenant or not in the property. But when we look at, you know, the mapping segregation project in total is more about, you know, all the various techniques and discriminatory practices that occurred at that period. And so in Chevy Chase, when they established that, they used other types of covenants. They had minimum pricing for the houses had to be built. They said that there could only be a single family houses. There were community norms that prohibited African-Americans from moving into the area. There was discrimination at the point of sale by real estate brokers that wouldn't sell to African-American families. The banks wouldn't provide loans who are associated with these community development associations there. And all the non-racial covenants that Ben was just referring to all played a role in keeping African-Americans from owning homes in this, in this area. You know, there was also in the early 1900s, about 1906 or 1907, there was a subdivision just on the edge of this map on the southern end uh, that was named Belmont, where four African-Americans, or a prominent African-Americans Washington, in Washington, D.C., tried to establish a uh, black-owned community here in Chevy Chase. Uh, the surrounding white community immediately was fearful of this community. Uh, they uh, protested against it. Uh, the Chevy Chase Land Corporation used uh, legal techniques to pretty much, um, you know, yeah, it bought the property from under them in the end. And so you had, you know, a potential for an African-American community here, but, you know, that quickly disappeared. And so while there's no racial restrictive covenant, you know, we, we all know about the practices that occurred within this area. And so it's just that, you know, in terms of the correlation that we're talking about, it's not popping up red as, yes, there's a covenant, but there's a whole backstory here. And so that's what makes the, you know, the comparison difficult. As, you know, when we look at it in a vacuum of, is there a covenant, it, the, that correlation doesn't show itself. Well, can you tell the story when you do a presentation? I mean, that's a, as important as determining the correlation. Yeah, let me let me just say this. So, so let's be clear about what these covenants are. All right, these covenants are written evidence of a practice. That's what they are, right? But let's be, also be clear about what they're not. They are not the sole indicia of the practice. So. You could be racist all day long. You don't have to put it in writing. Let me just put it where the chickens can get it. So, and, and, and so we should not, no one should, conflate these two things. That you have to have written evidence of being racist in order to be racist. You don't. And, and, and so we shouldn't get hung up on, we, we, we should not be willing to say, um, if there's this, then there's not that. That that's not that's not what's going on. We we should be very clear that the existence of a racially restrictive covenant is only one indicia of a panoply of practices in the Jim Crow era 
that excluded black people from land and home ownership. And that's the way we should put it. They are not the whole story. If I can add to that, uh, we absolutely agree with you. And in fact, the staff report um, that was already presented does specify that. And this analysis also reinforces the point that this was one practice out of many that resulted in um, housing discrimination and contributed to the racial rap, a wealth gap that Ben referenced, um, particularly through home, through home ownership. Um, and so this is another way of just documenting, again, one piece of a, of a much bigger picture. And maybe I'm wrong, but I, I thought what you're doing is trying to re relate the um, existence of that one piece to uh, the current racial makeup of those areas that, of the county that were affected by that one piece. Again, knowing that you didn't account for a hundred things that would also affect uh, uh, the racial makeup of those areas. Uh, so it's more of a statistical analysis to say, are there a ling lingering effects of that one piece that you could find? And, and the answer so far as I've heard is no, at least not in Montgomery County. And when you referred to in, a, in your report as, while some lingering effects of redlining have been found in some places, those links are not every, evidence elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You're talking about elsewhere in the country right. um, and not in the county. Yeah, that's, that's a, the redlining is probably more, there's a, a few studies, um, I believe, you know, one is actually national, one is, I think, Los Angeles, which is a large area. So it's just the, I think the, the point is that while there may be a, um, the, while there may be even a general, even if you take US-wide a general correlation, it doesn't mean that if you take a, a small slice like this, that that's, that that's what you'll find. You, again, it's not, it might not be a representative sample. Only, yeah. only in this conversation will we ever refer to ourselves as a small place. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Uh, yeah, just, just one follow-up thought, which is in presenting this to audiences outside here, I think it might also be worthwhile at least trying to state things that have happened since the time period you're studying that also may be the noise. And I, I heard you sort of talk about sort of mobility. There's a lot of mobility in our environment, so things have rearranged. The built environment has has mm -hmm. done things like that, right? Socioeconomics definitely come into play. That's kind of your point in in this particular example, right? Is you know um, minorities probably couldn't afford to live there to begin with, so there wasn't any baseline, and you can't measure it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think giving some of those examples might help people understand um, the the lack of correlation. But it's because other things have come. Just the amount of time too is probably a factor, right? Mm -hmm. um, sure. But it doesn't it doesn't mean that we're we're walking away from the idea that this exists. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Commissioner Presley has something to say. Yes, and, and I think uh, following on what Commissioner um, Branson mentioned, it, you know, it's it's good to understand historically what happened with those kinds of covenants, but it hasn't just been historical. I mean, and predominantly we can trace it with the, um, you know, uh, Black and African American, but it also has 
extended to Jews and then any new kind of population that has entered to the point where, you know, year after year even, I'm a realtor. So the National Association of Realtors has to continue to modify its anti, um, uh, basically anti-prejudice statements because even if someone doesn't have a covenant, some of these things still live in people's minds and it gets experience through someone being rejected for an application, uh, you know, leasing or not. I mean, I probably had about 10 hours of anti-discrimination training. And uh, so I think these things still exist. And maybe the, the to me, a better indicator is, uh, as Mr. Hill was saying, what has happened since? You know, what are the, what are any, um, let's call them blockades of any kind that are either are still in place or have been created by the built environment that need to be addressed. If, okay, thank you. I don't, you know, here's, can I hit, okay. Talk. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm upset. Okay, so, so here's the thing. Um, what has happened since? Um, that's the problem. And, and that is, that is the problem that, uh, this had this report uh, unintentionally. It, it, unless there are solid recommendations about what can be done, this actually has the potential of making things worse. And let me tell you how, because you know evil is just evil. And so you know if I'm gonna think like an evil person, here's what I'm thinking: I'm gonna look at where these properties existed. Okay. And I'm going to think these are undervalued communities. The, this is undervalued property. And, and where you have undervalued property and speculation, that's where you have displacement and gentrification. You, are cre you could potentially be creating a map <laughs> to tell people where they need to go next. So, um, and I know that's not the intention. And, and so unless there are some real recommendations about, okay, this is, we all know, I mean, you, you'd have to be really Pollyanna-ish to not understand that housing discrimination occurred in Montgomery County. Well, I, I think we can all accept that. There may have been many reasons for that discrimination. As a result of that discrimination, there are pockets of racially restricted or, or racially segregated communities that have cropped up either by law or, or by just was more than happenstance. So given all that, and, and we also know that the homes in those communities that are black and brown are probably going to be undervalued. They are, even though, well, anyway, we'll probably be undervalued. If we have all that information, then what are we going to do with it? And what policies moving forward can we um, suggest to make sure that those same places do not become uh, harmed even more? That, that, to me, that's the only value of this. I mean, no, no offense intended. But, but that is the true value, to make sure that the vestiges of prior practices 
do not visit themselves on this and the next generation. And that's all I got to say. If I can okay. just jump in just really quickly, uh, we definitely absolutely, absolutely agree with the objective to make sure that through the work that we all do, that the past practices and present practices of housing discrimination are mitigated, avoided, prevented, eliminated. Um, I do want to point out with regards to these maps, what you were just describing are redlining maps, which identified areas, neighborhoods that had predominantly black uh, and other types of uh, other residents for whom uh, essentially people cannot get mortgages to purchase homes. These maps are essentially the opposite. These are maps of areas where there are racially restrictive covenants where black residents could not purchase properties or Jewish residents could not purchase properties. So these, are, these were not the, the areas that are then or would now be considered undervalued. So I wanted to make sure that that was clear that these maps, this is not a redlining um, analysis. That is a completely different type of map. Um, this is basically the opposite of, of that. So just to make sure that that was clear. Um, but I think just to get back to the focus of this effort, again, this is, this, is a, this is an opportunity to fill in the gaps and to accurately document Montgomery County's history of housing discrimination. And as you noted, Commissioner Branson, this is very much one piece of it. Um, I think in the, um, the first report, in terms of redlining, that essentially there aren't redlining maps um, in this area, so we couldn't even do that type of analysis because they just weren't produced, uh, as, as far as we can tell uh, for the records, but we do have this documentation of racially restrictive covenants, so that is something that we have been able to examine and document. I agree totally with you. I think um, uh, with Director Stern, I think that what this is showing in the case of Chevy Chase Village is that there's been not only uh, racial segregation, economic segregation, all kinds of segregation, because like this gentleman was saying here, they had a minimum oh, yeah. income in terms of purchasing. Minimum price house. Minimum price. Minim I mean, this, this, in fact, we should even look inside of us, because these zones were zoned there was a zoning for single-family homes that the planning board approved at the time. So, you know, again, it's a, it happens when we zone an area for single-family and we accept all those conditions. Um, and I know that in other jurisdictions, they're really looking at the effect that zoning has on racial and income segregation. I know that in Seattle, in Portland, in probably in Minneapolis, they're thinking about how we can change zoning. And that, I think, that that's something, I'm not saying that we need to do that right away, but in terms of the Thrive 2050, maybe something will come out of that in terms of how we deal with equity issues. Because that is our role as planning board. What, how does zoning affect issues of equity. So I'm just going to leave it there. If you guys want to expand on that, I mean, the, the gentleman here mentioned a number of things that led to the racial, we could say racial, socioeconomic redlining of Chevy Chase. 
and uh, we need to we need to tell that story. Commissioner Brunero, I think your point is well well taken. Um, it's, that's actually a, a very good segue into um, a couple of the slides that we have coming up. Not not to cut anybody off if there are other thoughts, but to mm -hmm. to further that dialogue and going back to phase one. And when we looked at the maps, the covenants were widespread. The racial covenants, the racial discrimination and, and prejudice as well. The architectural covenants were also widespread across the planning area, you know, east east to west mm -hmm. entirely. There were also minimum architectural um, requirements and minimum dollar amounts that were required to be spent for new homes in Chevy Chase, but also in Silver Spring, also on the east side mm -hmm. of the planning area. So to go so Ben, um, ben had also pulled up um, a similar analysis in the New Hampshire Estates Census Tract, which again is on the, um, the eastern side of the planning area. And then, Ben, I'll turn it over to you for this uh, excuse slide. Excuse me, we have yes. Commissioner Presley wanted to say something. Oh, sorry. I, I just wanted to go back for a minute to um, the notion that I, re I really would like us to be able to see what's happened since then. I mean, I only mentioned one thing because I'm familiar with different um, tests and um, guidelines that have been into, put into place in the real estate industry. But what I've also noticed is that sometimes even then beyond areas that were initially restricted, folks are tending to, to congregate together, buy together within their culturally familiar um, folks. And here's, here's my example. In Clarksburg, we have all manner of housing types. We have, you know, condos, apartment rentals, townhouses, and single-family homes, and we have a very high Asian population. I have a lot of friends up my street where they themselves have lovingly referred to it as Asian Row, and they they joke about it because they have family and friends moving there. But in some ways, I don't see that as a discrimination. I see that as people choosing, um, you know, to live in a in a community and in a culture where you know they're sharing culture. Um, they're definitely integrated with the rest of us. We all kind of, you know, we all meet together at different functions. But it's interesting to me that when people have a large choice, that some some uh, cultural groups are still tending to to buy close to each other. So what I want to know is like, you know, you could look at an area like that if you didn't understand it was a choice and they could afford it and say, why are they, why, why is that only group of people in this area? But I want to know, you know, where choice is being restricted because if someone has a choice and they move together and, and you know they lovingly call themselves asian row that's fine with me but if somebody can't buy in um for all of the other reasons including past historical damage i wish we could see that um because that's where i mean we have housing available uh i agree with commissioner hill we don't want gentrification um someone's got to have somewhere to go if people come in the market's going to dictate the price, but if if the price has been undervalued because of the long-standing um, discrimination, then we have to be prepared for what are the alternatives for homes. And so, I'm most interested. You know, we don't want to repeat history, so we want to understand it. But I'm most interested in what does this mean going forward, because again, not everything we see on a map is indicative of. Um, of prejudice. Some of it is choice, but I want to see where people are still being held back, that, if I, possible. I think, Commissioner Presley, your your comments uh, really uh, 
illustrate just how complex it is to unpack what is happening today. Um, again, if you just look at the data, the data says whatever the data says, but if you look at what's actually going on, it may present a more complex uh, picture of the situation. Um, I think it also um, speaks to what Ben noted earlier, which is that uh, one of the ways that we sort of know racially restrictive covenants have had an impact is on individuals, is on the people. You may not be able to pinpoint it to a, you know, there was a covenant in this, on this parcel and therefore the exact same parcel X, Y, and Z is happening, but it has had an impact on people because there are black families who are not able to purchase homes, um, become homeowners, and then build, uh, you know, family wealth that could be passed on. Um, but how do you document that and tie that to and associate it to a, to a specific place? That's where it's very, very challenging to do that, but we do know that there is very much an impact. Um, but it's, that's, this is where, this is all really, really complicated. You know, this is, these are all really very, very important points that we are all discussing. Um, but it's very, particularly for planners, where at the end of the day, we, we serve people, but we, we focus on places. And how do we take what we learn and apply it to improve specific places? Um, so it's, 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 it's a bit of a complex um, set of solutions that we have to look at. And I didn't directly answer your question of what do we do now. I think this is where having this knowledge informs, again, our equity and planning agenda that we have. It informs the types of recommendations that we develop for master plans. It informs using the tools like equity focus areas and later the community equity index, which the board will see shortly. It all kind of feeds into that, which in turn helps us then figure out what is the right set of strategies uh, to uh, develop to apply to particular places and communities. Just one small add-on. Part of this might might be that we need to raise um, questions and make suggestions for how to educate people into homeownership because often people who have been uh, pushed down for a long time, they don't know the tools they have access to. In working with people in realty, you know, there are many people who have been surprised that they could afford a home and they needed some sort of guidance and counseling into how to prepare for home ownership. And I would guess that there are some programs like that in the county, but I think as we look at these things, when, when you speak to the individuals, getting that sense of how many individuals actually could have home ownership or a move in in place, but are just unable to to truly get things together to access that. And I know that's a lot because it's this you're talking about a whole of Montgomery County. But it, as you dig down and start getting into individual choices and individual situations, I think that's going to much better inform where we need to go. Yes, and, and Thrive Montgomery 2050 in his housing chapter very much talks about um, expanding home ownership and using that as a way to address the inequities um, in home ownership and as well as in um, building family wealth. Um, so we do have that as an important priority. I would also like to add just in terms of how do you tie this to places, you know, our efforts uh, to expand housing choices uh, also is another way uh, to help to fill in that gap so that there are more places, more types of housing that people can afford. Uh, so you don't only have the options of places, you know, with communities with very expensive homes um, if, if someone wants to get into home ownership. Okay, are we ready to proceed if, uh, you know, we're yeah. 
proceeding. Right? There were, there's very little uh, left to go. Um, but I do think, so what we do have left hopefully will, um, I think it will align with discussion we've been having. It's really, it's very complex and this is one part of a very long, complex process that's played out. Um, but just specifically, and uh, Commissioner Branson, I absolutely share your concerns about like, you know, creating the roadmap for, you know, further further discrimination. Um, and there, there's a really long and like definitive literature that uh, black homes owned by black people are uh, assessed at lower, they get lower prices. That's, this is well established. Um, the actually though what this what actually we're, we're like kind of saying with this or what, what this is leading to is that this map itself the map that this deed research has produced and the uh, places that are blue and there should I should have put a legend on here places <laughs> that are blue uh, do not have had no covenants places that are red did have covenants places that are lighter red likely had covenants um, and what we're kind of getting at is that we actually can't. Um, there, we can't determine that relationship. So if you were to use this map for that purpose, it actually would be very difficult to do that um, because there just isn't one uh, trend that you can see. So that's why we're contrasting that Chevy Chase uh, tract with this New Hampshire Estates tract, which is one of the poorest, uh, one of the uh, highest percentages of people of color, and, um, lowest per capita, in third lowest per capita income in the county, and as you can see, there's a mix of tr of uh, tracks or of neighborhoods within this tract that both had and did not have racial uh, restrictive covenants. So this this really muddies the water there and makes it really difficult to make those kind of inferences. And this is kind of this is why we're not able to really make any of these statistical assertions that there is the relationship. So really, that that's all the only kind of the last thing there. And then if you kind of step back and look at the whole map, it's you know as you can see, it's it's hard to make to go neighborhood by neighborhood, and even with your knowledge of the county, to say, well, I can see the legacy here, but not here. It's it's really mixed, um, and there's again all these intervening factors and present day practices that are that are contributing to the way that these the neighbor, neighborhoods you know are these days. So. I'm not really sure why you're trying to compare this to the present. I mean, as it is, in terms of the legacy, in terms of a historical research that you've done, it stands by itself. Right. Well, yeah. You don't have to say, oh, well, we found this in Chevy Chase, but we didn't find that in New Hampshire states. Because that kind of confuses people. It says, well, then there's no value to it. But there is value in the sense that this is, this is great research, historical research that you found. What happened after that? What's happening now? I mean, you would have to explain how those white flight happens, how does the tipping point, you would have to get into all kinds of explanation to let the council or whoever it is that you're presenting understand the difference between the legacy and existing and the present, let's say. If I, that's, I, that's what I would, that's my comment. If I will, certainly it's a, the, the research on those areas uh, that had racial uh, covenants to get them is extraordinary research, mm -hmm. hard to do, and, and remarkable data point. The question they were trying to answer and discover, it's a mission of discovery, they didn't know how it would turn out. It, is there a relationship between that, those locations that and, the and the present. 
And they, the answer is, not necessarily. We couldn't find one. It, you, you can't be definitive here in statistics. You gotta be, you, you just have to say, could I find a correlation? And the answer was, mm, not if you just take those two variables together, yeah. which is, which is uh, the racial makeup and, and, the, and the maps of discrimination. That's all that's, that's all you're being say. Say, said here. Uh, and, and just to be clear, this was a question that the team was asked to consider and to explore. You know, after we did this research, we were asked, okay, so what now? You know, what is the, is there any impact on the present day um, in, in the, these communities um, in terms of who lives there now? So just to, just to clarify that this was a, it wasn't so much that we decided, let's answer this question, <laughs> but this was something that came out of the research and that we were asked you know, what, it, what does this mean for the present day? And so that's why the team went back and did this additional analysis and looked at the demographics and tried to see if, whether or not there was a correlation. You can see the sensitivities you're going mm -hmm. to have when you, when you <laughs> yes. get to council. Right. <laughs> I mean, here, to, me, to me, here's, here's the thing, okay. Um, one, here, here are the conclusions I think you can draw. One, <laughs> that as I said, racially restrictive covenants were not the only indicia of, of discrimination. That, that's, that's important, right? And so, um, well, that's one. Two, um, the current status of Montgomery County when it comes to housing um, integration, quote unquote, um, may not have anything to do with racially restrictive covenants in the past, right? That's two. Three, there may still be serious housing discrimination in Montgomery County. It's just, it just may not be based on this, right? I mean, my, my concern about this, I'm gonna say it, seven more times that people need to understand it, is that it is going to be very easy for people to, to look at this and say, oh, you know, so there's no historic discrimination in Montgomery County. And that is an absolute falsehood. Absolute falsehood. I, I just want you to be able to, to, to make it clear that there is, that, that this that this project does not mean that there was no discrimination in Montgomery County. This project does not account for the necessity that um, black people had to form their own communities 70, 80 years ago in Montgomery County. This, and there's nothing, um, That living together 70, 80 years ago w w was by choice, and it was by necessity, and, and it was out of survival. It's, it's, it's not the same deal today. I mean, so, so I, I just, as I said, I'm really worried. And, and, and the reason I worry is because I don't want this to be used in a way you don't intend. And, and so I think some very clear conclusions have to be drawn about what this says and what it doesn't say. Because without the clarity in those conclusions, 
people will come up with some stuff that will conflate um, and, and be used to support um, an agenda that is not necessarily uh, an agenda that respects or seeks equity in our present and in our future. The point is very much well taken. Um, and again, uh, you know, the, the, the longer, the first report, which is much longer, much more in-depth, does make the points that you just noted, that racially restrictive covenants was just only one piece, one tool of, to, um, to discriminate against black and Jewish residents and others, um, and that there were many other tools and strategies that were used to discriminate against those residents in terms of home ownership. So that is very much already in the report, uh, but the point is very well taken, um, and we will just make sure as we transmit this to the council that that is crystal clear. Couldn't okay. we, uh, in a are, are way, say Wait, 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 wait. Are, are, are you all done? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I, just to put some two cents in here. Um, I, I agree with Commissioner Panero's point about focusing on what this does say. And, and Commissioner Branson, you referred to it in the other way around. Um, it, I, I th and I think the Washington Post article picked up on the idea that just demonstrating to people in Montgomery County that you may live in a place that had racially restricted covenant is an important awareness to develop in the community. And I have a variation on Commissioner Branson's uh, concern about this having a hazard, which is I don't want to equip the majority who may not really be thinking about this with the idea that it doesn't exist anymore. Because I think without connecting discriminatory practices through some thread to now, that's what you're encouraging to think. This is an old problem. And I don't believe that to be true. And I think um, by identifying, kind of coming back to my previous point about what are some other trends that would be in the meantime is the way to connect those together. Right, because I, I really, I, it would be a disservice and an unfortunate inadvertency because the work is excellent to end up convincing some people that, oh, this is just something that happened a long time ago. It's not a problem now because you didn't prove it. And I don't, I would like to avoid that situation. Commissioner Panera. Oh, I, I think Commissioner Hill just uh, mentioned what I was going to say. Uh, I'm trying to think whether there's a, a, like a compromise or a way that we could, you guys could present this and not have to make a general statement that we didn't find a, a correlation because then people say, well, there, there's no relation between the past and the present. I mean, you could, you could tie it, you could say this is complicated, number one. This is a complex issue, and there's many things that have happened since then, and we really have to look at each specific location and do more research to determine whether a particular location, let's say in this case Chevy Chase, um, the covenants did have an, an effect, uh, and that effect lingers to the present, and were there other locations because we didn't find a correlation? You know, making it site-specific rather than an overall general statement saying there's no correlation. When you make that, it, it sounds like we didn't find any any relation between the something like Commissioner Hill, you know, how the, the, what is happening now, how does it tie in to 
pressing issues of discrimination. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of my five cents into it. I think if what I'm hearing for all, from the majority or all of you, if I may, is that what we were trying, what, the map shows the geography of segregation. It, it attempts to show with spatial data what, what culture was, what culture is in place, mm -hmm. and that the data and even the maps do not capture the entire story, you know, the nuance of the culture. And when we were even putting together the first report and thinking about how to, how to break this up so that we could get, you know, the back pieces, the history of redlining and the HOLC and then the FHA maps, what do all of these layers of discriminatory, legally discriminatory practices do? What do they show? All the way to, you know, the realtor's professional standards and as Commissioner um, Presley was saying even now, all the training that, that realtors have to undergo. We're talking about a pervasive culture of discrimination within the suburbs. So thinking about how we frame these points up front in the report that goes mm -hmm. forward, how we target those points very specifically in, in the slides that we discuss in our talking points, maybe even in the maps that, that we show to get that across because that really is the value and the, the point of this study. Um, so we want to make sure that we're able to highlight that as a point of discussion. And talking too, when we when we conceived this, the department had conceived this as part of our equity agenda for planning back in 2020. This was discussed with a number of other studies and initiatives that we could undertake because what you can see in the report is that this is being studied nationally at universities, at the Federal Reserve, with other governments and trying to, you know, is it redlining? Is it racial covenants? Is it other things? And the answer is it is all of these, it is all of these things to determine what is the culture of a place, what was it, what is it today, and then to your point, well, then what are the remedies for that? We were hoping to kind of raise the, the floor on the dialogue so that there was an underpinning of understanding what was the history here, what are these themes, and then have kind of a broader, more informed conversation amongst ourselves, you know, with the board, the council, and the community as we go forward to tackle these problems with thr which Thrive gets at and which I think is going to be the cornerstone of our work for many decades. Let me let uh, Commissioner Presley uh, say the last word, hopefully. Okay, I'm sorry about that, but this, you know, it, it brings up a lot. What I'm interested to know, and, and you know, the realtors have data on this. I wanna know how many people of color have tried to purchase a home in Chevy Chase and had someone else win out over them for reasons that, that are apparent. So I'm saying this for two reasons. When we get offers in, you don't get to see what anyone else's offer is. So if people are harboring their own prejudices still, it just means prejudice has morphed into a form that's, that's not as traceable as, um, you know, as, as the covenants that were in place before. But if we can't get some data like that, you know, I'd like to know from people who have tried to move into that area, were you not able to and why? Sure, we have people, it's not just Chevy Chase, anywhere. We have people of all levels of income and education, white, black, and every other color. But what is the current experience? You know, is, is there still an unspoken uh, restriction where you've got realtors who are representing people of, let's just say high net worth and uh, I'm going to call them white maybe they're not white but 
to what extent is there still some influence in how people even get an opportunity to have a home in an area that previously was covenanted? That to me is probably maybe one of the only residues that are still that's still current from that. But what has happened since that time is that prejudice just simply takes on multiple other forms. And so I'm really more interested in knowing what the segregation is today and why. Like I, the example I stated in my neighborhood, it's by choice. People wanted to, by choice, live within the same row as their folks. Some of them are even in the same business together. There's a flooring company and all kinds of things. And I think that's fine. But we need to know um, why people can't get there. You know, why is it still all white in some areas? And is it by choice or is it by restriction that's unspoken? I guess what I would say is that there are a number of organizations and entities that have been looking at that question. I think part of what, part of what you just stated is that it is very difficult to get concrete data on that because a lot of these practices are, number one, they're illegal, um, but they right. are done individual or organization to, you know, they are systemic. They're both happening on a systemic and an individual level, but they are not being done through uh, a, a documented mechanism like a covenant or something like that where you can tie mm -hmm. it directly. Um, but that also means it's very difficult to collect that data, especially whether it's in Montgomery County or in, in some other region. I am aware that there have been um, some studies and surveys that, have, that others have been, that have done, uh, that, that have been done. Um, but it's, it's very challenging because it's, because it's not, it's not through you know these sort of formal mechanisms anymore, but these things are very much happening still today. We we do know that. Right, but I have to say, why is the question the toughest question to answer? No matter what the line is mm -hmm. after why, uh, be, because the motivations of of people, the number of possible causes is uh, really uh, a, a lot. I don't know that we'll ever get to why as a general answer. You'll get to why in an individual case, maybe, if, if people are open to their expressing their mototivations. Uh, but I think you've got enough to go on. No, you don't one have, more, I'm sorry, more. you don't have I'm enough sorry. to go on. You, you, I'm sorry, I was gonna try and not say anything, but I can't help it. Um, so let, let me be clear about this. Um, as to Commissioner Presley's inquiry, um, you know, I really don't think we can be concerned about about the why of of uh, of people in certain groups who may decide to live together. That's okay. I mean, you know, when I was in college, <laughs> all the black kids used to eat in the same room, and the white kids used to say, "Well, all the black kids eat in the same room." Let me tell you why. We stayed in the same room because it was our refuge. It was a way we remained safe at the end of the day. Um, and it was a choice we were allowed to make. I assume that the, the, the people you're referencing in the current day, probably same thing. You know, and because discrimination is multifaceted, um, yes, it plays on a, um, on a legal level, it does involve people being excluded 
from some places. And that is the discrimination that the systems, uh, legal and social, should fight against, should take action against. When people decide for their own reasons to um, join together in groups to achieve whatever peace and comfort they may want to achieve, that's, that's really kind of like, um, that's okay. We don't have to have a why for that. Um, th that, can, that can just be people being people from the beginning of time. People have been segregated into tribes. It's not a problem until, you know, uh, harmful things either prevent it or enforce it. So I'm not interested in this tribe question. That's just totally not something I'm concerned about. I am concerned about what mechanisms, legal, social, economic, may exist that prevent people, regardless of race or religion, from being truly free. That's it. This is about whether you are truly free. And a part of being truly free is being able to make rational decisions about where you live. And if you can't do that, you're not free. That, to me, is the value of this. Um, and, and if, you know, anyway, I'm just going to leave it at that. May I make just a quick suggestion for a resource um, that the board could take a look at right now that was recently released? The Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments released a regional fair housing plan. It's out for public comment through March 31st. Um, I think they just sent an email about it today or yesterday. Uh, we will certainly take a look at it, but I would you know, certainly recommend the board take a look at it as well. Um, I know Commissioner Pinero, you mentioned you know, what's going on right now that can address these issues. So I think this might be a good resource that we can all take a look at. I'm waiting Would you repeat seconds. the name of that? It's the uh, Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments uh, Regional Fair Housing Plan. Um, I can forward the email that I received from COD to the board if you want to take a look at it. Okay, I think we're, we're ready to move on. I think you've gotten sufficient comments. Uh, when is this going to council? We need to compile it into one report, get our graphics and maps together, but we plan to transmit to council as, as soon as we're done putting the document together, so shortly within the next few weeks. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That concludes this item. Thank you for the presentation.
Good afternoon. This is the February 2nd, 2023 session of the Planning Board. This is item 10, briefing on the master plan for historic preservations, goals, policies, designation resources, amendment procedures. Um, uh, this is in preparation for this board uh, getting a, a possible a nomination for the master plan in the future. This is to give us background on <laughs> what the procedures are and how we'll go through that. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ms. Ballow. Thank you, Chair Zions and members of the board. For the record, my name is Rebecca Ballow, supervisor with the Historic Preservation Section, and I'm joined by John Lieberts, our cultural planner three, cultural resources planner three within the section. Um, so again, this is to give you an overview of the master plan for historic preservation and the locational atlas and index of historic sites. The master plan for historic preservation is a, fun is a countywide functional master plan. It is the document that governs the designation of sites and districts within Montgomery County. So just to give you a little roadmap of where we are going this afternoon, so I'm going to discuss broadly historic preservation in Montgomery County, outline the different levels of historic preservation uh, that our office undertakes here, and um, that also um, some levels of designation by the National Park Service, provide an overview for you of the evaluation process as stipulated by the master plan in Chapter 24A of the county code about how properties are designated as sites and districts, and then outline the purpose of design guidelines and how um, alterations for historic districts and sites are reviewed, and then also a little bit of information about our historic preservation tax credit program. This is not comprehensive of everything that the historic preservation section does, but it is just covering the master plan amendment process. So very, very broadly, starting at the top. What is historic preservation? There are a lot of misconceptions out there about what historic preservation is for, even though it has you know, existed nationwide since it, well, going back to the 1930s, but really nationwide since the adoption of the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966 and the creation of the National Register. So historic preservation recognizes and protects historical and cultural resources. We manage change in communities to protect significant character-defining elements, buildings, sites, neighborhoods. Often we use design guidelines to achieve equitable and consistent outcomes in our permitting review. And the Historic Preservation Office also provides tax incentives to property owners for certain rehab costs. Historic preservation does not prohibit changes to a building, does not require property owners to restore buildings to their original condition, does not prohibit development or the potential for demolition, does not exclude the use of green technology such as solar power. We regularly approve car charging stations and solar panels on the roofs of homes at every one of our HPC meetings. And finally, historic preservation has been shown in economic development studies nationwide that it does not negatively affect property values. So I'd like to start with, again, just a brief overview of the National Register, because I know sometimes the terms can be a little confusing between something listed to the National Register versus being on the State Register versus being locally designated. So the National Register of Historic Places is the official federal list of district sites, building structures, and objects that are significant to American history, architecture, archaeology, culture, and engineering. Um, there's also the Maryland Register of Historic Properties. Properties that are listed to the Maryland Register or the National Register are eligible for state and federal tax credits for interior or exterior work. There are no restrictions 
from the local government on what an individual property owner may do to their property with the state listing or with the national listing. These are honorific registries that, again, confer certain economic benefits. And when there is a state or a federal project, we talked about this a little bit with the Rustic Roads plan as well. When Section 106 kicks in, if there is a state or federal project, those state and federal preservation agencies review the project for, for impact. So if a road is coming through or the managed lanes project for the Beltway that was a large federal project that looked at national register properties, that's what, you know, that, that listing is really involved with those types of review. There's no restriction at the local government level. So on the National Register, there are 86 resources in Montgomery County that are listed to the National Register. Um, the examples of this include the CNO Canal, the Seneca Stone Quarries, the Carter Rock Springs Historic District, the Rachel Carson House, and there are other archaeological and prehistoric sites that are listed as well. Um, there is a, on our website and on the state's website, if you would like to peruse any of these listings, it makes for some lengthy and, in, and, you know, and fascinating reading. So then we come to our, our first tier of historic preservation in Montgomery County with the Locational Atlas and Index of Historic Sites. So this was a document that was created by the Montgomery County Planning Board in 1976. It is based on survey data from 1973 to 1975. Um, basically, the commission sent out their one parks historian, Mike Dwyer, um, and Gail Rothrock, who was with Sugarloaf um, Trails at the time, um, to survey you know, 100-year-old buildings within Montgomery County. They did the same for Prince George's County. Um, and those properties were then listed in the locational atlas. It listed resources that are potentially historically significant. They included all the properties that were listed to the National Register. And at the time, there was no test. They didn't test them against any criteria. They just created this inventory. Again, thinking about an inventory is a catalog of the survey information. So this inventory still exists. We don't print more copies, but it exists on the GIS layer. The planning board can add to this inventory continuously. Um, and they can be, properties can be added to the atlas or removed after a public hearing by the planning board. Um, listing in the locational atlas under chapter 24A of the county code provides partial protection from demolition and substantial alteration until the resource or the district is finally evaluated for the master plan. It is meant to be kind of a, an in-between place um, in a holding pattern until it can be finally evaluated by the council for its historic value. There are currently 130 resources individually listed to the Atlas in Montgomery County. It includes farms, churches, garden apartments, um, many buildings that may be familiar to you in downtown Silver Spring, including the Canada, Canada Dry bottling plant. We have some quarries. We have any, pretty much any theme you can think of is still on the locational Atlas. The majority of the properties are farmsteads within the agricultural reserve, but we do still have some in the mid and down county area. We have 13 locational atlas historic districts. They're shown here in the blue pen. And I should say too, each of these, um, each of these categories is called out in a layer in our MC atlas, in our GIS, so anybody in the public can go and, and look this up for their property. 
So for historic districts on the locational atlas, uh, we still have the Silver Spring CBD. We also have Comus, Dawsonville, Redland, Jonesville, Woodside, Dickerson, and Springbrook Estates, just to name a few. So now I would like to introduce, so that's the locational atlas. Then came the preservation ordinance, chapter 24A, historic resources preservation of the county code. And among many things, chapter 24A authorized the creation of the Historic Preservation Commission. It called out the particular professional qualifications that members of the commission must have, and I'll get to that later in the presentation, lays out the, the basic way that historic area work permits for alterations can be approved, can be denied. It lays out the provision for demolition of locational atlas sites, created um, a historic preservation easement program. The county is allowed to accept preservation easements, um, but it also directed the county to create a functional master plan for historic preservation. Um, and that stipulated that the plan shall designate sites and districts, describe their boundaries. Also, the plan shall propose means for the integration of historic preservation into the planning process and talk about other measures to advance the goals of historic preservation. So while our staff, we are staff to the Historic Preservation Commission and go through the work permits with them and present to, you know, present at their meetings, we are also an integral part of the planning process as his you know, historic preservation, and that's what the ordinance stipulates, and then that, what the, that is what the master plan was adopted to ensure. So the master plan was adopted by the county council in 1979. This is still our functional planning document. It has only been amended since 1979 to add sites and districts. So the historic designation occurs after a very thorough analysis with respect to the designation criteria. And again, I've sat through a number of the Rustic Roads work sessions with you guys, so I know that you're familiar with you know, applying the different criteria to different types of properties. Our criteria are laid out in our ordinance and also stipulated within our master plan. So the HPC must use these criteria in Chapter 24A when they make a recommendation for something to be listed on the atlas or to be listed to the master plan. The master plan also stipulates that all exterior alterations need a historic area work permit. So that's not just to the building, that's to the grounds, that's to the appurtenances, to everything within what's called the environmental setting. And I'm gonna get to what the environmental setting is in a little bit. Um, it also established access to historic preservation tax credits through a future law that the council then adopted. Um, and as I said before, the first group of properties that were listed to the master plan were those that were already on the National Register. So when you look at those original designation forms for the properties, they took it to be pretty self-evident. This property is listed to the National Register. That is the criteria by which the council will add it to the master plan. You'll see in the reports that we bring forward now that we do a lot more analysis to you know, weigh the history and the architecture of a property against the criteria that we're given so that you and the HPC have facts and findings that you can rely upon with your determinations. So again, the master plan, this is language that's taken actually directly from the master plan. These sites must have real merit for inclusion. Um, the master plan stipulates that there is no date restriction on the resources. It noted even back in 1979 that more 20th century resources would be reviewed. They expected that and noted that age alone does not qualify a resource for designation. So the program over the last 
40 some odd years has been extraordinarily successful and prolific. I think I, I could say that this is the strongest preservation program in Maryland or truly in the region. Um, there's been a lot, of, a lot of really good work that has been done over the decades. So we have 454 designated historic sites. That's what these pins are. These represent unique, rare, or excellent examples of architecture, archaeological sites and cemeteries, industrial, agricultural, commercial sites, including quarries, garages, barns, landscapes, theaters, hardware stores, and urban commercial buildings. We have institutional and public buildings and sites, including firehouses, public halls, recreation centers, and schools. We also have sites associated with African-American history, women's history, the arts, education, entertainment, farming, and rural life. And I'm sure I have not captured everything <laughs> in that laundry list, but it's to give you kind of a broad idea of the types of properties that have been given the protection of Chapter 24A. We have a pet cemetery, the Aspen Hill Pet Cemetery. We have a gold mine. We have log houses, schools. We even have a road. I think you guys saw the Martinsburg Politicians Road, again, as part of the Rustic Roads Plan that is a master plan site. We have 25 historic districts. Districts encompass themes associated with the railroads and the streetcar suburbs, African-American communities, outstanding and unique architecture, and early in federal history and the, and the rural villages. So again, they span the, the entire county. So what's, what's the difference between, between the two? Um, the locational atlas is meant to be a temporary listing. Um, it provides protection from demolition and substantial alteration. Um, permits require design review by, at least at a minimum, the Historic Preservation Office. There are no design guidelines, and there are no tax incentives for properties that are just on the locational atlas. The master plan um, properties listed require a historic area work permit for any alterations, requires design review by the HPC or the staff. The review, um, at least in the districts, is based on established design guidelines and other criteria in the ordinance. Um, there is the ab ability to exempt some work from HPC review. And then property owners receive a 25% tax credit um, for documented expenses for exterior maintenance, restoration, and preservation. So what is the role of the HPC? in all of this. The HPC has a unique role to play in the master plan amendment um, for historic preservation, um, that there are no other commissions or bodies that, that have quite this role because it's called out in the ordinance. So the HPC is comprised of nine county residents that must have demonstrated professional expertise in history, architecture, preservation, or urban design. Other members are meant to be chosen based on you know, special geographic considerations or other training. For example, since Tacoma Park was accepted into the inventory, we have always worked to have at least one resident from Tacoma Park on the HPC because they make up by far the majority of the permits that we see. Um, the HPC is appointed uh, by the recommend recommendation of the county executive with confirmation by the council. And again, they have certain powers and duties, one of which is to recommend the designation of sites and districts to the planning board. And the HPC may also advise the planning board and council on any other legislation or proposals that affect historic preservation. So sometimes they will comment on a ZTA or they may comment on another master plan that may not be designating something. So typically in the designation process, the HPC will hold their public hearings 
first about whether or not a property is designated. And then their recommendation, that is really the staff draft that is at the HPC. And then it is the HPC's recommendation that will come forward to the planning board for the public hearing draft. So this is the flowchart that we like to bring out to the public meetings to show everybody all of the steps um, in the designation process. Really, the, the point of this is to show that every step in the evaluation process is meant to be transparent. It is meant to be measured. And there are many, many opportunities built in for comments by property owners and the public. So the, the criteria in Chapter 24A, which are listed here on the left, have to do with historical and cultural significance and architectural and design significance. It is these criteria that are called out in the plan and the ordinance that we weigh all proposals against. So when you receive your plan amendment document, the staff is meant to call out which criteria we think a designation meets, and then you will have our rationale as part of that. So within the Master Plan for Historic Preservation, which was adopted by the Council, it stipulates that the Planning Board must use the same criteria as the HPC from Chapter 24A in making its determinations, but that the Planning Board may also balance the importance of the historic property with other public interests, including relevant Master Plan guidance. So now I'd like to talk about environmental settings. This trips up a lot of people, including me, when I, when I first got here and I was working for Prince George's County. Um, so the term environmental setting um, on the left is the straight definition from our ordinance. It is the same definition that is in the Prince George's County ordinance. It comes from our state enabling legislation, um, Chapter 8, which then carries over to Article um, 28 of our charter. In plain language, the environmental setting is the boundary of the historic resource as designated in the master plan. This is the area over which the HPC has permitting authority. So when you receive a master plan amendment, you're going to get a description of what is this historic resource we're talking about, what criteria do we think that it meets, and then what should the environmental setting be? What, should the, what is the proper area to be designated to ensure the preservation of this resource? In practice, environmental settings can be very, very large. We have some large sites um, up, up county that are hundreds, hundreds of acres for just one site. Here we have the Tacoma Park Historic District environmental setting. So everything within this boundary is potentially reviewable by the HPC. Any changes to a building, any changes to a garage, any changes to the streets, the landscaping, the paving, the streetlights, all of it. Unless you or the council stipulate otherwise that you want to leave out certain categories of things to review. But it is not based on visibility. It doesn't matter if you can see it or not. If it's within the environmental setting, it is regulated unless you specifically say otherwise. So in practice, what does this also mean for some of our historic sites? So this is the Flower Theater and Shopping Center um, that was designated within the past 10 years, I believe, up on Flower Avenue. So the HPC had made a recommendation to designate the entire building. I won't describe all the steps that it went through, but ultimately what the council determined was that it should be approximately the first 25, 30 feet of the facade. So you can see the building here on the left and on the right 
This is the environmental setting within the GIS. It's not the entire parcel. It's not even, even the entire building. But this is what the council determined was necessary you know, for preservation of this resource. We have environmental settings that are the size of perhaps this computer, right? It's an object, the Washington, D.C. boundary stones. The environmental setting is actually so small that we can't quite map it <laughs> within the GIS. You can see that square isn't even quite it. It is just the stone. It's not the parcel that the stone sits on. It's, it's just the stone. Another example is the Madonna of the Trail. This is off of Wisconsin Avenue in Bethesda. The environmental setting is the sculpture itself. It has actually been moved at least once, maybe twice, for metro construction. Um, so that is the environmental setting of that object. Again, not the parcel, just the statue. So I want to touch again briefly on historic district design guidelines. Um, most of the districts do have design guidelines. Uh, we adopted a set of design guidelines for our Potomac Overlook Historic District last year. They can be specific or they can be very broad in terms of talking about what, what is to be protected. But what's wonderful about the design guidelines is that they are, they are created in consultation with the community. John and I had many meetings with Potomac Overlook over a, a series of about two or three years to, to talk with them. What do they feel is important about their community? What do they in particular want, want to protect? What is more or less important? Tacoma Park has a different emphasis on trees and environmental features than does Clarksburg, you know, than does Kensington, Chevy Chase. Um, so it's really able to get at what is unique to preserve within that community. Um, and then I wanted to just give you some examples of adaptive reuse and development of master plan sites and locational atlas sites to show you, again, the range of possibilities once a site is designated. We have on the upper left the Tasty Diner, which is a master plan site that has been moved. It had been on Georgia Avenue, where the Discovery Center currently is, and it was moved to another location a block or two up and, and around the corner as part of that redevelopment. But a portion of that building is still designated as a master plan site. In the middle, we have the Canada Dry Bottling Company that is a, a locational atlas site that had a whole apartment complex redeveloped behind it. On the right, we have the Affinity on Georgia Apartments that are part of the National Association of Dyers and Cleaners Institute locational atlas site. I have to write that down because it's really... It's quite a mouthful. So there was a whole apartment complex that was developed um, and integrated those historic buildings into the site. We have on the lower left the Silver Spring Volunteer Fire Station that is the fire station restaurant. And then on the lower right, of course, we have the AFI Silver Theater, which is a master plan site. There's a historic easement on a portion of that site as well. And then all of the redevelopment that happened behind it. So the, the point of all of this is to get you familiar with the criteria, get you familiar with the master plan process, the role of the HPC, but also to try and demonstrate that while historic preservation has a very specific purpose, there's a lot of flexibility built into this process. And there is actually a lot of flexibility in terms of design guidelines, in terms of the boundaries of the environmental setting, in terms of what is designated and how it is designated that's been exercised by the council for the better part of the last 40 years to protect historic sites and resources, while also allowing for communities to develop, grow, and redevelop.
Very briefly, we also have our historic preservation tax credits that designated property owners can take advantage of. Um, this is a slide that we typically show, you know, to show what is eligible work, what is ineligible work. This is a significant part of our work program. Um, people really love the tax credits, take advantage of them. We've had the program since, I think, 1983. Last year, our office reviewed 158 tax credit applications for about $4.1 million worth of eligible rehab expenses. That concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, very comprehensive. It brings back a lot of history that I had with the history. Um, Commissioner Hill. I was a bit surprised to see that the uh, historic preservation master plan dates from 1979, and you said it's been locationally changed, but that suggests not otherwise changed. Was it so sage that it is really durable, or is it time to update that? I think that has to do with a number of work program priorities. Um, at the History Conference last weekend, Eileen McGuckian, who was here from the beginning of the program, she talked about you know the evolution of historic preservation for the last 40 years, and really the emphasis has been on designating sites. And then once we got a critical mass of sites designated, then we had to regulate those those sites. I'd also say that a lot of the recommendations um, are still very applicable today. It talks about adaptive reuse, flexibility, um, looking at broader themes of history, even mid-century themes. Um, but to your point, I think the emphasis on the work program has just been getting through the locational atlas as, as best we can and focusing on the regulatory work. Um, but I agree, 40 years is certainly a long time to have one functional plan. Yeah, I was glad to see the detail that back in 1979, the county chose not to put a time limit on on the scope of, because I think the state at that point had the 50-year you know, duration, and um, the county took a more progressive position even then. So that's good to hear. Anybody else? I'll add just the two cents that um, at some point we have to go through the locational atlas since it's mission was to be a holding pattern. It's hard to imagine a holding pattern for now 46 years for some of these properties. Uh, but that's a whole other work program issue uh, because it takes a lot of effort to, to go through that. And the only thing that uh, forces anybody's... I always get surprised by... The only thing... Uh, that prompts us is a demolition permit, which is about the worst way to get prompted. That, that's not exactly how you want to uh, address uh, a situation. Uh, but we look forward to uh, the nominations <laughs> in the future. Uh, at some point, the board will get to meet the uh, Historic Preservation Commission, and we'll make that happen in a little bit. Uh, and uh, do I see any other hands? I do not see any other hands. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, I think that concludes our business uh, for the day. Uh, without objections, uh, we are adjourned. I see no objections. We're adjourned.